Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory and True History Herstory of Nasara. Infinite blessings to all of you precious souls that are joining us here. Know that this is another very, very powerful week in this extremely powerful month of May. Sunday the 23rd happens to be another 555 portal date. And it is celebrated across the world as the Feast of the Pentecost, which represents the Holy Spirit, the Divine Feminine, in our lives. So we're going to call in that divine feminine wisdom, that divine feminine love to flood the planet. It is also the week of the full moon eclipse, the supermoon lunar eclipse in Sagittarius on Wednesday, May 26th. That is the third of the three spring festivals that are celebrated. And and so we, at this time, know that this planet is truly transforming and we will be working with humanity in the days ahead to truly uplift consciousness and create oneness and unity within all. So let us begin with our meditation by going into our heart center, going into that sacred heart portal that is a portal to all that is. Please join me in calling forth the full mergence with your soul, with your higher self, with your monad, with your muddy I am presence. Allowing the I am presence to take full and complete command of your being. We welcome all of our multidimensional being to merge with us to the highest extent that we can receive at this time. And we see ourselves in a beautiful, beautiful pillar of light containing the white and gold energy, the gold of eternal peace, the white of ascension, the white of the Holy Spirit, the sacred dove of peace that we invoke for each of us now. See your pillar of light fully anchored directly from source into the heart of Mother Gaia as we become emissaries of peace and anchor this energy directly from the heart of our Mother Father God into the heart of the planet and from there into the hearts of all upon her. As our I Am Presence, we are one with the I Am Presence of all humanity. So let us affirm that now. 
please state after me. I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child. I am one with the I am presence of all of my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. As we recommit ourselves here today to being the bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age, and the open door that no one can shut, asking to receive the highest of ascension frequencies directly from source and the company of heaven that we can receive individually and collectively for both planetary and cosmic ascension. So we invite in for all, all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic, to receive the blessings of all that we do. We invite in our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past and forward. We invite in all of our spiritual lineage, our soul families, our soul pods. We welcome at this time all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council, our mission council. We welcome the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim, and all angelic healing teams. We welcome our beloved friends, the Ascended Masters, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Enlightened Masters, all of the Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light, and all Ascended Master Healing Teams. We welcome the assistance of the Galactic Federation our precious friends from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, from Venus, and many more. We welcome all cosmic galactic universal healers. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven, asking that our Mother, Father, God overlight all that we do. And magnify, magnify, magnify at 10 billion times, 10 billion fold individually and collectively in divine order for each being for the highest good of all. Take a nice deep breath. Again, soak in like a sponge these white and gold frequencies that are being shared as we invite the Holy Spirit in to work with us as well.
So please join me in invoking the Holy Spirit. In essence, a representation of our Divine Mother, as we say, I am my I am presence. I now invoke the Holy Spirit to purify, illumine, and transfigure my four earthly bodies so that they will now be fitting vehicles serving their purpose on this planet through which I am a focus of the light of my Mother, Father, God. My light is daily and hourly increasing. I am one with my I am presence, working through the flesh in this embodiment, further serving the supreme source, the animating principle of life I am throughout infinity. I am the fire breath of the Almighty. I consciously now enter the flaming presence of the Holy Spirit, whose sacred essence of the Holy Breath flows through me in a constant rhythmic pulsation. From this focus within the Holy Breath of the Holy Spirit, I invoke a ray of light into the feeling world of every person on the planet. This ray of light infuses the feeling nature of every human being on earth with the power and grace of the Holy Spirit. And now, through the full authority of the presence of God, Goddess, I am blazing in every human heart. I make this call to the celestial giver of all life, the cosmic I am. May the electronic substance of the universe, the life force of humanity, be invulnerably charged with perfection's flame in action. As it passes through humanity's vehicles, which are open doors to its expression in the physical world, the electronic light will remain within an invincible armor of transfiguring divine love, emitting perfection, but allowing none of the discord of the lower vehicles to change the vibratory action, color, or sound of its comforting presence. Take a nice deep breath. As we say, I accept this done with full power. As God, Goddess's most holy name, I am. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. Now, I reside in Eastern Time. We began that prayer to the Holy Spirit at 444. That is the number I have been seeing at least once a day for the past four days. It is a number of true resurrection. And so we anchor that resurrection energy for ourselves and for the planet. We call forth the energy of unconditional love and freedom and the angels of unconditional love and the angels of freedom. Take a nice deep breath. 
Holy Spirit of the living God, Goddess within. My precious Holy Self, I now totally and completely forgive myself for every thought, feeling, word, and deed of the past. I release everything to you, all self-condemnation, all guilt, and all fear. And I close the door on all that was yesterday. As I forgive myself, I know that I am forgiving all. For I am everyone and everyone is me. And through the cleansing action of forgiveness, we are all wonderfully free. Anything, if I see anything in my world that is out of harmony, I know that I have simply forgotten my true nature. I have given my ego the authority to think for me. And the ego's thoughts are fearful and repressive, causing me to judge people and conditions. As I do, I pass sentence on myself and bind the conditions of my life. No more. The time has come to break the chains and be free. My blessed spirit, I surrender my life to you, holding nothing back. I give you my emotions to feel through, my mind to be filled with your thoughts, my eyes to see your vision, my mouth to speak only words of truth, my body to be the vehicle for your actions. And if there is anything within my consciousness unknown to me that is not in tune with your holy mind, I ask that it be transmuted, released, and removed now. I am ready to be clean and clear and in perfect harmony with I am, my Holy Spirit, my divine consciousness. Angels of unconditional love and freedom, I have asked that all my false beliefs, fears, and feelings of guilt be dissolved. And from this moment forward, I will do my very best not to judge by appearances in the outer world. I choose and will replace all imperfect images in my mind with the perfect patterns. I choose to do this. I focus on doing this. And I will dwell on these truths of my being until the full and glorious manifestation is revealed. It is my intention to do everything I can for love and freedom to be fully manifest on this planet and for you to show yourself in my life the master of the angelic realm, the shining one whose light appears before every gate, endowing each angel with the will of God, the love of Christ, and the action of the Holy Spirit. Take a nice deep breath. All that is within me is now in perfect harmony. The divine patterns are securely in place. And the angels of unconditional love and freedom are ministering over me, 
and all humanity. And so we decree my life good. So very, very good. Take a nice deep breath. Just bask in this energy of love. And we affirm as one voice, one heart, one mind, one being. There is but one presence, one power, one cause in this universe, in this world, and in my life. It is the spirit of the living God, Goddess, everywhere present. This Holy Spirit is individualized as me. It is who I am. It is what I am. I look within and sense and feel this mighty divine presence, and I now conscious I am now consciously aware of the master self I am in truth. In the stillness of my being, I find perfect balance. I am poised on the middle path between the invisible and visible, master of the poles of opposites, and I see the holy unity of spirit and matter. I see the invisible domain of the kingdom, and I see the manifest realm of heaven on earth. I see my path illumined by the inner light extending from the secret place within out into the world of form of ex- and experience. I live with patience, determined to follow my path and fulfill my plan and then to carry out other plans in life as my future unfolds. I gratefully accept all that greets me on the path. For I know that the activity of God, Goddess, is the only power in my life, and I trust the divine process. I move forward, steady in the light of my holy self, and in the company of the angels who will keep me in all my ways. And so it is. Again, we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We now call forth to request at this most powerful time. We said the Pentecost, the other 555 portal in one day, and the super moon, the full moon of the Festival of Humanity of Goodwill. With the lunar eclipse on Wednesday, the 26th, we call forth the highest frequencies and blessings and dispensations. We call, call in all the rays, all the flames, all the universal laws and ascension waves as we ask for this for ourselves and the planet and all, all, all sentient beings upon her. So we ask 
for visible miracles in our lives, as we say. In the name of the light of God, goddess that never fails, I accept a healing miracle in my life this day. In whatever fashion I need to receive this, perhaps it's on a physical level, perhaps it's on a mental, emotional level, perhaps it's in the area of our finances, perhaps it is in the area of our relationships. I accept a healing miracle and miracles, plural, in my life this day. I claim a miracle in every level of my being. I claim a miracle of love for my full resurrection. Beloved Mother, Father, God, blaze forth your miracle of light now. Infuse your miracle of light on earth now. I call for an Ascended Master healing miracle in my heart, in my chakras, and in my DNA. Blaze forth the miracle light of the seven rays. Blaze forth the miracle light of the Holy Spirit. Everywhere in my being where healing is needed, every arena of my life where healing and support are required. I declare that I am a miracle of God Goddess this day. I am a miracle in action made manifest. I am a blazing miracle light from the great central sun, resurrecting me back to my true identity in God Goddess, blazing the miracles of light through blazing the miracles of light in through and around me and the planet. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. As we humbly request this for ourselves, we request this for all on the planet now. One of the attributes of the golden ray. The golden light is the abundance and infinite prosperity. And we call that forth now for each of us and for all humanity in divine order. So breathe and accept your abundance as we say. In the name of my beloved I am presence and my beloved Holy Christ self. I call to the Lords of Manifestation, Angels of Prosperity, Fortuna, Goddess of Supply, and the Lord of Gold to assist me now in mastering all outer conditions of my life in God's perfect way, including my true abundance. Charge, charge, charge into my life and use today all the blessings that are mine to receive. Infuse me with the scented master wisdom and purity 
that I may never again experience lack or limitation. Blaze your heart flame through my four body systems and expand without limit a great flow of divine abundance. Saturate me with enough violet flame and emerald healing light to keep my life in perfect balance and harmony. I demand God's invincible protection and wisdom in all my financial endeavors. I demand and command to become a magnet of attraction, drawing to me all the wealth that I require to fulfill my divine plan on earth, to make my ascension and to assist all humanity to do likewise. I give thanks that it is done according to God Goddess's most holy will. I accept my abundance now with great love and gratitude. So be it and so it is. Beloved I am. Beloved I am. Beloved I am. Take a nice deep breath. See that golden energy. In through and around you, in through and around the planet. As it fills every cell and molecule of life, that fills every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our orc field with the highest frequencies of abundance of every good thing. Beloved, I am presence. Beloved, Helios investor from the sun. Beloved, Saint Germain. Beloved, Fortuna, goddess of supply. Beloved, lords of manifestation. Charge, charge, charge into my force field and world now. The action of the golden flame of precipitated sunlight energy from the great central sun. Release into my hands and world today the full cosmic abundance of every good and perfect gift from my own I am presence. All that is mine to receive. As a child of God, Goddess on this planet, I claim this release of abundance as my birthright from my mother God. Cut me free now and forever from every lack and economic limitation by the power of the golden light of manifestation and the light of God Goddess that never, never, never fails. By thy holy grace, let this request be manifested in my life now, according to God Goddess's most holy will. So be it, and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Take a nice deep breath. See the golden light that is flood of the planet, bringing both divine peace and infinite abundance to each of us and to all humanity. See it blazing around the planet, fulfilling its divine purpose 
in every arena of your life. And let us hold the perfection of heaven right here and right now, as we say. Oh, beloved Mother, Father, God, I invoke your divine light and the light of the entire company of heaven. Powers of light, powers of light come forth now. In deep humility and profound gratitude, I consecrate every facet of my being to be the open door that no one can shut. In divine truth, I accept my reality as a beloved child of God Goddess. I am a cup, a holy grail, through which the light of God Goddess is now flowing to lift all life on earth into the blissful embrace of the new earth. And we decree... I am mighty, mighty, I am presence. And I am one with the divine heart and mind of God, Goddess. I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with the elemental kingdom and Mother Earth. I am one with the angelic kingdom. I am one with all of the beings of light throughout infinity. Now through the unspeakable power of my mother God's love, all life is lifted into the immaculate concept of the divine plan for the new earth. Within this concept of infinite physical perfection, Every person remembers that they are a beloved son or daughter of God Goddess. Every person comprehends the divine truth that all life is interconnected, interrelated, and interdependent. A renewed sense of oneness and reverence for all life stirs in each heart flame. And the love of our Mother God floods the earth through humanity's heart chakras. As the love of God, Goddess flows through each person's heart flame, they are lifted up and their lives are transformed. From this new level of consciousness, humanity taps into the patterns of perfection for the new earth and viable solutions to all the maladies existing on earth flow into the minds of lightworkers everywhere. The lightworkers join forces to create the perfection of the new earth. All traces of pain and suffering are transmuted into light. Every concept of lack and limitation ceases to exist. And the abundance of God, Goddess, floods the earth. People everywhere perceive and acknowledge the divinity blazing in every heart flame. Humanity now knows and accepts that all life is divine. 
This realization inspires every person to feel and express love and mutual respect for every part of life. As the collective thoughts and feelings of humanity continually empower the perfection of the new earth, the physical plane is transformed and transfigured. The body of Mother Earth is restored to a verdant paradise of splendor and light. The life of every living being is filled with love, joy, happiness, prosperity, and fulfillment. Enlightenment, eternal peace, harmony, balance, abundance, spiritual wisdom, and every other divine quality of our Mother, Father, God is the order of the new day on planet Earth. Mother Earth dons her seamless garment of light and ascends a spiral of evolution into the full expression of her fifth-dimensional solar reality. The heavens rejoice, and our Mother Father God responds. Welcome home, beloved children. Well done. And so it is. I am that I am. I am that I am. I am that I am. Take a nice deep breath. We're going to call in Archangel Sandalphon, as well as Mother Gaia, to assist us in truly anchoring these frequencies with ease and grace. So we now request the perfect digestion and assimilation, grounding and anchoring, integration and embodiment of these divine frequencies. The maximum that we can receive individually and collectively through the hours, days, and weeks ahead with the greatest of ease and grace and joy peace and harmony, tranquility and serenity, balance and equilibrium, in love, in light, and in laughter. God bless us all, and may this be magnified in divine order for each being. We ask for all this word to be sealed, maintained, and sustained. We ask for the Holy Spirit to work with us throughout the week ahead and inspire us to greater love and compassion and wisdom, greater harmony amongst all beings. And so I give thanks to the entire company of heaven on behalf of all of us. I give thanks to each of you that are bringing heaven to earth. I thank you for your service work here today. And I invite you to greater service every Sunday and Monday evening for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls where we do a good two hours of divine service work each night. 
the calls begin, their teleconference calls. They begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We start with 25 minutes of greetings. And then Tara and Rama give us a brief update. And then we begin our work in earnest at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time, with a variety of meditations, decrees, invocations, visualizations, as we do this work of bringing heaven to earth and manifesting the divine into our physical reality, both for individual and cosmic ascension. So we're doing planetary work continuously, and we know that we receive amazing benefits by including everyone in the work that we do and all that we receive ourselves. So if you have not joined us previous to this, please plan on doing so Sunday and Monday. I'll just make the announcement now that usually we're there every day except Christmas. This year, um, we will not have a call on July 4th, so you might want to make a note of that. Sunday, July 4th, we'll be off. We'll be doing a call on Monday the 5th. Very unusual, but that's the way it needs to be. So, my friends, the phone number to call in, the main number is 425 436-6260. Again, that's area code 425-436-6260. The code is 946-7441-POUND. If you need more information, I have um, ready to send you alternate numbers. There are international numbers. There's a way to access this call through your computer, and many people are starting to do that now. So you're welcome to join us in any way. If you need that additional information, please contact me. Email me at Cheryl Croce at AOL.com. That's C H E R. Y-L, C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. I'll be happy to send that and to keep you updated on the calls and other programs. Again, it's going to be an amazing, amazing week. It's an amazing week to be doing divine service simply because we have our sacred festival this week. We will celebrate that on Monday the 24th, the Festival of Humanity, the Festival of Goodwill, and just spread that infinite love and light throughout the planet. I know everything's going to be super magnified as we do that this week because of our full moon energies. The super moon, it's a super time to be doing this divine service work. So I thank you for doing this service work here today. 
Oh, I know what the 27th is. The 27th starts the seven sacred weeks. So those people that are already on my mailing list will receive that information next week. And on the Sunday call, the 30th of May, we will be beginning our work with the seven sacred weeks. So infinite blessings to one and all. May you have a most magical, magical week. We want to take this time to open our hearts and extend our gratitude and thanks for Tar and Rama and their divine service. And we thank Rainbird as well for her divine service. So again, infinite love, gratitude, and blessings to you all as I pass this talking stick. You can feel the flame energy of the Holy Spirit. You can feel the peace at the same time as we pass the talking stick with all of these amazing frequencies, the white and gold, and, of course, all the rays, flames, universal laws, and ascension waves, all of the energy of, of miracles and abundance and healing on every level, and all of the energies of heaven on earth. It's a huge talking stick, Rainbird. And so, with love and gratitude, I pass it on to you. Blessed be everybody. We'll see you on tomorrow's call. A beautiful docking stick. Thank you, Cheryl. And thank you for your divine service as well. I'm so grateful to do this each week with you. So, so, so much gratitude. And I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener support radio program. We we pitch in together and cover those expenses that we have with DBS Radio each week for these programs. And um, that expense is normally $300 this week. Um, we need 360 So um, we're looking forward to making that happen. <laughs> so here's how we do it. We go into our heart space and see what is ours to give. And then go to bbsradio.com. And there on the home page, as you scroll down, you'll find the menu for um, Radio Station 2. And that's where all of our shows are. So looking on Thursdays on that menu, you'll uh, see the panel with uh, Night at the Roundtable. And so you can click on that, and that will take you directly to our account there. And using your bank card, you can make a donation in any amount. So thank you for your generosity. Thank you for taking that action. So likewise, on Fridays at the 6 o'clock hour, these are all Pacific times, you'll find the Hard News Program with Tara and Rama on Friday nights. And you can click on that icon, and that'll take you to our account as well, as as well as this, this program the, at the 1.30 hour on Saturdays, the True History, Hershey and Sarah and Our Galactic Origins with Tara and Rama. So as you can see, each any one of those three icons, as you click on it, will take you to our account uh, where you can make a donation using your bank card. And that's, Yeah. I just wanted to add that little caveat that uh, there's a, still a place, right, where you can click on for family and friends. Oh, right. That's really important because... I think people 
I just noticed that people got money taken out because they didn't know uh, who tried to help us, you know, last week a little bit. So yeah, okay, well, I'll explain that when I get to you guys, which will be real shortly. Oh. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay, yeah. so okay. that takes care of a BDS, a 360, and then we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their their needs, and as Tara just pointed out, friends and family is a good option because it really does uh, make a difference on how much is they're receiving. So let me explain that a little bit. Um, to reach the PayPal um, link for Rama, you, should, you need to go to the website. And so that website address is www.rainbowroundtable.com. And there on the home page, as you click on those little bars of the menu, you'll see near the bottom of the list that shows up, uh, the donate button, and that links you to Rama's PayPal account. So as you're making a donation, um, and this week they need, I'll talk about what they, they need first, because they they really don't have any food or gas, and they need to feed a lot of kitties. They got two extras, so now they got 11 kitties. It's a real pride. And the the, the two new ones are inside. Um, so they're needing to have that money for food and and gas and to go get it and and to take care of the the kitty litter situation and, and feeding those those many mouths. So so lots of gratitude for um, maybe one or two or three of you making a donation tonight so that they're able to um, get going and feed their bellies and and get gas in the car and and make it all happen for the kitties. So lots of gratitude for someone who can send something right away or two or three of you. So here's what we do. Uh, As you go to um, Rama's, as you link to Rama's PayPal account, you can make a donation there using your bank card, but if you go to his PayPal email, um, as you have your own PayPal account, you can you can click on the friends option. So as you have your own PayPal account, go into your account, put in Rama's email, which is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999949s at hotmail.com. And then they'll ask how much you want to give to this this address and so you <laughs> you put in that amount and a window will drop down and it'll give you the, the word change you click on change and that leads you to the friends option and you click on that and so that's how that's how you make the friends option show up for you uh, you have to have your own PayPal account to do it and you have to enter Rama's PayPal email with the Koran four nines and Hotmail. So that's how that happens. And that just eliminates the commercial charges. So um, as I said, either way is perfect. We're grateful for your your donations and we're grateful that you uh, can take that extra moment to recognize the the friends option. So so knowing that what take what gets taken out and what gets delivered is a different thing. So 
thank you for being aware of that. And yes, they are needing the, the, um, some immediate help um, for just functioning, just life. So let's honor them that way and make sure that that happens. And then, uh, not this week, but the um, Memorial Day of next week, which is on Monday, that rent will be due, and that rent amount um, and and four bills are also due at the same time. So, um, looking for those those bigger donations that way. So those steady ones, those ones that come in for that purpose, it's it's about sixteen seventeen hundred dollars that need to be rounded up at that time uh, for the week after next. So just putting a reminder in on that. And uh, as you're sending something, please let Rama know. And that email for Rama is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999. No, excuse me, only 999, only three nines. And that's at Comcast.net. And again, Koran 999 at Comcast.net. And let him know what you sent when you sent it so he can uh, be on it, figuring it all out. So um, thank you for taking that action. And then as you need the mailing address, which if you're sending something tonight and need to wire it, that this is how this works, is with his mailing address. So Rom D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z. Uh, post Office Box 280-280, and that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you go. That's how it all happens. <laughs> and so much gratitude for your donations and uh, your help with Tara and Rama and their needs. This is a good way to, it's a good opportunity to honor the work that they do. Um so that's worthy for sure. And uh, let's see what else. I think that's it. Um, yes, there is a, the Fremark address, and I'll give you that. This is the place where you would go to join Fremark, the Rainbow Roundtable account. And so that address, HTTPS, colon, forward slash, forward slash, and then www.shopfremark.com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M, which is a username for the account number 7000, the 2013 Rainbow Roundtable account. And so there you go. You can look around there, see what you like. Um, and then if you're interested in starting your own account, know that there will be no monthly charges or any any hooks like that. So it's, it's um, a little bit fancy-free for being able to do that kind of marketing, and they have amazing products. And they also have uh, amazing abundance projects as well. So that's it. So I'm passing this talking stick, and it's got the, all the rays, the white and the gold, and all the rays and flames and ascension waves and and all, all bringing energies of heaven on earth, and it's all on this talking stick. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes that talking stick. And 13 thank yous, honey in the heart, long life, no evil. <laughs> and here it comes. Greetings. Thank, thank you, you, Rainbird. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Yes, we can. We're 
we're getting a bump up in the energies come tomorrow again. Yep. With the Pentecost Sunday celebrations. And we're going to need it. <laughs> uh, Saturn going retrograde all the way for four, months. four and a half months from the 23rd here until the, uh, of May to the 10th of October is not exactly a short haul. <laughs> and I mean, if you can, we can all see that the whole old program has to go because it's corrupt to the core. And we've been saying this for umpteen gazillion decades. And it's just gotten to the point where out of sight, out of mind, huh? Uh, <laughs> Is that what the saying says? What I could say is that... Yeah, I didn't get your message. You're going to have to tell everybody your message, Rama. Um, I talked to Rosa from Palestine and another lady who's a reporter there with Al Jazeera. And the ceasefires tentatively holding and... Uh, there are Egyptian and UN folks coming to help the people that have been bombed basically out of existence. I hate to say it in that way, but it's the truth. I mean, Gaza looks like Aleppo in Syria, and they have done nothing except to be of a different faith. And the issue on this planet at this time is, all we are saying is give peace a chance. Whatever form of creator source you work with, it's, you know, they, they are just saying it's a... Is the lady that works for Al Jazeera Faction 3 White Knight? No, she's just a reporter that oh. was in the building and she got out before it got demolished. And let's just say... But but um, Rosa was with her. Yes. Sharing all that. Yeah. Okay. And she's getting help for her PTSD and what is going on here is about ethnic cleansing extermination mm. I'll call it like it is just like what the Nazis did to people who were gay or gypsy or Jewish or black or Asian or ET and here it is. And it goes back 13,000 years. That's why when Enki and Enlil got here and they needed good slaves to harvest the fields as they, you know, created the grains. And Leonora explained to me before the flood 
there was something about the grains that were planted because of the xenon gas in the atmosphere, the grains had a different consistency than they do now. And they didn't harm you with the lectins like they do now. And it's a whole long body of work, she said. But it has to do with the xenon gas in the atmosphere that changes physical reality space-time. That's what we're missing right at this time. And still and yet, what these two people told me is, you know, like I said, Gaza looks like Aleppo in many areas, and it's not pretty. And Aleppo is that northern area of Syria that we pretty much bombed off the map. Yeah, it looks like Hiroshima and Nagasaki in certain ways. And uh, just for miles and miles and miles, blocks and blocks of homes are just leveled. Yeah. Israel and the United States are going to pay for their war crimes, and I'm not saying it out of malice or anger. It is what's going to happen at the Solar Tribunal on well, Saturn as well as here. We have to take responsibility for it, and we have yeah. to make reparations. Yes. And I'm just going to say that's another term for what the Reformation is about, the Reformation Act. It's about us taking responsibility to make the Reformation a real Reformation, which means that you've got to take responsibility for the damage that we have done with killing, this, for, killing for profit. There is this attitude of the Israeli military. I, When I went to Israel... In the 70s, it was, you know, the hippies. Everybody smoked pot. They were taking acid. I lived on a commune when I passed through Israel. I had a good time, you know. But, of course, I was white, you know. They didn't mess with me. But at the same time, it's a whole different story now. And this is about... The Palestinians' right to self-determination as their own autonomous state, separate and apart from, I mean, it is Palestine, it always has been. Israel has been kind of just, you know, cut out of Palestinian land because the League of Nations did a deal dirt cheap. They called the Balfour Agreement. Yeah, they didn't even do that because they didn't put any boundaries on Israel. No. In other words, they had the intention from the very beginning of completely annihilating every Palestinian then site and taking over the whole space. This whole time in our generation, we have grown up with apartheid in Israel and over here. Oh, of course. Yes. And... The original black people were the original inhabitants. Here, the hobbits, the mound builders. (laughs) There weren't any white people in the whole world ever. No. This was an experiment which melanin in the skin is related to divine emotion. Enki and Enlil 
in their divine ignorance or divine wisdom, but I think there was malintent, you know, and I got to just say that Mother Goddess gives everyone free will choice to follow the laws of cosmic free will as well as free will on this planet. They chose to follow their egos. And yeah, it was the thing about it's not a small thing. No. Since the color of the skin, the melanin, and it's in the brain as well, is related to divine emotion. This is also connected with DMT in the brain. This is... Yeah, uh, uh, to finish this part, is that divine emotion is necessary in order to even comprehend, you know, like in the movie... Jenny Logan teach me how to love Starman. Yeah. Jenny Logan was this lady that the Starman ship crashed in Lake uh, Ontario. Was that? It was yes. I, I don't and, exactly remember. And he came as a blue ball of light through and found the home of this lady. She was sleeping. It was one o'clock in the morning, and he took himself in through the window with his little blue light. And he literally was paging through with, you know, he had he didn't have arms or legs, he just had the blue light, but he found some, uh, a picture book on the coffee table. And so what he did is he projected his energy into this picture of... What he found was strands husband. of hair... Of her husband. Yeah, that's right. And he went through the DNA of her husband's hair and created a whole new being. That looked exactly like her husband, who had recently died. <laughs> and that was what that book was. It was Memories. And yeah, an album. Hair. Picture album. It was just stunning. Um, and she had a star child with him. And yes. the whole long story... Was in between there, but it was about this resonance of heart energy, and of course, there was a lot of teachings in there about the fact, even though it was supposed to be a sci-fi movie, right? Yeah. But they they literally filmed the last few scenes in an area in Arizona where yeah. there were landings. That was it. There was. It was where a, a, a some an object, a made crater, a, a crater made a crater meteor crater. I was a meteor, a huge one, I guess that. Yeah. Hit that area on just this huge crater was there. But he he was able to. He knew that ahead of time he had to get there, and she helped him, and they hitchhiked all over Tarnation and. He rose a few dead deer from some hunters back of their pickup trucks along the way. So they could just jump out of the truck and go back into the forest. And those characters that were having something of a dinner <laughs> sought out the window and they escaped. They got some help. I can't remember how they got away there, but they did. But you know, what's what's going on here is inhumanity. 
has yeah. taken over this whole system. Money over all. And regardless of who dies. And, and that's just like not even mentioned. You know, you can make all this money. Only thing is that when you make the money, if you really trace where the money's not, not going where it's supposed to, instead of it's going in your pocket, you find a lot of people dead in the story, and that's always the case. So there's an, a new equity coming in, if you will, uh, spiritual equity, spirituality. Let's get spiritual. And Penny found a magnificent little piece of writing here. So I thought I'd read it. But more to say about Rama, you, you, you know, Rosa and the, what was the other lady's name? That Lisa. was Lisa. What did Rosa and Lisa want to get a point across about? That right now Egypt is more of a a lending party to helping the Palestinians than the U.S., which is supposed to be, you know, the bastion of humanitarianism, which is a joke. Uh, and they were just saying that it is time to call these thugs out for what they are, Nazis, and they will be taken care of. Yeah, and I don't see, mean that in a negative way. Yeah, see, there's, yeah. You saw in Raiders of the Lost Ark what happened to the Nazis when they opened the box. And I just... What think, happened? Oh, the energy of the Shekinah came out of the box and <laughs> roasted them. Oh. Yeah. You know, the energy of the violet flame. All-consuming flame. Yes, and we don't need to go there, but I'm just saying that right now on this planet, we've turned a new leaf, and it's time for peace and love, not war. Well, there's a walk Yeah. ahead of us. This next four and a half months is definitely that, and we're not giving, giving any dates regarding how that comes into a merger with the enactment of Nasara law. But what we do know is that no turning back, right? Yes. Nasara law is on the slate to be enacted and St. Germain is in charge with his office in Washington, D.C. and two more in Virginia. Yeah. That we've been saying for 20, 30 years now. And a lot of people don't believe that he's alive, uh, and he he never died, and that was the commitment anyway. He, again, this is another thing. Almina gives us something to think about. You know, it's a choice. You know, we're we're in service to the one. Do you wish to serve? And of course, that has to go according to a, a deeper recognition of what the law of the one of one is. We spend time meditating, doing yoga, dancing, singing, creating poetry, uh, art, uh, 
What else do we do, Rama? <laughs> huh? Um, <laughs> what do we do? Talk to fairies and elves. Yes, and angels. Yes. Yes. And ETs. Yes. <laughs> Rama goes up on starships. Yes. And Rama's as real as... Yeah, I'm real. (laughs) (laughs) And he's been up in the physical thousands of times in a lime green beam onto the New Jerusalem. And he went to the... uh, More times than I care to mention. (laughs) You also went to Athena's ship. Yes. What's that one called? The Dove. The Dove, right. She's... And Any other ship, places? Any other ships? I've been to Lord Michael's ship. I've been to Soltec's ship. I've been to Andromeda Rex's ship. Uh, Tell everybody who Andromeda Rex is. Andromeda Rex is another galactic commander. Can't remember exactly what star system he's from, but he's a great commander along with Ashtar. I've been on Lord Monka's ship from Mars and Corton and uh, Adama from Telos. We know the person that's alive right now that is carrying the full aspect of Andromeda Rex. Yes. And he's a painter, only he does it with... um, he sprays the paint on from a distance. What's that called again? Airbrushing. Yeah, airbrushing. And he designs paintings that are like six feet by six feet. Huge paintings. Yeah. And they are coated bottom sides of starships. Yeah. And they have like a whole teaching in the coating of that painting that he receives before he does this work. It's pretty amazing. <coughs> What's his name again? Aya. 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 Is that right? Yes, Aya, who was with um, Anka Aten and Nefertiti and King Tut. Well, he was uh, uh, Titi. Uh, he was... The father, uh, uh, he was whose father? He was Nefertiti. <laughs> was he Nefertiti's father? I it, I can't remember. I gotta it's go. It's a long story. I gotta look up that in that book. But I guess we're getting digressive here. Yes. Um. Uh, I thought maybe I'd play one thing for from this morning's news because Tahishi. Tanahashi Colts was on TV this morning, and he's been as quiet as a mouse for so long. Yeah. I just said, well, let's do that. He kind of said it all. Well, he said it in a very short amount of time, but he's got away with words, everybody. You know, just a moment here. Oh, just a momentito here. We need to push this button down. Okay. All right. 
Now we're going to go to a different place here. All right, just a moment. This is on Alex Witz. All right. It's it's very overcast here, and it's going to rain. Yeah, I went through a, quite a hailstorm in Santa Fe. They it, were sizes of quarters. Hail. And they covered the parking lot entirely white. I had to wait like 10 minutes before I drove. It was quite that, insane. That is totally uh, not normal. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Right, Rama? Yeah. That this is unusual, but this, you know, it's also called springtime in the Rockies where it can snow even in June. Oh, mm. this is not Alex Witt. It's not. It's the one before. I, I did hear on, um, oh, what was it, Counterspin today, they tore mm. Mr. Trump and his cronies a new one, and they basically just sat on Counterspin. He's going to be doing a lot more years than Bernie Madoff was scheduled to do. Who is? Trump. Oh. Yeah, I mean... I'm not quite sure how that's going to look, Rama. When you play with the... I thought we were told that they're I not going to put them I understand. I was in, listening to Counterspin. They're not exactly... They don't know what's going to happen. No, they don't. All of these guys are not going to be tried here at all. Yeah. They're going to be taken on Mother Sekhmet starships, plural, on the fleets. And they're going to be taken to Dracos. And they're going to be televised getting their intergalactic war crimes uh, tried and, uh, you know, indicted, prosecuted, tried, and convicted by King Dracos and his daughter. And uh, somebody thinks we might have been smoking something funny the way we were talking right now. <laughs> but this is the case, right, everybody? Right, Rama? Yep. Okay, so now I'm ready with this. Just a moment, Tito, here. One more. Jump back. Uh, nine. Um. Nine. Thirty. Okay. Here we go. That's so ridiculously absurd. I had to pass the mic and let my brilliant friend, Tynasty Coates, break it down. Much coverage has attended the efforts in some 40 states to change voting laws so as to favor Donald Trump and his supporters. But the assault on democracy goes beyond the ballot box. Last year, President Trump issued an executive order creating the 1776 Commission, which he offered up as a rebuke to the 1619 Project. Helmed mm -hmm. by one of the most decorated journalists of her generation, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the 1619 Project sought to expose the American experiment's origins in the laboratory of slavery. Trump's rebuke was not a private effort, but one that enjoyed the sponsorship of the state. Perhaps because a certain class of pundits still fails to regard Trump's bluster seriously, the response to this assault 
or the free press was muted. But the import of Trump's actions is clear. Across the country, a wave of bills have sought to ban the 1619 Project, critical race theory, and other, quote, divisive concepts, unquote, from the public sphere. This assault comes at a moment when many Americans are realizing that they do not live in the country they were raised to believe in. The January 6th attack on the Capitol, the deployment of secret police deployment, and the constant B-roll of black people beaten, shot, and tased by law enforcement has shocked the conscience of those who sincerely once thought themselves to have been born into the world's oldest democracy. The shock, along with the work of countless writers, historians, journalists, sociologists, and other academics, has occasioned a broad revisiting of the American story. It is now clear that the creation of America required not only the theft of labor and land, but a national myth which we made pirates into patriots. This long-held national myth is not served by the recent reckoning. It isn't served by remembering Thomas Jefferson, for instance, as a man who ran up so much debt in his lifetime that those he enslaved had to be sold off at his death in order to settle his accounts. And yet, understanding that Jefferson's career as a slaveholder, as the bequest of a founding father, does much to explain the actions of his project. This understanding cannot be allowed to prosper, however, for white power can only retain its privilege in our political system if it can tell itself a story. This week, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, a public institution, took the unprecedented step of rescinding an offer of tenure to Hannah Jones at the behest of its board of trustees. Hannah Jones' 1619 project has enjoyed its share of critique, which is exactly as it should be. Efforts to overturn long-standing national idea deserve debate. What they do not deserve is the censure and silencing of the state. I am not speaking of cancellation as culture, but as public policy. The present attacks on the 1619 project and critical race theory are not being waged through Twitter, but through the offices of 19 state attorney generals, the legislatures of at least six states, and the headquarters of 23 senators, including the Senate Minority Leader. The scope of this attack goes beyond journalism and history. When Donald Trump used his office as president to bully the NFL into depriving Colin Kaepernick of his career, this was cancellationist policy. When the legislatures of Florida and Kentucky moved to outlaw protests and make it easier to legally kill those who persist, it is cancellationist policy. Twitter mobs are bad, but an actual mob, baited by elected officials into attempting the violent overthrow of an election, is something more. It should not surprise us that a horde addicted to a national myth that pitched white men as the unvarnished savior of all civilization is not primed to share the country that they've been taught that they own. It is myth which sanctifies their action. It is myth which is their sword. They attack the vote to prevent us from enacting a better world. They attack the history to prevent us from ever imagining one. A huge thank you to the James Baldwin of our time, Fennahefti. Next week, I'll be bringing you this show live from Tulsa, Oklahoma, ahead of the 100th anniversary of one of the deadliest acts of racial terror in this nation's history. Watch The Cross Connection, America's Racial Reckoning, next Saturday at 10 a.m. Eastern. But we're not done yet, because up next, we're talking about Donald Trump and his flips. Stay with us.
Yeah. Oh, the cake. That's a work of art. I'm going to do my very best to transcribe that and get that out there for everybody. Because he encapsulated, you know, the whole fake story that was taught to us in our history books in school. Mm-hmm. And he told the true story. And uh, he did it with the eloquence of his language and the depth of experience of his life. I know St. Germain tried to help the Founding Fathers to get on a spiritual path. Yeah, because uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson did get delegated to write the Declaration of Independence, and he wrote in there to end slavery right then and there. Thomas and Jefferson sat with St. Germain many hours, many days, having tea and other kinds of drinks. And Yeah, but he also, what Tahasi was talking about, he, he, he did not spend his money wisely. And his, no. I mean, his slave, the people that were his slaves, absolutely loved Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, he married or he had children with... He married her, too. Yeah. But that wasn't at the beginning. Mm-hmm. His wife had ten children from him. Oh, my God. And she was a very frail woman, and she died from her frailty of body, constitution, you might say, and all of that on top of it. But... um Thomas Jefferson really loved. What was her name again? I can't remember right now. Okay, so the completion of what Rose and um, um, Lisa mm-hmm. had to say. I, I what was her their their story? To, that it's all going to be unraveling now, right? Yes, it is. Might take a few months, like three or four and a half. I would love to say sooner than that. And um, here comes the rain, finally. Oh, okay. Yes, we would. We no dates. I'll just say serendipity is afoot. Expect miracles and magic of the most wonderful kind. Jupiter is coming in. You know, Tanya Gabrielle has a humdinger about Jupiter today. Oh, my God. Who does? Tanya Gabrielle. Jupiter. Oh. Yeah. Well, that is... Zeus! I think it's retrograde, though. I'm not Mm. sure. Not sure about Jupiter. Or square or something. Well, we'll see, won't we? Yeah. Because Jupiter is... In every in time interpretation, we just got to know how to work with it. But it is uh, totally of the light, right? I mean, yeah. Well, what I mean is that uh, our story is our story, and we're still here. So this. It, it ain't over till the fat leg sings, right? Thanks, everyone. everyone. A short punctuation mark. The uh, 
Weather outside is dancing. Yeah, goddess is saying, listen up. So we're back on the air here. Call in all the fairies of technology to keep it together here. All right. I'm going to start. Yeah, because I got to, it's going to take me a while to get this going. Yeah, yeah. Decoding the Twisted New World Order Mindset is the title <laughs> of this article. And Ta-Nehisi did a, just a ducky job doing it. Yet, we're going to do this one now. So, at a glance, this is by Makia Freerman. The story, what is the mindset or psychology behind the dark force that really runs the world? <laughs> Uh, and then um, the implications. As we could understand the New World Order mindset better, we could perceive its weaknesses, which are many. Um, it's good to recognize these, yet above all, to see it in ourselves. The New World Order mindset is psychopathic paranoid, anxious, and afraid. This article decodes the twisted psychology so we can see its weaknesses and rise above it. It is crucial to be aware of the New World Order mindset. As we experience the intensification of its long-standing agenda, while each passing week seems to bring us more and more bizarre News in the unfolding of Operation Coronavirus, it is worthwhile taking a step back to look at the mentality which is orchestrating this schematic. A scamdemic, excuse me. <laughs> this New World Order mindset. Yes, it is a scam. Scamdemic. Except it's only being covered up of what they really did. They murdered four billion people. Yep. Or at least four and a half billion, and there's all kinds of groups around the world stopping them from doing it faster and more. And, uh, in other words, they haven't had any remorse. They don't even know what the word means. But we will just send them more love. As we want to live free, we have to understand, understand, overstand the nature of the force that is seeking to enslave us. This article is an attempt to <coughs> sketch out some of the hallmarks um, of the depraved and twisted psychology of the New World Order ruling class. By getting our head around how these people think, how they view those outside their cult, the public masses, how they view the world and what motivates them, hopefully we can begin to grasp what is needed to ensure we defeat them and maintain a world of peace, freedom, and abundance. Thanks as always to David Icke, who after 30 years of full-time research has distilled and communicated the essence of this mindset to the world in the hopes that we can understand 
and recognize this force. Number one, it can't stand surprises. <laughs> a hallmark of the New World Order mindset is a distinct intolerance for or even hatred of surprises. For many people, it is a joy and a relief to live spontaneously, at least for some of the time, without having to spell everything out. Not so for the New World Order. This mindset has to have absolutely every detail planned out. Not only that, it needs to ensure nothing can happen to disrupt its plans. Everything must be precisely calculated and tightly controlled. Ike explains it by way of analogy. With a sports match, as we want to influence the outcome, we control one team or side. As we want to totally control the outcome, we control both sides. This leaves nothing to chance. It does not take too much of a stretch of the imagination to see how this plays out in the United States politics with rigged elections going all the way back to at least the days of JFK, mm -hmm. whose well-connected father, Joseph Kennedy, bought votes for him. As not much further. The Irish Mafia, not to say they were all bad. Uh, what does that mean? It just means people were doing things and... The Irish Mafia has the wrong intention. Yeah. Yeah. That's like Donald Trump saying there's some good people and there's... Right. On both sides. Uh-huh. No. 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 Uh, the recent fiasco where Biden got in was shockingly undeniable and blatant riggery. Yet Biden still sits in, or rather hides in, the basement of the White House. <laughs> the New World Order doesn't hope a particular candidate gets elected. They make it happen every time. Yes, and we went over this, but we'll just put it in here right now because somebody didn't hear it. Joe Biden stole the stole the nomination from, from Bernie. Bernie. Bernie won every single precinct. He should be the president right now. And he should have been the president last time. Four or five years ago. Oh, Lord. Okay, so in short, the New World Order mindset is that of a control freak. And what is under the psychology of a control freak, a lack of comfortability with the unknown and with not being in control. In other words, fear. Number two, the PC woke movement and virtue, virtue signaling. The New World Order mindset being very far from a heart-based consciousness clearly lacks kindness, compassion, and empathy. I just got to repeat, Joe Biden's not alive. That's a clone. He's been dead in the real force 
for at least about a year. Maybe a more accurate thing is a Borg drone. In other words, he's controlled. Yes. Programmed. Maybe by the Borg Queen. <laughs> and the thing is, we make sure people understand there is no country. Never was. Sarah brings all of these things back into the reality check of what we were hoping we've been. Uh, so Joe Biden and 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 Vice President um, Kamala Harris Kamala Harris were inaugurated into the corporation, and then you got the thirteen families in the Vatican telling all that stuff what to do, when to do it. And they fight too. <laughs> They're always fighting. Uh, okay. So, however, since it is okay, so since it is okay, let's see. No, oh, excuse me. Um, the new world order mindset again. I'm going to read this. Is is far from a heart based consciousness. Clearly lacks kindness, compassion, and empathy in a world where such a distinct lack of empathy could render it ostracized, the New World Order mindset has to make up for that by pretending to care. However, since it, since it is all a ruse, it, can, it has to go to great lengths to impress others and visibly demonstrate its fake kindness. This is the reason for the Hollywood-style obsession with superficialities and appearances. It is all about image, baby. This <clears throat> is also the foundation for the recent explosion in the PC politically correct woke movement, which never misses an opportunity to just demonstrate just how kind it is through its constant virtue signaling. People who are truly kind don't need to boast how kind they are. People who are truly secure don't need to show off to hide their insecurity. People who truly see others as humans, all equal, looking at their character, not their skin color, do not need to go around proclaiming how wonderfully anti-racist they are. Number three, military-style perception management. More spin than a washing machine. <laughs> <laughs> to go further with this point, the New World Order mindset, not mindset doesn't just obsess over image to virtue signal. It's woke credentials to cover up for its lack of heart. It also obsesses over image to control mass belief, opinion, and perception. Its military-style perception management, that's what it's called, perception management, military-style. This is reflected in what some of its adherents have said. Take Arch New World Order insider and war criminal Henry Kissinger, for example, mm. who once stated that, quote, it is not a matter of what is true that counts, 
rather a matter of what is perceived to be true. Unquote. In this case, what is driving the obsession over image is also a raw lust for control and a lack of tolerance for widespread distribution of power and decentralized decision-making. It is about entrainment, the bringing of other mindsets down to its level and frequency so that it can control them. This leads to the New World Order mindset to spin the truth in every topic under the sun, to make itself look better, to mold people's perceptions to further its own objectives. Number four, always right, never wrong. Ever met a person who always has to be right, no matter what? What about a person who will argue, defend, and find loopholes in every situation because they are deadly afraid of being wrong? Either way, such people are characterized by a lack of responsibility and a lack of being willing to take the blame as they deserve it. Former CIA Director and Secretary of State under Trump, Zionist Mike Pompeo, yep. proudly proclaimed that in his days at the CIA, quote, We lied! We cheated! We stole! Unquote. The New World Order mindset will do whatever it takes to advance its agenda, even as it has to lie Cheat, steal, injure, and kill. Number five. It cannot do empathy. No, that's extinct from them. Continuing on from point two, the New World Order mindset is devoid of compassion, so it doesn't quite know how to do it. It doesn't pull off empathy very well. An instructional example are the recent absurd CIA woke ads where the CIA is desperately trying to convince us that they are something they are not. Think about it. This is an agency that has consistently instigated. The CIA has been in the news for being criminals Another layer of criminality going as other criminals. Oh, dear. Secret Service, same thing. Secret Service arranged three tries to kill JFK Sr. And they killed a clone of JFK Sr. And they didn't know it. No. And JFK Sr. will be 104 years old. Or he just did turn 104 years old. When is his birthday again, Rama? I think in... April or May, just yeah. had it. Or maybe it's coming up. Can you look it up again? That would be good yeah. to know, because, yeah, his birthday either just came around. We should or... play him, too. Who? Dr. Greer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. We could do that right after this. Okay. 
yeah, we're okay. Let me just do this here. Um, where was I? Um, think about it. This is an agency that has consistently instigated over the course of seven plus decades some of the most evil and monstrous acts done by humans on this planet, including overthrowing foreign governments, assassinating foreign and domestic leaders. And I'm going to just repeat it was a clone of JFK they killed. JFK, Jack will be back. Yes. The real Jack. Selling them into the United States on the black market. Controlling the media by paying off journalists via Operation Mockingbird. See number three on perception management. And running mind control experiments on its own citizens, MK Ultra. Now, we are suddenly supposed to believe the CIA has grown a conscience. (laughs) (laughs) And deeply, truly cares about minorities racial issues, gender equality. It is beyond ridiculous. Now playing about that one. Her husband's dead. Correct. That's and the all I got And the CIA did it. Yep. Because he told the truth. There was no yellow cake delivered from uh, from No yellow cake in Niger. Niger. That was no yellow cake was sent to Saddam Hussein. No, and Saddam Hussein is still in a brig. Yes, the real Saddam Hussein is not dead. No. He's sitting in a brig on a starship, just like uh, Hitler is, yeah. alive and well and living. And this story goes right into the X-Files. And beyond. It is beyond ridiculous. However... The good thing about it all is that the New World Order mindset doesn't see how transparent its woke attempts are. Number six, it projects a false sense of omnipotence. The New World Order mindset is very much like the Borg from Star Trek. One of their key mantras was, Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. (laughs) This is the message the mindset keeps projecting. It desperately wants us to believe its nefarious agenda of control. It was absolutely ridiculous watching Netanyahu trying to convince people up there on his podium over there. Ah, I heard on a... I think some kind of an interview here to this morning, and I heard it again last night on the journal or something, that there is a group of Hamas that was personally hired by Israel to do all of this. Yeah. Double trouble. Yeah, it's dirty deeds done dirt cheap. Bought and paid for by United States people's tax dollars, everybody, and not almost $4 billion, $8 billion every year. And probably a whole bunch more that we don't get to hear about. Uh, I've said, let's see, where was I? Uh, yeah, resistance. This, this 
resistance is, fuel, is futile message. Uh, this is the message the mindset keeps projecting. It desperately wants us to believe its nefarious agenda of control is a fall, fait complete, a foregone conclusion, as it's truly not. Think about it. A truly omnipotent force does not need to convince you that it is omnipotent and that you cannot resist. <laughs> its strength, it's not funny really, honey. Its strength no, it's not. would become apparent and there would be no need for attempts at persuasion. Only a force that is secretly weak yet is trying to project its an, an image of strength would resort to this kind of psychological messaging. I have said it before, and I will say it again many times. The New World Order is not set in stone. No. Our very act of reading these words and taking this message to heart is an empowered way. It is stopping the New World Order nightmare from becoming a reality. The world is waking up, and this process cannot be stopped. And I say no turning back. Number seven, censorship and cancel culture. It cannot stand shades of gray or opposing views. Another clue that the New World Order mindset is rigid as well as inherently insecure and weak, is that it cannot, it cannot stand shades of gray or opposing views. It gets very caught up in dogmatic black and white thinking. Remember what the mentally challenged U.S. President George W. Bush said after the 9-11 false flag operation. Quote, You're either with, with us or you're with the terrorists. Unquote. The explosion of censorship and cancel culture over the last few years is indicative of a vast insecurity. Censorship Censorship is a tacit admission by the censors that their arguments, their theories, their beliefs are very weak because they cannot hold their own in the battlefield of open debate where ideas are exchanged freely and analyzed critically. Number eight, it cannot tolerate humor. <laughs> Stop laughing. No jokes allowed. The New World Order mindset takes itself very seriously. So seriously, in fact, that it cannot tolerate humor. John Lennon instinctively realized this truth as he, as he advised people to just laugh at the system. Quote, as it gets down to having to use violence, then we are playing the system's game. The establishment will irritate us, pull our our beard, 
flick our face to make us fight because once they've got us violent, then they know how to handle us. The only thing they don't know how to handle is nonviolence and humor. Yes, we can. You know, Barack Obama was a funny guy. Still is. Yep. <laughs> okay, the PC movement has been killing comedy. Yet those true comedians out there will realize that it's their job to communicate the hard truths that people would prefer not to hear or confront under the guise of humor. Thanks, George Carlin. They got rid of him too, everybody. God rest his soul. Thanks, George Carlin. You are a legend. Laughing at the absurdity of the official narrative, whether it is Operation Coronavirus or any other false flag kind of operation, is a great way both to communicate truth and diffuse the sweat and tension that comes with being a truth seeker and freedom fighter. Number nine. It looks at the rest of humanity as cattle. Oh boy. An empathetic mindset. Consider the feelings and needs of those around it. Considers the feelings and needs of those around it. The psychopathic New World Order mindset looks at people around it as things to be exploited or used for its own gain. Former CIA Director Alan Dulles, mastermind of the JFK assassination, constantly gauged whether people around him were useful or not. Even those who were fond of him. The phrase quotes, quote unquote, oh, this famous one, useless eaters. To describe the masses of humanity is attributed to Henry Kissinger. Time after time, New World Order insiders have expressed their contempt and disgust for the rest of humanity. This is the mindset talking. Number 10. It's not just about the money. Some people... Studying the worldwide conspiracy. Believe it's all about the money. It is not. No. Yes. On many levels, it is about the money. Because the New World Order mindset uses the manipulation of money to siphon off wealth from society via its bloodline banking families. However, it is not just about money. Money's a tool of control. The New World Order agenda is about long-term power and control. Money is a means to an end. This agenda is millennia old, intergenerational, 
and involves interdimensional beings, all of which is obviously well beyond the scope of this article. Money is just a tool. It's just a tool to this mindset. Number 11. It is always anxious and always afraid. There's a book up there and it's on the front. It's got the eye of Horus there and it says, don't trust anyone in the house of the Dark Lords. <laughs> the New World Order mindset is paranoid, anxious, and afraid. This explains the constant psychological projections it spews out, such as calling genuine truth seekers, quote, paranoid conspiracy theorists, unquote merely for the questioning things and thinking critically. It is paranoid that it will be exposed and uncovered at any moment. It's anxious, always on edge, always pushing its agenda, worried things may not work. The New World Order mindset promotes, promotes so much fear because it feels so much fear. It is fear, all in heavy black letters. Personified, yes. For those wanting a deeper understanding of this, please check out my articles at Wetiko, W-E-T-I-K-O, and the Archons, A-R-C-H-O-N-S. Beneath all this analysis, it is fear. The New World Order mindset is deathly afraid of a united, awakened humanity rising up in a non-violent, non-compliant way to step into its true divine power. Unfortunately, for the New World Order mindset, that is our birthright and nothing can stop it. It is also worth highlighting the genuine psychopathy beyond this mindset. This quote is from an article behind a manufactured crisis. The COVID-19 and psychopathy connection. Quote, based on the recurring behavior of this powerful, of these powerful families and individuals, Throughout history and today, we can observe what psychologists and psychiatrists call observable traits associated with a condition called clinical primary psychopathy. This is a genetic congenital condition characterized by the inability to, to feel the otherwise normal human emotions of empathy, guilt, and remorse. Innately, devoid of these restraints, needless war, terrorist events, famine, genocide, assassinations, and mind control and manipulation become everyday business practices. Number 12. 
It is cut off from spirit, source, God, infinite consciousness. Call it what we like. Spirit, source, God, infinite consciousness, etc. Whatever our notion is of what we come from, what we return into, and what we are. The New World Order mindset is cut off from its connection with the infinite. It is so focused on the five-sense world of particles and gross materialism that it has no appreciation for an expanded awareness. To put it another way, the ruling class who is possessed by this mindset are so cut off from God they have to play God. And thus, we get transhumanism. Lovely turn. The desire to be immortal, even though we already are. This is transhumanistic desire. Is This tra- transhumanistic desire is based on a denial and rejection of our souls. And a fear of death. Thus, so much of this mindset comes back to fear. Operation Coronavirus is a rush to the finish line. Consider this point. The usual modus operandi of the New World Order is to use the frog in a boiling pot approach to slowly introduce and force its agenda upon people, step by step, so that they don't notice. However, since the launch of Operation Coronavirus, the New World Order has changed its tactics. What is unfolding now appears to be more a mad rush to the finish line before it gets overtaken and loses the race. As I have outlined above, the New World Order mindset is always afraid of getting caught in a lie and getting found out. Uh, Where was I? There seems to be a scramble underway to get as many people as possible vaccinated with the highly magnetic COVID non-vaccine. While the official narrative still holds some sway over people's minds. However, with a growing awareness that this entire COVID operation is a giant scamdemic, replete with fake case counts, fake PCR tests, fake death counts, fake virus, the truth has spread far and wide. It is turning into a race against time. Will the New World Order infuse their nanobots into humanity and fibers before humanity sufficiently awakens? Solutions to disrupt the New World Order mindset. So, what are the solutions? 
Well, give the New World Order what it can't stand and doesn't like. I just got to say something. This is a side note, but I was just remembering this. This is a newscast. Some of those $1,400 checks are, you know, people got, yeah. Some people got them in Japan and somewhere over there in Asia. Whole bunches of people in Vietnam got them. And they had to send them all back. This is, what do you call that? No, dysfunctionality as an art form. Nothing's quite as it seems, everybody. Holy cashes. Okay, so anyway. Consider this point. Again, the usual modus operandi of the New World Order is to use the frog in a boiling pot approach to slowly introduce and force its agenda upon people step by step so that they don't notice. However, since the launch of Operation Coronavirus, the New World Order has changed its tactics. What is unfolding now appears to be more a mad rush to the finish line before it gets overtaken and loses the race. As I have outlined above, the New World Order mindset is always afraid of getting caught in a lie. Well, Donald Trump forgot that, threw that one out the window the day he walked into that office. I don't think he said one thing that was true. And getting found out. He just lied about that, too. (laughs) There seems to be a scramble underway to get as many people as possible vaccinated with the highly magnetic COVID-19 vaccine while while the official narrative still holds some sway over people's minds. However, with a growing awareness that this entire COVID op is a giant scamdemic, replete with fake case counts, fake PCR tests, fake death counts, and a fake virus, the truth has spread far and wide. It is turning into a race against time. Will the New World Order infuse their nanobots into humanity and fibers before humanity sufficiently awakens. All that being said, they absolutely did kill four and a half billion people, but that's a different thing. That they've been using all kinds of satanic rituals and sound frequencies and other things to kill and target those they want dead. Solutions to disrupt the New World Order mindset. So, what are the solutions? Well, give the New World Order what it cannot stand and doesn't like. It hates surprises, so give it surprises. It hates humor, so laugh at it. It thinks it's omnipotent, so prod its weaknesses. It loves to censor, so refuse to self-censor. Censor. It thrives on violence, so nonviolently resist. It needs your energy, obedience, and compliance, so refuse to comply. Finally, do the inner work to weed out any aspect of the New World Order mindset within ourselves. This is the hardest part of all of this. Yet each and every one of us must do this work. No one else can do it for us. 
consider honestly how much of this mindset is within us. Then work to identify it, integrate it, transform it. As Carl Jung said, quote, one who looks outside dreams. One who looks inside awakens. Being aware of every detail of the new world order is good. And being aware of solutions is good. Yet we must transform ourselves within to change this world outside. And that's the word. Again, this is by, come and do, let's do the next thing, Rama. Makia Freeman is the editor of Alternative Media, independent news site, The Freedom Articles, author of the book Cancer, The Lies, The Truth, and The Solutions. Rama! Yeah, let's do the next thing. And senior researcher of toolsforfreedom.com. Toolsforfreedom.com. Makia is on Steemit, S-T as in, S as in Sam, T as in Tom, E-E, M as in Mary, I-T, Steemit and L-B-R-Y. Is that abbreviation for library? I don't know. L-B-R-Y. All capital letters. So there we go. And this came from https colon forward slash forward slash thefreedomarticles.com slash and then a hyphen between each word. New World Order Mindset Decoding Twisted New World Order Psychology Psychopathy. That's the end https colon forward slash forward the freedom articles dot com greetings please send the violet flame in the electrons to keep the electricity going folks well yeah and uh, that was a very polite blackout I got to finish everything I was going to say in that section that was nice yeah it was like uh, right to the point <laughs> It's going to take a while for the other computer to kind of load for a moment. Yeah, and uh, anybody that wants to call in and chat or anything, I mean, I can read something. Wild energies. Yeah, we it's would like the to. Sun. We would like to play Cryon too. It's only thirty-three minutes, but I'm sure he will top it all off. Yeah, it's time. There's another article out here that's telling us what time it is, too. It's called Blowing Up the Billionaire's Con That's Shattering America. As this nation recovers from a deadly pandemic, or fake one. <laughs> yeah, they're actually saying that the uh, infection rate in the United States is going down, and I don't know what to do with that, you know. Yeah, but see, don't... Everything's a lie. Yeah. They're killing who they want to kill behind the scenes, and they're using that as a cover. Right. Yeah. Where's your passport? And, I mean, <laughs> Amy said 10 months ago or longer that, you know, 
it was 10 times the count and you might as well walk, multiply by 100 times the count because that's the real way they got everybody did. Batum, where are your papers? Right. So as this nation recovers from a fake pandemic and a right-wing hate and right-wing hate groups that are trying to provoke a second civil war, let's remember how this all came about. And all for a few extra pieces of gold. As we are struggling to recover from Trump's half million unnecessary COVID deaths here in America, there's at least 65 million people about seven, eight months ago that we were told were already dead in the United States. America is Canada too, but we're talking about just the United States that that number. Fighting to get a clear picture of how extensive the sedition was among Republicans in Congress. Yeah, they said the word sedition. Let's make it perfectly clear, right? Insurrection, sedition, treason. Insurrection, sedition, treason, yes. Where is V? Huh? V. Oh, V for vendetta. Yeah. We're not going to do the same violence that they want us to do back. Yeah, no, no. So, again, uh, to get a clear picture of how extensive the sedition was among Republicans in Congress around January 6th and trying to pass legislation to ensure clean and safe elections and put the con- country back into shape, dark money, Foreign oligarchs and right-wing media groups are hard at work tearing this nation apart. And they are having considerable success. About 75% of Americans trusted the federal government to do what is right, as polled during most of the last years of the Eisenhower 1950s administration and early years of Lyndon Baines Johnson's 1960s presidency. In 2019, as the Pew Research Center released its most recent poll of public trust in the government, only 17% of Americans trusted their government. It's so bad that throughout 2020, Armed protesters showed up nationwide to protest the tyranny of having to wear masks during a pandemic and then stormed the Capitol in an attempt to overturn the election. All cheered on by the then President of the United States and multiple right-wing media outlets. This is no accident. It's the result of a five-decades-long campaign by some of America's richest people to tear apart the governing fabric of our nation, formally kicked off by their man, Ronnie Reagan, proudly proclaiming at his January 20th, 1981 inauguration that, quote, Government's not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Put ourselves in the place of the heirs 
to a multi-million dollar fossil fuel empire. A situation akin to heroic brother and sister who inherited a railroad from their dad in Ayn Rand's novel Atlas Shrugged. Point number one, as you don't have to pay to dispose of cancer-causing byproducts from our refineries, yet we can simply vent them into the air and we make more money. Point number two, as we can cut wages and threaten employees because they don't have a have a union, we might more we make more money. Point three, <coughs> as we can run a pipeline across sacred Native American land <coughs> atop a major national aquifer with minimal safety oversight. We can make more money as we can hide our money from the IRS because the agency has had its budget slashed so badly that it can no longer do expensive audits of morbidity, morbidly rich people. We can keep more of the money we've made. Corruptly, <laughs> I might add. And the last point as we can get the government to cut social programs and public education, thus lowering our taxes, we can keep more money of the money we've made. Corruptly, we might add. So, how do we pull this all off? Hmm. As every one of these things hurts average Americans. Are you ready? Almost. Almost ready. Oh, good. Easy. Just embark on a 50-year-long campaign through think tanks, right-wing media, massive PR efforts to convince average Americans that government is the cause of not, cause of, not the solution to their problems. Convince working class Americans that gutting government is a good thing that will ultimately help them in some mystical, magical way through the incredible, invisible hand of the marketplace. Lewis Powell, a lawyer for Big Tobacco, launched the movement to to do just this with his infamous memo in 1971. And billionaires have funded and promoted politicians who jump on board. The quote, government is evil bandwagon ever since. And it's largely worked as the trust in government statistics compiled by the Pew Research Center since 1958 are accurate. Years ago, I was up late one night watching, as I recall Bloomberg News on a hotel TV. The American host was interviewing a very wealthy German businessman at a conference in Singapore. Amidst questions about the business climate and the conference, the host asked the German businessman what tax rate was he suffering under in his home country. As I recall, the businessman said a bit over 60% when everything is included. Do you want me to stop? Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, let's, we know the rest of this story. Let's, let's do this. What are you doing, Rama? Oh, Okay. This is Dr. Greer. 
that he came out with a half-hour message in the last few days talking about the big story they kind of want to play with to scare the heaven out of everyone, and let's just say Astar is here. Like St. Germain said last night, you know, Lord Michael's here, Lord Maitreya, all the folks. Here we go. Wait, before you press the button. The other thing I wanted to say, some people were wondering why we played that hour and a half long piece last night. And we didn't say the words that the gentleman was saying to the gentleman that was listening. What we were noticing is he was speaking Sanskrit. Yeah. And that's a gentleman that was listening who was working by going to India and pursuing, you know, knowledge of who he is. He studied the Sanskrit. He could understand him. And that was the point because he was, you know, summing it up in his own few short words, what that gentleman had said in Sanskrit right before that. And this wasn't about, you know, statistics. It was about the vibration of the heart that was in that whole piece. And I hope that you can gain that from there. And Rama will send somebody, Benny Penny, the whole thing, huh? And then people can choose to listen again if yeah. they want. Okay, let's do this. Dr. Greer, you're on. Okay, let me... Okay. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Dr. Stephen Greer. I'm joining you from my home out in the Blue Ridge Mountains outside Charlottesville, Virginia, near the University of Virginia. And this is an update, sort of urgent. Uh, many of you may have seen recently that the um, Disclosure Project uh, pro bono attorney, uh, Daniel Sheehan, who did the Pentagon Papers and Ron Contra, uh, the Silkwood case and many others, is now working with Luis Elizondo. And so a lot of people are very confused on what's going on since, of course, everyone on this call probably knows Luis Elizondo is a professional disinformation agent putting out false intelligence about the UFO matter in through the mainstream media. The reason Danny is, uh, Mr. Sheehan is doing this, um, we've had a long discussion about it going back two or three weeks, is that Luis Elizondo approached him to help him with his legal case because the Pentagon was about to pull his security clearances. And it wasn't because he was doing things with TTSA that they wanted him to do that. It was because he had resigned from TTSA, fallen out with the people that were the hardliners wanting him to present that there was an alien threat or a threat to the national security. And he has told uh, two people on my team, including attorney Daniel Sheehan, that he knows, and the other people like Chris Mellon know, that there is no such thing as an alien threat, that there is not a threat to the national security, but that's the only way they can get this in front of the American people to get more uh, overt funding for the Space Force and eventually a conflict with uh, these extraterrestrial civilizations. He has flat out said he knows that everything he's been saying about this being a threat is untrue. 
Now, Daniel Sheehan has also shared, and this is even more explosive, that Luis Elizondo has informed him that he, in fact, has been in a facility where an actual extraterrestrial vehicle was stored. Now, why is that important? Because he's all over the news, 60 Minutes, every mainstream news channel, along with his other cohorts in the cover-up, uh, such as Leslie Keene, Nick Pope, uh, Chris Mellon, and others, saying that we don't know what these are. Now, interestingly, he absolutely knows that some of these craft are, in fact, of extraterrestrial origin. He must also then know that some of them are ours. For example, the recent uh, Jeremy Corbell interview on Fox News where they were showing these triangles of swarming, menacing our Navy ships, every one of those pyramid triangular-shaped objects with flashing light on them are from either Northrop Grumman or Boeing or the Lockheed, most likely Northrop Grumman. Those are man-made UFOs. They're anti-gravity vehicles. Everyone in the aerospace industry at any level of clearance knows this. So the, this is a big problem. So I told Mr. Sheehan, I said, look, you have to be very careful. If you're going to work with this gentleman, you have to understand that uh, he is a master of disinformation. I am quoting from a senior CIA official who wrote me about this when they first emerged after Unacknowledged came out in 2017. And, of course, the, Daniel Sheehan knows this. He told me point blank, yes, we know this. The main reason he's working with them is to represent him and to get him to come clean. So it's a very interesting strategy. What uh, Daniel Sheehan is trying to do is to get Luis Elizondo and then perhaps after him some of the others to actually admit that they know that there is not a threat from the UFOs and that they have been coerced into doing so. Recently on the Internet, uh, on a YouTube interview that's now been taken down, Daniel Sheehan admitted that there was an invested, uh, inspector general of the Pentagon had been pulled in to look into complaints from Luis Elizondo at the insistence of Daniel Sheehan about him being uh, threatened with loss of his security clearance because not because he was disclosing classified material, but because he went off the leash uh, and was not wanting to continue to say the falsehood that these were an alien threat. I think in large part because Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, which exposes that as an absolute bold-faced lie, has now been seen by millions and millions of people, and it's one of the top trending documentaries on Amazon Prime and elsewhere. So what is happening here, just so people get clear, is it is not that Daniel Sheehan has defected to the dark side or anything like that. He's trying to encourage Luis Elizondo, and I think by extension some of these others, to in fact defect from the disinformation and lies that they have been saying in the mainstream media up on Capitol Hill uh, and in other places about this subject. The two very big lies that they're telling, as well as their acolytes, people like Leslie Keene, who had worked with me originally on the Disclosure Project. By the way, she subsequently raided our pool of disclosure witnesses after she got on the inside, and along with some other people, put those uh, nuclear military site witnesses, people who had been at some nuclear silos and in other places together, and spun the story that the aliens, or whatever these UFOs are, 
were degrading our nuclear arsenal readiness, and therefore were they national security concern and threat. Also a lie, because every one of those men told me that they felt that the ETs were trying to say, please do not blow up this beautiful planet, but if you go so far as to launch thousands of these, we can basically disable them. So yeah. she is also someone who has pivoted towards getting the money and the attention and the mainstream coverage by basically telling a lie uh, that, A, we don't know what these are, that, B, it's a national security concern, and, C, gee, recently she said in an interview, Leslie Keene said, I think it was on Sunday morning, CBS, wow, maybe they're from Russia or China. Well, of course, she knows that's not true. She sat there with people like uh, Mark McCandless with the schematics of the main man-made UFOs, with people who had retrieved the actual ET craft and the bodies. She knows what the truth is about this, and yet she continues to go out into the public and tell the same two large lies. One, that these are some kind of national security threat or concern, and number two, that we do not know what they are or where they're from. Now, I think anyone who would do a cursory review of what we released in the book Unacknowledged and the documentary Unacknowledged, as well as Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, will see that we have proven that these are of two types. Suppose the head of the Lockheed Skunk Works, Ben Rich, wrote in answer to a friend who, who, who asked him, are these extraterrestrial or man-made? He said, point blank, in writing, signed by him on the Lockheed Skunk Works stationary letterhead, that they are both. They are both man-made and extraterrestrial. Now, this is, of course, one of the most preeminent aerospace figures of the 20th century. And uh, this is not a, a contested item. It's in his penmanship and signed by him back to a friend that we required. We have enormous amounts of information like that. So these people that you see on 60 Minutes, that you see on Fox News and CNN and all the media, this is the ramping up of the false disclosure that we warned about in 1999 when we wrote the paper, When the Disclosure Serves Secrets. Why? Because they want people to now know that there are UFOs, but they want to put this big lie out there that they are a national security threat and concern, is what Nick Pope and others keep saying. By the way, Nick Pope has admitted to two people on my team that he has been paid large sums of money to say these very scripted things in the mainstream media so that he has been able to buy some really pricey real estate in Soho and London and elsewhere. One of my concerns about this is that while I normally do not engage in sort of gossip, is that now that these people are miseducating deliberately the American people and the world. I just wanted to say Nick Pope is, you know, kind of connected with ancient aliens and stuff. And he supports Trump and QAnon and the whole fiasco that the election was stolen and he doesn't tell the truth. Uh, so doesn't, doesn't he say the same thing? Yeah, essentially. But Nick Pope is kind of a strange character. I'll say that much. What station is he with? He used to be a defense minister for Britain. Oh, and he is so what's he doing now lecturing around the planet and kind of connected oh. with ancient aliens and 
like Dr. Greer said. He's connected with H and aliens, and he's not telling the truth on there either. David Wilcox is on there, and he's not telling the truth. No, he's not. And I'll leave it there. Okay, here we go. Hold on this. It is a very big concern. They have stepped into another level of deception. Um, it's one thing if you're at a UFO conference in front of a thousand people. It's another thing if there are millions and millions of people hearing this live. Now, all these people, from Chris Mellon to Louise Elizondo to Leslie King to Nick Pope and others, know for a fact just what I just said, that there are two types of UFOs seen. Man-made ones, that is the bigger secret, by the way. The ET issue is not as big a secret as the man-made ones, for a reason I'll get into in a moment. And that this is not a national security threat. All the images that you have seen in the mainstream news of the tic-tac, of these pyramids and triangles, those are ours, and they were filmed and known at some point they would release it to open the door to this subject, but there's more coming. You saw on the History Channel where the Italian helicopter that crash-landed after it had some malfunction, that whole event, we know from Paula Harris, who was there and met with the man who's now the admiral who is on that show, said that those were our human classified electromagnetic weapons uh, that they were attempting to target UFO ET craft that were in the area at the time. She knows this for a fact and documented it. So almost everything you're seeing that's going out through the mainstream media right now is uh, not only a lie but a damn lie, which is exactly what Werner von Braun warned about would eventually happen uh, when he told Carol Rosen that in uh, 1974, and of course, which I learned about in the early 90s and have been warning people about since. Unfortunately, we're going to live through this period of this false launch of information. The only way we're going to correct it is for all of you to share this YouTube video with everyone. I don't care if you rip it off the site and post it elsewhere. Do it. Because unfortunately, we're at a point now where there is a massive information campaign that is false. And the reason they want people to think all of these are things that we don't know and can't figure out how they fly is so that eventually they can put out more scary information, perhaps next month with the director of national intelligence report, showing even more gruesome events that have happened that show, in fact, that these are a threat to the national security. Why? Of course, that with the fascist military industrial and industrialist complex want people to be afraid of something. So this is the next big thing. It's much bigger than 9-11. It's much bigger than COVID. Um, we've been warning about it for some time. Unfortunately, we're trying to see if some people can get pulled off the precipice, including Luis Elizondo. That is why Daniel Sheen is working with him. Now, I've made it very clear that Daniel Sheehan has told me he would do this, that if he cannot get Luis Elizondo to speak the truth and come clean on this, that he would drop him as a client. He will drop him as a client. We we will hold him to this. This is something he must do. But in the meanwhile, we should give him some time to see if he can repair the situation by being an attorney representing the sort of the tip of the spear of disinformation going out to the media, which is, of course, Luis Elizondo, who was sent on this mission. 
my understanding is, you know, people are complex. I think both Chris Mellon and Luis Elizondo re, re, you know, regret what they've done. Um, we also know that there are other people who are beginning to come forward with information, um, which sounds unbelievable, such as Jacques Vallée, uh, disclosing that in the 1980s, he saw a document describing CIA-run alien host abductions in Brazil and Argentina. We are going to be releasing this soon, uh, this information. Uh, there are a number of things that need to come out, and I'm making a, an appeal right now. Anyone who has, has information or has been on a tactical team engaging in these false flag operations from the 1950s until now need to come forward and expose this as a hoax. The reason for that is that if we don't expose the trickery and the hoax, the thing that the American public and the world are going to be left with is this terrifying perspective of there being a threat from outer space, which will justify not only the expansion of weapons into space, but also the space force and this alien threat narrative that they've been working on for 70 years. Remember, Wesley Clark, four-star general uh, Wesley Clark, as well as Werner Von Braun and, and Carol Rosen have stated that they have seen documents that were very top secret that were listing all the nations that we would get into wars with uh, and that the big crescendo, the final card to be played, as Werner Von Braun uh, stated, would be the alien threat card. We are there now in 2021, May of this year. Um, by next month, who knows where this will have gone. We need to move very forward aggressively to get the truth out. So we are working so that in the next month, the Cosmic Hoax, this next documentary that all of you have helped fund, and I'm, I'm thanking you very much for that. We are already now in post-production on that, and I've seen a rough cut the first 45 minutes. It's amazing. It's going to blow people's minds. It's going to be case closed. Yippee. That film is not going to be proprietary. Every single one of you need to find influencers, celebrities, networks of people to take that film and post it on every site on the planet the instant. I mean, the day it's released. Um, we are moving very fast with this. Now, the campaign for the fundraising of that, we reached our goal, but if we receive more contributions, we'll be able to do more of a marketing campaign and a public awareness campaign because there's nobody funding that. We don't have the History Channel or Netflix or some big distributor putting one Indian head nickel into getting the word out. That's all up to us. So anyone who can help us with that, we are very much appreciative of your contribution, whether it's $1 or $50,000. Um, the other point I want to make is that okay. this report coming out from the director of national intelligence, uh, I have variably heard that it will be out June 1st. That has been repeated to me. That's early. Uh, it's due by June 25th, but I've heard other rumblings uh, from Senator Marco Rubio and others that it may be delayed because the director of national intelligence has been stonewalled by some of the three-letter agencies uh, in getting to the bottom of it and providing a comprehensive report. So, it's a big question mark whether we're going to be dealing with that report, uh, which most likely will be half-truths, disinformation, spin, falsehoods, and confusion uh, on June 1st or later in the summer. Uh, we need to be standing by and ready to move into action very quickly uh, because, look, 
the entire mainstream media, the intelligence community, and the military-industrial complex is a raid against the truth. Full stop. End of discussion. And so we, the people, are going to have to stand up and say, oh, wait a minute. Uh, this is not the truth. Here's what the actual truth is. We know that many of these are man-made. We know they have been done and used in false flag operations. And we also know that some are extraterrestrial, but they are not hostile. So I think that this is really what I said in 1992-93 would become a, sort of a struggle for the minds and hearts of humanity, the future of our planet, and the future of our place in the cosmos. And it's a choice. We're at a, a fork in the road as a, as a civilization. We're either going to choose to go forward in peace on this planet and in space, or we will be facing quite literally an extinction-level event if we stay on this path of violent engagement and the expansion of the war machine in space and the placement yeah. of weapons in space, etc. As it is, there are already very destructive weapons on satellites and on the ground and on aircraft that target extraterrestrial vehicles when they come into 3D out of trans-dimensional space-time. And we also have events happening where these very advanced aircraft made by the Lockheed Skunk Works and other places uh, are, in fact, being used in false flag operations. Many of you have asked me, when will the false flag event happen? You don't get it. It already has. It's been happening since the 50s. So many of the UFO events that have been portrayed as alien or not, abductions, mutilations, some of the crash landings, like the Cash Landrum case, where those people were injured with radioactive waste being spewed on them, those were all man-made accidents. But they were portrayed as unknown UFO incidents, and the unknown translates into public awareness immediately to alien. So I think we have to be very clear uh, that this is a disinformation campaign that has gone from, let's say, the fringes of uh, alternative media and the UFO subculture now straight into the mainstream media and coming straight out of the U.S. government at the level of the Director of National Intelligence and the Congress. Now, one thing I know is true is that whatever is in this report, even if you had the most sincere person at the top, at the uh, Director of National Intelligence level, you must not assume that he has been given access to the unacknowledged special access projects. Why do I say that? As the person, the only person in the UFO world that can say he has done this, as I am the person who has briefed a sitting CIA director, a sitting head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, the head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Tom Wilson, whose meeting for which has been confirmed through the uh, Dr. Davis leak uh, that came out from the Edgar Mitchell archive. We have to understand uh, that in each of those cases, those men were not allowed to be briefed on these unacknowledged special access projects, nor have most of the presidents and nor have most senators. What does this mean? It means that whatever the director of national intelligence may have access to will have been pulled out of this black world and put on a platter and cherry-picked, much like Dick Cheney and his minions cherry-picked the intelligence that got us into the debacle known as the Iraq War. So 
And by the way, uh, Secretary of State and former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Colin Powell, his chief of staff admitted on camera that they were deceived with hoax and false information from the intelligence operation out of the West Wing run by Dick Cheney after 9-11 that got us into that disastrous war, and we're still in that debacle. So one of the things you have to understand is that someone like the Director of National Intelligence, those people come and go every few years, we cannot assume and should not assume that he has been read into or briefed into these unacknowledged special access projects where he would be able to discern what is true, what is false, what is fact, what is fiction. Now, that's even more true for the President of the United States, who has a lot of things on his plate, or a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee. So none of these people are specialists in this area. They're extremely vulnerable to the people who are the foxes guarding the hidden house. And therefore, we can't ascribe uh, a, a terrible motive necessarily to whoever creates this report because they simply may be reporting as required by law in the, this bill that was passed in December what they have been spoon-fed because the big mistake everyone makes is they think, wow, you're the director of national intelligence, you're the president, you're the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency or the CIA. There's this assumption that you have an all-access pass. That is absolutely not true, and I can prove in a court of law that it's not true. So for that reason, we have to be uh, careful in how we evaluate this. And I think that uh, it, now this is different from people like Luis Elizondo, who has now admitted to the Disclosure Project lawyer, Daniel Sheehan, that he was not telling the public the truth, that there was a threat from the uh, aliens or the UFOs. Uh, now, if you were to say there's a threat to the national security from the unacknowledged special access projects that have these very advanced technologies, that would be true. That's not what he's saying. So he needs to correct his statement uh, or we will continue to expose this lie. That's the same thing for Leslie Keene, same thing for Jeremy Corbell, same thing for Nick Pope, same thing for Chris Mellon. So they either need to... Uh, get off the stage and not make false statements, know what they're talking about, and certainly they need to stop repeating these lies to the American public and to the Congress uh, because this is a very dangerous path that they're on. Whether they're on it wittingly or unwittingly, I can't say what their motives are, but we now know for a fact that Luis Elizondo knows better than to say that, A, we don't know what these are, B, that we don't have anything that can move the way these are moving, and see that he doesn't know if they're extraterrestrial or not. Since we now know he has admitted that he has been in a facility with an actual extraterrestrial craft that was retrieved. Now, these sort of uh, omissions of the truth and half-truths are, are, are very, very dangerous because people think because of his uh, credentials, and the same is true of Chris Mellon, as someone who is uh, an official who's been in the Pentagon and, and the uh, Department of Defense, people take them to know what they're talking about. So if they don't know what they're talking about, they need to learn what this subject is really about, and until then, be quiet. If they are going to continue to tell lies knowingly, the way that both Chris Mellon 
and Luis Elizondo have done. And we can expect more people in their wake to come out telling these sort of lies. Uh, we need to call them out on it, and we need to do it very clearly because there's too much at stake. People are actually believing what they're saying. Um, they think that they're doing this sincerely, and we now know for a fact that it is a big deception. And it is a dangerous deception because in the process of this deceptive uh, misinformation, disinformation campaign, it is opening the door to uh, this this alien threat narrative, but also hiding the fact that the technologies that have been reverse engineered from studying extraterrestrial vehicles that have been operational since the 50s would uh, could, could then be used in a, a false flag operation in the future, and everyone is going to be convinced, oh, well, we've had these officials tell us we don't have anything like this. This is why they're feeding these talking points to people like Senator Marco Rubio and others who do not know what the truth is about this, but the talking points have within them this very central lie. It is very important that you understand that the reason they keep saying we don't have anything that can move like that tic-tac or move like those pyramid or triangular object over the destroyer, the reason they're saying that, even though it's, it's an absolute provable lie, is because it preserves the element of surprise. It preserves the element of surprise of a false flag operation where those same technologies that are man-made and controlled by covert programs can be used in some kind of scary scenario. You can imagine what those might be and make it look like it's the aliens did it, blaming only aliens. So uh, this has been going on already, as I said, for over uh, 60 years, since the 50s. Now, will they step up that game? That's up to us. I think if we can expose this central lie, we can prevent this disaster. And But that's not going to be done by CNN and CBS News in 60 Minutes. It's going to be done by us. And you guys, all of us together, have to join hands and you know expose what the truth is, expose what the lies are, and then through the CE5 initiative, continue to make peaceful contact with these civilizations. Because ultimately, if enough people do that and have that knowledge and experience, then the media and the intelligence community will simply not be able to convince the public. But that's why it's so important that we step up that initiative. CE5 contact is so important to resolving this problem in a positive way. In the meanwhile, we're putting out this particular forest fire of disinformation that's been set by the likes of Luis Elizondo and Leslie Keene and others. Now, one of the problems is we don't have the control over the mainstream media, as you've seen and unacknowledged. Uh, you know, Daniel Sheehan testified that he saw a document during Watergate, uh, the Pentagon Papers, when he was representing the New York Times. Way back then, you were talking almost 50 years ago now, that there were 42 people on the payroll of the CIA who were senior editors and national security editors and the like on the world's media. Now, we know that Richard Doty, who was a master of disinformation himself, admitted that he carried, quote, bags of cash to the media. We have many people who have then uh, covertly uh, and privately admitted that they've been involved in those sort of media corruption schemes. 
So we cannot count on the fourth estate, Ugh. the free press, to expose the truth because, frankly, they are not free. And they are fed this information through clandestine contacts in their editorial boards and their national security desk. And that is how the system is gained. So that means we have to go alternative. We have to go through the Internet. We have to go through influencers. We have to do it through grassroots. And that's why this documentary coming out, The Cosmic Hoax, which I hope will be out within the month, next month, about the next 30 days or less, that whole documentary needs to be seen by one to two billion people over the summer. I think it's the only way we're going to get the alternative, actual, true disclosure out as opposed to the false disclosure, which, of course, we warned about for uh, uh, now almost 25 years. Now, the way we can do that is all of us figuring out who do we know? Who do we know who knows someone who knows someone that may be uh, an influencer, may have a large platform, uh, who we can share the, the film with and say, here, download this and put this on your YouTube channel or some blockchain site or whatever it is, because we're going to distribute it through the people, and you guys are the people. So, again, I'd like to thank you guys for doing that. Begin to think of how you're going to do this with us and how we can work together. Uh, if you are a contact to a major uh, influencer that has millions of followers who can post this for us, uh, please do. I've recently heard from um, an, an artist named Chris Brown uh, who wants to help us get this information out. Of course, Demi Lovato is. Chris Daltrey, uh, William Shatner is also wanting to help us get this information out. He's the Captain Kirk, if you remember from Star Trek. So we're, we're creating a network to do this uh, in a viral grassroots way. But we also can rely on people just doing it person to person to person. Uh, and everyone has a list of a few hundred people they may have in, on their social media pages. Uh, some may have thousands, some may have millions. Uh, it doesn't matter because if millions of people share it with uh, a few hundred people, we've reached hundreds of millions of people. So everyone needs to see that this is kind of how you can join in this effort. Uh, the main purpose of this kind of urgent call was uh, to clarify what Daniel Sheehan is doing, why he's doing it, and what the aspiration is. The aspiration is Luis Elizondo will defect from the path of, of disinformation and distortion and actually begin to speak the truth. And if he doesn't, I've been assured by Daniel Sheehan that he would drop him as a client. So this is what we will be watching for. And uh, we don't know how this is going to turn out. This is really up to uh, what Mr. Elizondo wants to do. But we are going to be watching and we're going to ask all of you to be watching with us. So thank you very much and stay tuned. And if you want to help us, Go to ce5film.com and you can contribute some to that so we can create a huge campaign to get this documentary out in a month or so. Again, thanks for your help. Bye-bye. That's it for that one. Oh, my gosh. Another lady, uh, Megan Fox, who was... Um, the girlfriend of Sam in the Transformers. Uh, 
<laughs> Megan Fox is a major UFO explorer and um, whistleblower. She's been through her share of the media dramas with Hollywood that, you know, it's not who you know, who you blow, if you get my drift. And <laughs> Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein, what can I say? She... Megan Fox didn't have to deal with any of that stuff, but she had to deal with, you know, a lot of stuff in Hollywood that ain't cool. She's coming forward and talking about the ships and saying this is the real deal. I thought that was interesting that he said Richard Doty is a creep. Yeah, and Richard Doty is We've there. been playing his stuff. and Yeah, Emery Smith and... You know, well, Emory Smith just interviews whoever is sticking in front of him, you know. And bear in mind, all these folks, Emory Smith, Richard Doty, David Adir that comes on that show, these people have had to sign non-disclosures and had interviews with the men in black that would scare Will Smith <laughs> in the movie, you know, Men in Black. I'm just saying. I mean, he's to... This one that we thought we were going to play here is saying that Area 51 has reached the common vernacular, yet there is another large facility containing craft of extraterrestrial origin known as Area 20. Yeah, that is a real I place. Mean, what is Richard Doty doing that he's not supposed to be doing? Let's say kind of promoting a false narrative. That but it's not false. It's false in the sense that they're saying these folks are a threat. They're not a threat. The threat is from the empire within. He's not right? describing these as I'm a threat. I'm talking about the big story called the folks that control Marco Rubio. And okay, the, well, that's not Richard Doty. No, but Richard Doty probably got a visit from the men in black and said, sign the papers if you want to breathe. I'm not oh. kidding. That's why he's doing what he's doing. What well, he's not saying anything in this that I can see that's disinformation, as I'm confused. There's a level of truth and a level of mistrust and twisted information. And you got to go with your high heart. You know, this is what I experienced myself. I'm speaking from personal experience with the folks from this galaxy. When you feel that heart resonance, like you're hanging out with Sai Baba or Mother Teresa or Ram Dass or Neem Karoli Baba, Maharaji, you know, mm -hmm. the Dalai Lama, when you get that rush of energy, you know, this is the real deal. They're coming from the high heart. Okay, so let's play, uh, let's do crying, everybody. Here we yeah. go. Here we go. <sighs> Hi, everybody. I'm Lee Carroll. I am the original channel of Cryon. Greetings, dear ones. I'm Cryon of Magnetic Service. We've spoken of this before. You notice that my partner is ready to go. He doesn't take cleansing breaths. He doesn't prepare himself corporally to have this, which is 
an unusual altered state for a human being. To step aside and allow a purity to come through through the pineal, the portal to the other side, and not prepare for it? And there would be some who would look at it and say, ah, it's proof he's not channeling. And they don't understand. And we've spoken of it so many times, and those who, who have listened, they already know what I'm going to say. That the human being has the right within their magnificence to meld with spirit to such a degree that you don't turn it on and off anymore. You don't meditate and you turn it on and you turn it off. You're meditating when you're doing the laundry and you're meditating while you're driving your car. Because it's intrinsically part of you. It's instinctual that the peace of God in you would be alive and well 24-7. And that's the invitation. It always has been. We invited my partner to meld with us some years ago. And he did. And we pop in and out of his channeling. And some of you know it. His lecturing is my channeling. Sometimes. The energy shifts. And so that explains why when he sits in the chair, there is no reason to adjust. He's already there. And so what I want to present today is different than yesterday. And so I want you to relax, my partner, for there are no lists and there's no minutia and there's no new academic information that sometimes is difficult to translate. It's going to be a summary of sorts and yet not a summary of sorts. I want you to hear something from us. And what is us? What are you hearing right now? It is a consciousness that is supposed to be that from the other side of the veil, and yet we have told you that God does not have a mind. Yeah. Humanity tends to take that which is God and humanize it. Humanity thinks about what would the mind of God say or do and be as though God thinks like humanity. I can't tell you how God thinks because there is no synapse, dear ones. I want to give you information about, about you and about us. It's hard to even title this channel. And so I'll wait. There is no mind of God. There is only love. God is love. If you could imagine, not an emotion but a thickness of being, of reality that was multidimensional. Which means it was unseeable where you could actually measure the vibration of light and hear it in the air. Where the sonorities of it would ring in your multidimensional ears, which you don't really have when you're on the other side of the veil. And it, and it, it imbues you as part of the universe and you don't float and you're not you don't have a situation where you are any place you just are you share the very fabric of the actual atomic structure of all that is and yet you have a name 
And your soul represents a piece and a part of that which is God. The piece and the part that can exist in 3D. But you don't know who God is. Not really. And so that which is all that is wants to talk to you about you. How do we feel about you? I only can give you your perspective based upon your type of thinking, based upon the emotions that you have, the highest of which are compassion and love. And they are poor substitutes for the reality of God. We were there when earth was being prepared. Before any life was on the planet, we were there. It's difficult for you to know that you were too. But the peace of God that you call your soul was with us and is us and still is us. And so everything I say now, you were there too. Watching the planet being formed, knowing absolutely what was going to happen. That the potentials would create life over a long period of time, through several starts, ending in photosynthesis that would give you that which was the beginning of the evolution of life. And we were there. And we watched humanity develop, not as souls and pieces of God, but simply life. Until it was ready. Ready to be seated. And this is where I want you to depart from what you've been told or perhaps the traditions. You're a very new life form, dear human being. A very new life form. The galaxy is old. And through a period of millions of years before you ever awakened to being a human, this process was alive and well in other planets, in other places, with similar tests. There is a reason behind this. All from God. All from God. The creative source which created the universe, according to some astronomers, biased for life, against all odds, intelligent design. They're seeing it, and they're right. We've told you that you're going to find the double helix structure for DNA everywhere in the galaxy, everywhere. We've told you that when you discover life, and you will, at the microbial level, In your own solar system, you'll find DNA. (laughs) And you'll find it, so much of it, so common, it's everywhere. It's the structure of life. This had happened before. And now it was going to happen here on Earth. And we're here. When we 
see Pleiadian ships, we see the sphere of light because it's the Merkaba moving so fast. The Atlantean civilization. When the creative story occurred, and it's important for you to understand, the creative story is that when the earth was treated with a beautiful scenario of spiritual choice and duality was given to humanity. You were simply life, precious life, before that, but you didn't have a soul. And the timing of it was very recent. 100, 200,000 years done very, very slowly. It corresponds with the creation stories of so many organized spiritual groups. It doesn't mean you have to believe that you came from the stars. It's good enough if you believe that you're part of God and that the creation was part of God and that it was appropriate and beautiful and you were given for the first time spiritual choice the duality was born and you can call it whatever you want to you can call it dark and light and good and bad and evil it's duality, it's just energy free choice to find what is inside that was implanted as God or not Part of the test of the planet. Not of the test of the human being, the test of energy on the planet. There is a reason for all of this. And the seeds that you have inside, given to you, beautifully, in what has even been called the Garden of Eden, which is the metaphor for Earth, speak of the magnificence of the Creator inside. And therefore, you're born with it that way. And you have the duality so that you can choose what you're going to do with it. Or whether you're going to find it. And then we start to get technical. And we talk about the fairness of the test. Your DNA is designed for 100% efficiency and only the masters had it. In order for it to be a fair test, you'd have to design what degree of efficiency would occur. And so it started at about 50. But in the DNA were all of the attributes for activating 100. So you don't get activated DNA from the sky. You get it from inside. Through a process which then creates the instructions to be to be given to your DNA that will allow it to operate better. In other words, you're born with the full package. But the energy of the planet that you have created gives you the efficiency factor. And it started. As Lemurians, at 50% or more, you're doing a lot more than you are now at 30 and humanity started the test. And it balanced itself and it went up and it went down. Finally it was, it was in the twenties. 
You went through four decision points and you didn't graduate in any of them. <laughs> that was your choice. Gaia cooperated with pandemics in some of them, plagues in others, and you had to start over. Mm -hmm. That's the free choice. This was the fifth one, dear one. Who is an old soul? The ones in the room. Who have awakened and recognized there's more than they've been told. That their intuition gives them some cues, perhaps. Not just that the age is changing or the energy is changing, but maybe they are changing. And it's happening all over the world. Who is an old soul? You could define an old soul, if you want to, as a certain number of lifetimes on the planet. And we're not going to become academic like that. We're just going to say it's the ones who have been here a long time. Mm -hmm. And so when you awaken, you've been both genders. You've gone through the things that awakened souls go through. You've come into the planet perhaps with a lack of self-worth because of it. We know who you are. And I want to tell you something about, about coming and going. I want to tell you that through all of this process and all of these years, and what you did with duality, all of it, we were there. And there's never been a time where God the Creator has turned its back on any human. Do you hear me? Or any race, or any city, or any town, or any group, any more than you would with your children, ever. And yet, in order to manufacture certain kinds of energies, there are those who would tell you, well, God is judgmental. God is the, the mind of a human. God gets disappointed and angry. And... That's not love. That's not unconditional love. We're with you as the creative source of the universe. Not as a, a, as a tiny deity that gets angry or judgmental. Or would put you into a place where you would suffer. Do you hear that? We're with you. We're with you. And for all of those lifetimes, no matter what you did with your DNA, no matter what efficiency you decided to have it, we're with you. As I said this morning, it's almost like we were hoping that there'd come a time when you discover that spiritual point, and old souls did. You couldn't help it. After hundreds of lifetimes, you would awaken, and you'd know there was more than what you'd experienced. And you started to push the envelope of consciousness. And some of you were then the, the, the gurus and the, the shamans, and the healers of the day, the, the ones that were branded unusual or even witch-like. You awakened when we were there. Now let me give you an insight of what you would call the mind of God, dear ones. Because there's a whole lot of covenant going for the old soul. 
And what you would call death would occur, which is simply a transition of energy. And through a process, you would end up again as part of that beautiful collective, which is the universe. Where I can't explain who you are, because there is no place, there really is no who. We are one, and yet you're individual. What a beautiful system this is. God. <laughs> we told you there's a party for you, and there is. Come on, everybody. It's a God party. We can't <laughs> tell you about it. <laughs> and you start to hear the music that was again. Good, and it fills every part of the multidimensional love that you are. And it sings to you all the time. It is the song of God. It is done in light and you resound with it and you carry it with you. It's difficult to explain. But in the process of your coming and going, there is dialogue. We talk about synchronicity. We talk about life lessons. Some of you call them contracts and they're not. A contract would indicate that you sign up, never changes, you got to go through something, no matter how hard it is. It doesn't give any credibility for anything moving or changing. How human. You never realize that everything is changeable. Everything. And that's the beauty of your power. You come in with one contract, something happens, you graduate to another. You come in to write one book, you write 18. You come in to write 20, you write 2. Because things happen along the way. You meet people. And they react with you in ways you cannot predict. And it changes them and changes you. And we're there. How many of you feel us? I want to just watch him. We're part of you. We're there. All the time. And you're so compartmentalized that humans did something very interesting with it, with the energy of duality. They gave it names. They gave it energies. They assigned entities to it. They created evil. They created sin and judgment. They created a human, a human thinking God that would then process it all the way a human would. They even have jails that God puts you in between heaven and hell. Does that sound like the love of God? Does that sound like the creative energy of the universe? Does it sound like it? Do you feel that? It's the human brain working the best they can to figure it out. And we're there. You come and you go. Now, in your logic, you might say, well, if we, if we have all of this difficulty as an old soul and we go through all of these, these machinations of energy and, and, the, and misunderstanding and burning at the stake and, and being the, the one at the edge of the village nobody ever talks to because the medicine man is great for healing, but don't get next to him because they're weird. 
It's not a good life. No. Now, crying, you're saying we go through that over and over and over, and every time we come, we want to come back? <laughs> that just doesn't make sense. <laughs> so let me tell you yet again about our relationship with you. You have our God DNA. The piece of you that is us, you can say it's God DNA. You can't measure it. You can't see it. You're part of the whole. And when you come to home and you realize you're part of the universe and this galaxy to a place where you watch the earth form, it changes your perspective. That a lifetime is a blink of an eye. And the puzzle, if you see it being solved, you can hardly wait to go back. And you start to recognize that as an old soul, you are building a lineage, a storehouse of experience that literally stays on the planet through the crystalline grid. Yep. And when you come back, it picks up where you left off and you keep going. Yep. Avatars for the planet Earth, you become... And every time you come in, that which is Gaia recognizes you, greets you in the cave of creation in a way that I cannot even explain. It's not with the mind of God. It's with love. Purest love you can imagine. It's not even an emotion. Mother, what is the feeling when you look into the eyes of your child on your chest for the first time in their life? What is the feeling? Is it emotion or is it a way of life? <laughs> and the answer is a way of life. It cannot be measured. And that's just a, a tiny bit of who we are. We're always there. We're with you now as you sit in the chair listening to this message. And some of you are realizing this is real. It's not a man in the chair pretending. Because we want to somehow transmit to you how we feel about you. And we can only do it in your terms. And the best thing we can say is we are there all the time. We're there watching when you sleep. We're there watching when you cry and when you laugh. When you're in trouble and when you're with fear, it just doesn't change. We're just always there. The soup of God is absolute. It's there now. We know who's watching and who's in the room and the puzzles they have and the complexities they have and the worries and the fears. How long will they last? What's going on? Why are they uncomfortable? And we're here. It's so interesting for us to watch you turn around and come back into the planet. So many times we spoke about this attribute of the wind of birth. That's our, that's our expression of when you come into the planet, you take your first breath. And your soul fills up and your akash starts to work and all the things. Your DNA takes the measurement of where it's supposed to be depending upon where Gaia has established it through human consciousness. And you continue. 
And we said it before, every woman in the room has experienced battle and every man in the room has given birth. And there's so much human experience here. And how do we feel about that? Remember your family. We're not just talking about the corporeal humanity that is here. Do you understand or not that if you're doing it this time around on this planet, you probably did it before on another. Are you aware of that? (laughs) Do you know that this is what you do? And you didn't look a whole lot different then either. Because DNA is DNA. It forms symmetry and does its job depending upon the gravitational aspects of the planet. Your seed spiritual DNA came from the seven sisters, and we've told you this. You don't have to believe it. It's a cluster of more than nine stars. They look like they're close together. From Earth, they're not. It's just how you perceive them. That's why they're the constellation you see in the patterning. As you get closer to them, they don't look that way. (laughs) From a planet who went through what you did, what if I told you you were there too? How does it make you feel to know that you haven't always been a human? And to some, they'll say, well, it's time to turn off the channel. Because now you've crossed the line. Have I crossed the line, or are you not ready to hear the, the, the majesty that you, that you contain? The magnificence of your decisions to return. And we look at you. When you have that which is the pure love of God about ready to step into this planet and separate into so many parts, keeping some of you on, on my side of the veil, some of you in your corporeal body and others in your guide sets, we've explained it. It's so complex. And you look at us and you said, this is important. And in you come. How do we feel about that? How can we love you any more than we do? We're there. Some of you willingly, for the lesson that you need to teach others to kick them into a place where they will examine themselves, will come in and die as children. How about that? And I stand and look at you in the wind of the birth and I say, you know, you're going to last for three years and it's not going to be pretty. Because you're going to catch a disease and you're going to die in their arms. And you look and you say, and that is magnificent. Because what they will get out of it is that God will be seen in their hearts. And that although it's a tragedy for humanity, for the first time they will awaken. And from then on, they will have that spiritual attribute. And it's worth it. Now how do we feel about that? Because we're there. We're not just watching. We're there. We're part of you. How can I, how can I go further? I want to tell you humanity. And anyone who's listening, 
are so close to you. All the masters who ever walked the planet have told you the same thing. You don't have to die to meet us. Mm. No. We're there. We've always been there. As you now move into a new energy where you're increasing the DNA efficiency and things will begin to occur and old souls will begin to awaken even more, living longer. The glass starts to clear. How do we feel about that? If I haven't said it before, it's about time. Because finally, the hand that's reached out to you for hundreds of thousands of years, since you ever had duality, you're going to feel it and you're going to see it and you're going to take it and you'll never be the same. And so this would be a good time for that. To awaken to the reality, perhaps, that we are there. That we've always been there. Mm -hmm. That the mind of God is not the mind of a human being. It's the consciousness of love in an unconditional passion that will always be awake, watching and loving. Because we're always there. That's the message of the day. It's not filled with, with a lot of new attributes or lists or things to remember. I just want you to leave with one, just one attribute. We're there. <laughs> and when you're within sorrow, we're there. And when you're happy, we're there. I want you to, to meld with that which you call your higher self to such a degree that you can't tell the difference between your meditation and your non-meditation. <laughs> and I want to tell you, if you get to that right. state, you're going to watch corporal. Corporal changes in you. Things that you didn't expect, including remissions of things. I know who's here. I know what some of you are facing. Family, because we're with you. We're here. Now I'm going to say in a moment that the, that the channel is over. And the human being's tendency is to compartmentalize Come partmentalize everything, and you're gonna you're gonna look at your watches and your clocks, and you're gonna make your plans, and you're gonna walk out of the room. And there's a tendency for saying, "Well, there's the channel was nice," and and you'll say, "Well, but that energy is over." No, it is not over. I don't even want to say the last words because I want to imbue the fact that we are with you to such a degree that when you walk out of the room, there is no difference than when you're sitting here. None. That's what we want. Because we're with you. And we want you to feel it and recognize us so we can walk hand in hand and cure this planet of a low vibration. To bring it to a place where it is ready to say there will never be war again. That a high consciousness would never kill another human being for any reason like that. The whole purpose of humanity would be to live together. To find ways 
of creating cities without wasting resource. A brand new kind of thinking that will be intuitive eventually to your children. That is what we have seen before. That is what some of you have done before. You have a memory, an imprint that is beyond your akash where you did this other places. And now you're doing it again. And so some of you ought to be celebrating. (laughs) This is happening yet again. And we're there. This is the message of the day. It's the message of the year. It's the message for the rest of your life. And the one after that. And the one after that. And so it is. Hi, everybody. I'm Lee Carroll. I am the original channel of Cryon. (laughs) Oh, my God. No more death. It's that double entente. (laughs) And we're right in the moment where we're creating it, co-creating it with consciousness. I like what he said, consciousness of love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's only one of us here in that space. Always. Some of us take little detours here, there, and everywhere. Um. Well, this is just a little short piece, but I thought was worth playing as Katie Porter. We got just a few minutes. And uh, Lawrence O'Donnell had him on. And yeah. So I'm just going to turn this up and play it because it's. What is your one or two maybe favorite pieces of President Biden? Wait a second. Momentito. Ah. Well, thanks for having me, and I would say this. Uh, Does that say 19 or 18? On the left, on the right. Oh, 18. 18. Okay, just a second here. And crushed a high-paid CEO who was not prepared properly for the hearing. Well, she did it again. Yesterday, in a House hearing, Congressman Katie Porter once again crushed a high-paid CEO who was not prepared properly for the hearing by his high-paid Washington lobbyists. And in the process, Katie Porter crushed the idea that the higher price paid for pharmaceuticals in America is necessary for pharmaceutical companies to do research and development to create new life-saving drugs. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, I give you... Congresswoman Katie Porter. Mr. Gonzalez, how much did you spend, did we spend on litigation and settlements from 2013 to 2018? Uh, I, I don't have that number offhand. We'll be happy to give it to you. Okay, $1.6 billion. $2.45 billion R&D, $1.6 billion in litigation and settlements. What about marketing and advertising? How much does that we spend on that? Um, well, marketing and advertising, we spend about $4 billion a year. Yep, $4.71 billion. How about executive compensation, 2013 to 2018? 2013 to 2018, it's probably on average about $60 million a year. $2,334 on for size. 
Now, how much did AbbVie spend on stock buybacks and shareholders, stock buybacks and dividends to enrich your shareholders from 2013 to 2018? Well, stock buybacks, if you actually look at just pure stock buybacks, it would be about $13 billion. Stock buybacks uh, and dividends is the question, sir. Uh, dividends, and have to come back with that, a number for that for that period of time. $50 billion. Ah! So, Mr. Gonzalez, you're spending all this money to make sure you make money rather than spending money to invest in, develop drugs, and help patients with affordable, life-saving drugs. You lie to patients when you charge them twice as much for an unimproved drug, and then you lie to policymakers when you tell us that R&D justifies those price increases. The big pharma fairy tale is one of groundbreaking R&D that justifies astronomical prices. But the pharma reality is that you spend most of your company's money making money for yourself and your shareholders. And the fact that you're not honest about this with patients and with policymakers, that you're feeding us lies that we must pay astronomical prices to get innovative treatments is false. The American people, the patients, deserve so much better. The Honorable Katie Porter will get tonight's last word when she joins us next. Okay, hold on, everybody. We'll play that little piece, too. She made a little boo-boo in this last discussion, but you'll notice it. It's okay. Small company... Here's more of Congresswoman Katie Porter in yesterday's hearing questioning the CEO of the pharmaceutical company AbbVie about why he doubled the price of a cancer drug called Imbruvica. AbbVie itself didn't spend any money to create Imbruvica. It was invented by a smaller company, Pharmacyclics, which you later acquired, correct? We paid $21 billion for the company, correct? Are there fewer side effects, sir? Uh, no, it has the same side effect profile. Mr. Gonzalez, do people need less of this medicine in Rubica to treat lymphoma now? Uh, no. So, Abby took zero risk to develop this drug. You bought it approved to the market knowing it would be profitable. You hiked the price to pay for R&D, but you haven't made the drug any better even as you doubled the cost. Do you... Joining us now is Democratic Congressman Katie Porter of California. She represents California's 45th District and is a member of the House Oversight Committee. And Congressman Porter, I would like to be doing what I think people are doing uh, in uh, their TV rooms around the country, and that is giving you a standing ovation. Uh, but we have to use every minute here to cover these, this important ground. Uh, I have to thank you so much uh, for that questioning because I used to sit through uh, hearings in the Senate Finance Committee, which has jurisdiction over health care, uh, and the assumption that uh, the higher American drug prices were there in part, at least in part, uh, to pay for research and development was never seriously questioned and certainly never dismantled the way you did yesterday. Well, it's really important that we test these assumptions because that's our job is to get answers. So witnesses are there to give us information, and we're there to push back and try to get answers. And it's true that pharmaceutical companies spend money on research and development, but it is not correct that 
that is the primary reason that they double and triple and quadruple raising the prices of these drugs. It's to profit their shareholders. And I want them to be honest about that. Because then we can begin having a debate about what to do about the cost of prescription drugs. My other favorite thing that you expose in these hearings is the the utter incompetence of the Washington lobbyists who prepare these witnesses and allow that CEO to go in there without a command of the own of his own financials of his own company. Very simple issues like how much in dividends, uh, the, the, the items that you present there. Does it continue to surprise you that the lobbyists haven't figured out how to prepare witnesses for these hearings that you're going to be participating in? It does surprise me because this is a serious undertaking. I have been a witness before Congress that I would spend hours and hours not just writing my testimony, but doing research, trying to understand who the other witnesses were, what the context of the hearing was going to be. I mean, you could literally see me coming down the hallway in Rayburn with my whiteboard. So it is not a surprise where I'm going and what I'm going to be doing. And yet they continue to just really not put in the work. And I think that shows a disrespect for the American people and for the process of democracy. I'm just thinking of those lobbyists seeing you coming down the hallway with the whiteboard and knowing they're never going to be able to figure out which direction you're going in. I want to listen to something that the vice president said today about the life of single mothers in this country. Uh, she grew up uh, being mothered by a single mother. She talked to Zerlina Maxwell about this today on Zerlina's radio show. Let's listen to this. My mother raised my sister and me. She had two goals in her life. She raised her two daughters and then breast cancer. She was a, a breast cancer researcher. When my mother worked long hours, which she did almost always, including on weekends, my sister and I would walk two houses down to Mrs. Shelton, who was the second mother to us, and and to help take care of us. My mother would talk her entire life about how she could not have made the discovery she made on breast cancer was it not for Mrs. Shelton. We have never had a vice president with that kind of sensibility about the life of single mothers. You are a single mother, uh, and you are finding in uh, all sorts of provisions of law biases against uh, single mothers, including what you've identified uh, about the child tax credit. Could you explain what you're trying to achieve with that? Yes, so the expanded child tax credit, the way it's set up, is it has an income phase out. When you hit X income, you start to not receive it. When you go over a certain income, you don't receive any of it. That makes some sense. We're trying to target people in need. But there's an assumption built into this that single parents simply don't have the same level of expenses in raising a child as married couples. And it's the opposite. We know that single parents face more income volatility, more expense volatility, spend a higher proportion of their income on childcare. Trust me, there is no discount for single parents. I've been looking. And so it's really, really important that in policy that we're trying to lift up every single American child, that we don't disadvantage children because of the marital status or family status of their parents. Yes, so the child, the way the child tax credit works, uh, a single parent, a single mother uh, with an income comparable to a married couple gets a significantly lower child's tax credit for that same one child uh, who is not in any way less expensive because that child is the child of a single mother. 
Exactly. So the example that you were showing is even for the single family, the single household that's earning $15,000 less, trying to pay for child care, trying to pay for food, trying to pay for adequate housing, ends up getting much less tax credit. And here's the thing. This is not really about single parents. It's about kids. Every kid in this country should have the same shot at nutritious housing, at quality child care, at adequate housing, regardless of the marital status of their parents. That's how we're going to look at every single kid in this country to create our next generation workforce. Congressman Katie Porter, thank you for joining us once again tonight. We always learn something important, more than one or two things important when you join us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Katie Porter gets tonight's last word. The 11th hour with Brian Williams starts now. Okay. We got some nutritious housing in there. It's <laughs> very funny. But uh, she meant nutritious food, as you can tell. So, Rama, it's time to go. Stay here. Okay. And I'll just say real quickly, we got a few more minutes. Um, Penny found this lovely piece. It's called Legend of the White Bison. August 27, 2016 is the first time it came out, but they brought it back here. Um, so there's a picture of the Plains Bison and her calf in Elk Island National Park. It's not really an island, but it's like that because it's a specific uh, area where the bison have they're safe. Safe place. telephone for the last two minutes uh, to finish about the bison. <laughs> that wind just gave us a break and we got it all the way to what we were done with there, but we have to just take this last minute or so. I wanted to just say that um, a majestic bull passing for the camera in Elk Island is the picture there. Bison 
were essential to the survival of many First Nation people, especially those of the plains and the woodlands in present-day Alberta. This is up in Canada, everybody. Many groups were nomadic. I think there's only about five or six miles from Penny up there, this Mm. place. Many groups were nomadic following the enormous bison herds as they grazed their way across the land. These groups were completely in tune with the natural world around them and had such a deep understanding of wildlife behavior that they were able to hurt hunt bison. Let it, you know, bring it back though, Rama, right? Yeah, hunt bison by stampeding them over a cliff called Buffalo Dumps. Yikes, I see it down there. All parts of the bison were used. Nothing was left to waste. Bison were the primary food source for many and provided the necessities for clothing, tools, shelter, and more. First Nation dependence on bison became so connected to their way of life that the relationship was almost spiritual. Bison featured prominently in many stories and dances and were often principal characters in many creation legends. The bison is a symbol of subsistence, strength, and the ability to survive. With this connectedness, it's no surprise that a rare figure in the bison world would be reason for celebration. So what do we got to say here? I think it's probably time to go. Scientifically, the term buffalo is incorrect for the species in North America. Oh, well, the TV came back, everybody. I'm sorry, turning it down as fast as I can. Oh, my goodness. This is a never-ending story, what we go through here. Okay, so to fully grasp the cultural significance, of the white bison, one should look at the legends of the white buffalo calf woman, a sacred woman and primary cultural prophet for different First Nation groups. Although there are different versions of the story, the same central elements are present. During a time of great famine, two scouts were sent away to search for food. A beautiful woman dressed in white appeared before the men and returned to their camp where she presented the sacred pipe that showed how all things were connected. She also spoke of the seven sacred rites. Eventually, she turned into a white bison calf and then disappeared. Shortly after vanishing, boundless herds of bison began appearing outside the camp, ending the famine. The white bison are a rare sight. Many species have a white coloration. Yet this abnormality, got an echo, hmm, is usually attributed to albinism. In this case, white, white bison are not albinos. Rather, contain a, a recessive gene, causing their fur to be snow white instead of the usually dark brown color, much like the Kermoda, 
or spirit bears of the great bear rainforest in British Columbia. The recessive gene is so rare that it only occurs once out of every 10 million births. In the wild, all white bison would have been decimated by the end of the 19th century. It was believed that the recessive gene may have been lost forever. Thankfully, this was not the case, and white bison calves are still born across the continent. So there's a little more here, but the time has gone. I I am so grateful that we are alive and well, and may the bison be with us. (laughs) So we're going to take a little break, and hopefully we'll be back on here. The wind has been a challenge here, but I was very polite again. It just kind of did it when we were breaking to another story. So this is our story today, and we love everyone and keep feeling that heart energy that's coming in everybody's heart. The whole world is in our hands, as that wonderful man Pete Seeger used to sing. Got to hear him live numbers of times, and he's with with us always. So Satnam for now. We'll see you in this little fairy tale. We'll be back so soon. Namaste. Thank you, everyone. Well, good evening, everybody. It's the 22nd of May, and the sun has finally gotten into Gemini. Oh, my. Yeah, well, you know, it's, I've, been, I've been waiting. I've been waiting for this. Because in my own in my own experience, this um, season of Taurus has been uh, challenging, right? Yes. So uh, yeah. so now, yeah. Well, yeah. See, we got see that the sun is so much more influential than Mercury, Venus, and Mars, right? So. Uh, now we've got we've got that we've got that nice Aryan Gemini energy. Now for a few days the sun is going to be square to Saturn in early Aquarius. Trying trying to Saturn in early Aquarius. <laughs> now hopefully hopefully that'll work work out as disciplined thinking, right? Gemini air signs is about the about the thinking, the thinking apparatus of, of the human, right? So we we've got uh, we've got a little bit of a help or challenge depending on your your position on the on the evolutionary ladder, right? Because whether you know whether you um, whether it's polite to say it or not, you know, everybody is not as good a thinker. As, as everybody else, right? Some people are better thinkers than others, right? Yeah. So anyway, yeah, so anyway, so, yeah, you played some great stuff, uh, this afternoon that I, that I was there and, and listening along with you and everything. And, uh, 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 really glad that you could be with us again, Richard. I really appreciate it. Well, you know, yeah, well, 
BBS changed their phone number again, but they told us the new number to call in, you know, which was different from last week. But anyway, um, so what I thought we'd do is listen to uh, uh, Katacha and Tanya and with the leftover time at the end, we'll uh, dig into some of this Gemini stuff from the astrological mandala. Because we haven't, I haven't really reviewed Gemini with you guys because we were still kind of concentrating on Taurus and that uh, that cosmic energy uh, manifesting through Uranus. Right? But now most of the energy is far enough ahead of Uranus where maybe Uranus won't be such a pain in the butt. <laughs> Agreed. Come in. Yeah, yeah, all right then. Uh, the uh, the mountain laurel or rhododendron, as some people call them, are in full full bloom over here right now. So Ooh. lots of lots of white blossoms all over the woods, you know, because they're native and they're scattered everywhere. And so it's all really pretty, and they still got the big daisies and the little daisies and some others coming in that are a little later and all that stuff. So uh, that's where we're at. So back to you. Okay, that's K-Pots of this one. Here we go. with the weekly what report? <laughs> it's either Pele or Banana, whatever you like. <laughs> One way or the other, the moon is coming into uh, its first quarter square to the sun in a couple of hours, and that is going to be at 29 degrees 01 minutes of Leo, with that sun at 29 degrees 01 minutes of Taurus, just about to go into the sign of Gemini tomorrow and join Lilith, Mercury, the node, Venus. Look at this guy. We got to have three bamboo sticks to hold him up. And you can see, look at here, how uh, the whole banana, uh, it's not a tree, it's actually a grass, but all the leaves are almost gone. All the energy goes into the offspring. All the energy goes into the offspring. Nature is such an amazing teacher. There was something else I wanted to bring up, but let me go into the astrology first. You know, because uh, we've also got a lot going on. When the sun goes into Gemini, then on Friday, it's going to square Jupiter. Right? Jupiter over there in Pisces. Yes, indeed. There's another bunch of bananas back there. You see it? And here's our third one up over here. <laughs> and by Saturday, Mercury comes into a square with Neptune. 
So we're going to have the Pisces Gemini square going on uh, a little bit here for a little while with a couple of different planets. Um, in the meantime, Venus is in a very nice trine to Saturn today. So that is really something that we can celebrate. And uh, things are shifting a little bit with Mercury. Mercury on Saturday goes into what is called the storm. And that is where Mercury slows down to less than 40 minutes of motion a day in preparation to stand still and station retrograde. That uh, that will be coming up on Saturday the 29th. But, yeah, not such a good time to be starting new things so much as finishing up projects that you're already working on. I can talk some more about that, maybe. But uh, also, speaking of retrogrades, on Sunday, Saturn stations and goes retrograde. So, boy, oh boy. Yeah, now Pluto's retrograde, Saturn is going retrograde, Mercury's going to be going retrograde. Uh, next month, Jupiter is going retrograde. So uh, there is this whole kind of breathing, uh, exhale, inhale that uh, that we do with the stars. And mm. we can talk a little bit more about that also. There's just so much to talk about, really. I mean, it's all kind of building up. We are in the eclipse season right now, basically. And... The lunar eclipse is not till next Wednesday, but uh, it, it's, I'm going to be talking about it in, in general, yeah, uh, very much today in preparation for that lunar eclipse. It's, uh, it's, it's powerful, very powerful. It's total, and um, yeah, it's at 5 degrees, 26 minutes of Sagittarius. So let me uh, look at the camera. And talk to you more, but I just wanted to point out this one thing here. You see how the uh, the leaves, uh, the, the the branches that stick up higher, they get blown in the wind and torn apart a lot faster and a lot more than our lower branches and leaves. You see that. Another lesson of life. When you stick your head out, <laughs> when you rise up above, out of the safety of the cocoon or family or society, uh, you expose yourself to uh, a lot, uh, a lot more uh, possible tearing apart. <laughs> okay, everybody, <clears throat> I'm going to give this a shot. I've got. So many things, many different uh, things that I would like to uh, talk about today. And I will try to weave them together. Gemini, of course, is interested in everything. <laughs> Curiosity killed the cat. So it goes off in many different directions. Uh, I'm going to go off in a few different directions, but there is a theme. <laughs> and maybe if you really listen, you can get the theme to this Pele report. <laughs> Um, let's say, uh, first of all, uh, I, I want to say that uh, I don't know if you could tell last week or not, but I had just tested positive for the virus. 
like an hour or two before the Pele report. Oh, Oh, my my God. I came back from the United States, and I dropped off. uh, I borrowed my brother's truck, and he's a Trumpster. And sure enough, he drove me to the airport, and uh, Uh, he gave it to me. He gave it to his wife, and uh, I came home, and... Uh, by Monday, I wasn't feeling so good. Tuesday, Wednesday, I uh, wasn't feeling good, but I was giving a workshop starting Saturday. Yeah. I- so I had to get tested. I got tested. I tested positive. Ah! And, yeah, so I have had uh, fever, headaches, all kinds of, uh, you know, different symptoms, basically no energy, oh. very spaced out. I've been in bed basically all week and um, really taking many different treatments, many different remedies. I'm, I'm going to do a whole different maybe uh, video uh, on BitChute about this. I'll, I'll put the link <clears throat> down in the notes. But for today, I just wanted to say that I have had a lot of time. This whole week, I have been uh, laying in bed. Uh, very often, I hate to say it, with my computer, <laughs> and I have been researching and reading and watching videos and YouTubes. I'd like to share one with you today because I feel like it is the most profound video that I have seen. It's only twenty. It's a twenty-minute segment by Greg Braden. Oh, I love Greg Braden. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah. We're going to play Greg Braden some more tonight, everybody. Humanity, who and what we are. Yeah. Artificial intelligence and transhumanism, which is very powerful themes these days. And they are going to get more and more powerful the deeper and farther we go into this age of Aquarius. And uh, the link for uh, his video is down in the notes. And please, if if there's any other video that you're going to see, you've got to check this out. It will blow your mind. I'm going to come back to that. But first of all, uh, I've also had time actually to read some comments uh, and and post. I've I've made some posts on Facebook, and <laughs> you know I've. I've I've, uh, you know, gotten a little active on the social media. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, one of the comments that, you know, I posted this uh, petition. It was a petition to, um, that there should be no forced uh, vaccination. And it should be uh, people's uh, free choice. And uh, one of the comments that I got, I, I said I would address in today's family report. I want to read it to you. Uh, it's New Paradigm Astrology. What has this got to do with astrology? I'm disappointed that your reports have increasingly taken this narrative. As an astrologer, should you not remain impartial and simply provide wisdom and guidance based on the planets? This is all very third dimensional stuff. As an astrologer, why would you go there? Why would you want to go there? I want to really look at this because um, I think it's it's very important. I, and I think the answer is actually in the question. Um, 
that uh, going as far back to the beginning of astrology, astrology uh, is based upon the foundation as above, so below. As without, so within. That the macrocosm mirrors the microcosm. And that by following the planets, the moving stars, planets are roaming stars, is, is the root of that, yeah? You know, going back, it was, astrology was used, the, the uh, uh, origins were like a king would want to know when he should start a battle, and he would go to his astrologer priests, okay, they wanted to know when babies were born, they wanted to know... Uh, so everything about astrology is to help humanity, help us to understand and navigate this mundane world. Yeah. And in order to provide guidance uh, and wisdom based upon the planets, it is applying you know, applying what the planets, what the archetypes, what the cycles are telling us, you know, you know, about our earthly situation, whether it's our personal relationships or our job or a war or a pandemic or an economic collapse, uh, you know, the outside you know, really mirrors this inside, and there is this interface between us and the world. And this is where astrology can come in. We understand now that we are emerging out of the age of Pisces, and that age of Pisces was where we could go on mountaintops or monasteries or convents, and, and we could meditate and, you know, uh, reach nirvana and samadhi in our own bedroom, you know, in our own cave, etc., etc., etc. And we are emerging out of this age of Pisces into the age of Aquarius. And the age of Aquarius has to do with co collective consciousness Society, corporations, worldwide webs, global corporations, global consciousness. It has to do with large-scale groups, organizations, the World Health Organization, the Davos people. The, uh, it, uh, you know, it goes on and on. Aquarius also deals with the elite, the billionaires. And so, you know, as we move more and more into this age of Aquarius... For an astrologer to really provide any worthwhile guidance and any worthwhile wisdom, he is going to look at the context within the environment within which these planetary aspects are happening and then use those planetary aspects to offer choices and guidance and options and perhaps alternatives that you might not see without those planets. So I see an intrinsic uh, uh, unity. I do not see a separation between the mundane and the spiritual. Rather, I see it that we are in a unified field. And within that unified field, we want to use everything to our best advantage when making our choices and decisions. Now, 
another sense is that, of course, now a hundred years ago, Dean Rudyard was the founder of humanistic astrology. And this is where it went into, and this is, you know, and Jeffrey Wolf Green and evolutionary astrology and new paradigm astrology and what I'm doing. Okay, the soul journey, astrology for the soul. Yes, this is, you know, about our inner growth, our inner evolution. And what I can say is that now, a hundred years later, <laughs> okay, the terrain is still changing. And particularly what we can do is follow the planets. Last year in 2020, Jupiter, Saturn, and Pluto came together, started the pandemics, reflected. They didn't start it. It signaled the Great Reset. It signaled the birth of a new reality. And it is proving to be a very dangerous situation. This is continuing on. And we can say that even more so since Pluto entered Capricorn in 2008, where there was the great economic recession. And then, okay, Saturn came up through Capricorn and Jupiter came up through Capricorn. They're now in Aquarius and Pisces and Neptune is in Pisces. Okay, so we have now uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, and Pluto all in the last three signs of Capricorn, Aquarius, and Pisces. These are the least personal most cosmic, we could say most karmic signs of the zodiac. And they have to do with collective influences, religions, governments, mainstream media, pharmaceutical companies, uh, you know, billionaires, uh, you know, YouTube channels, influencers. There is a, there's a very powerful impact right now going on on each one of us as individuals. And here's where it all ties in with Greg Braden. It all ties in with this uh, eclipse season that we are in because this has to do with today's mantra. This has to do with the Sagittarius Gemini axis. And that is, and Greg Braden speaks of it, there is a battle going on for your thoughts and yeah. what you think. Yeah. There is a battle going on for your beliefs. Okay, this corporation, this individual, the, you know, this uh, World Health people, you know, the, 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 you know, all these people are vying and wanting you to believe in them and follow them and buy their products. And uh, da, 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 da. there is a tremendous, okay, charge occurring, happening, and it is affecting each one of us in our individual realities. I'm going to give you one of these because Greg Braden talks about it in his uh, in, in, the, in the video clip below. This was brand new to me. One of the fundamental beliefs 
that is out there and being very much uh, purported now by artificial intelligence and transhumanism is that we have evolved from the apes, the chimpanzees, and that we are somehow dumb, or that we are somehow not uh, not alert, intelligent, awake. That that we are missing or lacking. That our, you know, our immune systems are imperfect, or our bodies are. Da, 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 and that these can be enhanced with technology. Maybe a little mRNA, uh, you know, shot into us could, uh, you know, increase, you know, and improve on God's immune system. And what he uh, breaks apart is that there have been new scientific discoveries. And it is now proven that we did not evolve from the apes. Right. <laughs> when you say that. Around 200,000 years ago, boom, we, you know, we, we came. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and I, I gotta listen to it again, but it's like, you know, no, we are not Cro-Magnon. You know, we are not Neanderthals. Okay. <laughs> we, you know, we came in with a different set of DNA. And then he goes into the chromosomes. And he goes into the DNA and he goes into these chromosomes and he talks about how wise and amazing they are. Particularly the, uh, the second chromosome, I think. Second and the seventh, he goes. Because they, uh, the one is, uh, we are the only creature that can sing. Uh-huh. And he goes into this whole, you know, situation and condition. But he talks about our body as the ultimate. It is so far beyond any artificial intelligence. It is so far beyond any uh, technology that we could possibly come up with. The idea that we can improve upon nature and improve upon our humanness, uh, you know, by chipping ourselves or plugging ourselves in or, you know, all this uh, transhumanism movement, which is already underway. He speaks about that, too. It's fluff. It's fodder. It's arrogance. And it's the same type of arrogance that causes damage. Mm-hmm. Tremendous amounts of damage. Yep. And it put Atlantis under before. And now I think some of the same souls that did it before are back here trying to do it again. The idea that we can improve on nature is a joke. We should learn from nature. Gemini understand nature. And so as we experience our reality, this is the, this is the mantra for today, that my reality is a living experience of what I think and believe. And a lot of these thoughts and beliefs are socio-cultural, religious, family, uh, you know, so many of these are ingrained and conditioned within us before we are even able to speak. 
That it's up to us, and this is where it's very important now, this, this eclipse and the south node in Sagittarius. We need to explore the foundations of our beliefs. And where did they come from? And who did we trust? And who are we following? Who are we listening to? Who told me I'm ugly? Who told me I'm privileged? Uh, you know, who told me I'm guilty? Uh, who told me I'm da 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 da? We have all kinds of unconscious beliefs, and this is where we, you know this is where life, when we are presented with conditions and situations outside of our control, impressed upon us. That we need to make choices and we need to make decisions. It, it forces some of these unconscious beliefs up into consciousness. And this is healthy. It is extremely uncomfortable. The Sun square Jupiter, Mercury square Neptune. Okay, Pisces, Jupiter, Neptune and Pisces has to do with disillusionment. And this is a time, disillusionment is extremely difficult. It can lead to despair, it can lead to suicide, it can lead to addictions, it can lead to uh, numbing out, escapism, anything that you can think of. Very, very dangerous. Wanting to just deny what is happening and not look at maybe the mundane world or what's going on here or there or blah, 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 blah. So... You know, but what's important now, and that's what we, we go into, is that it is necessary to really go with a fine-tooth comb over all of our thoughts and beliefs. Was that mom? Was that dad? Was that some religion? Was that some guru? Was that da, 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 da? Is that true for me? This is what we are really all about, is discovering the unique self. And Uranus and Taurus is radically, unpredictably hurling lightning bolts at us to wake us up. Yes, it is challenging to survive these days. And these are not going to just go away. Particularly, and we can look at this particularly for individual people, because what we've got is a situation here where Saturn goes retrograde at 13 degrees 31 minutes, and it goes back to 6 degrees 52 minutes. And then it doesn't come back. Okay, until January 16th to that th 13 degrees. So if you have anything between, okay, 7 and 13 degrees of the fixed signs, that is Taurus, Leo, Scorpio, and Aquarius, you are having a powerful Saturn transit, and not only Saturn. Saturn is in square to Uranus for this entire year. Uranus has gone from 6 degrees 43 minutes in January up to 14 degrees 47 minutes, August 19th. And then it's going to go retrograde back to 1049. 
So we can stretch this out. We can say that, you know, you people, okay, myself included, okay, with, you know, fixed planets between the degrees of seven, I'm going to say 14 or 15, okay, are getting seriously pounded <laughs> between and held between a rock and a hard place. Yep. Saturn is the rock. Uranus is the hard place. Saturn is the past, the conventional, the external authorities that are trying to, you know, take control and, uh, you know, run our lives for us. And Uranus, the process of individuation, our unique individualized self-expression. And these two are at major odds with each other, and it will continue throughout the remainder of the year. In fact, it will intensify come October and November is, is going to really, yeah, they're already talking about another wave coming, yes, you know, yes, and it's, and it is even, it may involve more, if you can imagine that, than the virus. But, so, to really consider this week, and really throughout this entire eclipse season, yes, particularly through the, uh, total lunar eclipse that's happening, of which, yeah, you know, that's uh, next Wednesday, but Sunday I will be uh, doing all about Sagittarius for the New Paradigm Astrology community. Uh, it is a group of uh, students uh, studying astrology with me that uh, you can join, and it's uh, a live Zoom that's going to be probably a couple hours long, and I should be all better by then. I'm getting much better now thanks to uh, a number of different treatments that I'm going to go into on another channel. And what else? The songs for this week. I can't help but share who I consider a Uranian creative genius. Jethro Tall. Ian Anderson, thick as a brick. Your wise men don't know how it feels to be thick as a brick. <laughs> I love, love that guy. And I, another one that just kind of came up for me was, I will survive. I will survive. We will survive. Maybe not in the flesh. But this is a whole nother topic of conversation that I can talk about another day, is the Western and the Eastern understanding and relationship to and beliefs around death. Because make no mistake about it, many of the choices and decisions and fears that are being fed and uh, brought up right now uh, have their roots in the fear of death. So my reality is a living experience of what I think and believe. I must reject all that's not true if I'm ever to really be free. We cannot build our house on a cracked foundation 
and expect it to last for a good long time. So we need to go into this foundation, and with the south node in Sagittarius, the moon coming around through Libra, Scorpio, Sag this week, okay, you know, coming around, the moon is the past, the south node of the moon is the past, this whole time period here is that we want to, you know, we need to go down into the roots, down into the foundation, and mend those cracks, <laughs> and then it's all going to work out better and your reality is going to change okay yeah all right because why because my reality is a living experience <laughs> of what i think and believe i must reject all that's not true if I'm ever to really be free. Yeah. May you really be free. <laughs> Namaste. Aloha. So much love. Talking stick back to you, Richard. Richard.
depending on what kind of dancing you're doing, right? Right. Flexi flexibility is going to be very important. Yeah. All right. So uh, that's enough for the moment. Back to you. Okay, here is Tanya. This is a 24 minutes. Jupiter enters Pisces. And, okay. oh my. Hello there, everyone. It's Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Star Codes. This is the podcast where we look at the current or upcoming astrology, numerology events. And today is going to be a celebration of Jupiter in Pisces. Joy entering spirituality. This is such a loving moment where the largest planet of our solar system, Jupiter, moves into a new part of the zodiac and we're feeling the ripple effects of this change in depth. The enhancing of everything is very pronounced. And so let's start with the fact that Jupiter entered Aquarius, the sign that precedes Pisces, in December. And if you remember, it entered Aquarius along with Saturn. They were conjunct on the solstice on the 21st of December at zero degrees Aquarius. And since that time, Jupiter has raced through Aquarius and now has entered Pisces. So we've been moving into the Aquarian era since Jupiter and Saturn both entered last December. And now that Jupiter has moved through Aquarius, the last few months have really sparked this sense of freedom innovation, breakthroughs that help us connect the dots in new, exciting ways and also help us to create a deeper sense of community. And Jupiter's sojourn in Aquarius is going to continue, as you'll see in a moment. But right now, Jupiter just entered Pisces and will be there until July 28th, so for about two and a half months. So it'll be a brief visit, but it indicates the more general themes that will be in play once Jupiter re-enters Pisces on December 30th this year and throughout 2022. So the next two and a half months are going to attract a lot of opportunities. And the thing that's so lovely about Jupiter in Pisces is that Jupiter was actually the classical ruler of Pisces before Neptune was discovered and assigned to Pisces. So Neptune is the modern ruler, but, but Jupiter was and still is considered a very big part of the Piscean experience. Jupiter is the planet of expansion and fortune and wisdom and justice and truth. And Pisces is mystical, dreamy, spiritual, filled with unconditional love. And also the last sign, it governs endings as well. So Jupiter in Pisces can indicate dreams coming to the forefront, coming out of the unconscious, and then eventually coming true. So there's a lot of rapid personal inner spiritual growth that is happening 
when Jupiter enters this sign. And the more creative and joyful you are as you approach your day-to-day activities, the greater the positive outcomes. Now, as we reach the second month or the second part of May, there's also a full moon eclipse that's coming up in conjunction with Mercury stationing retrograde in its own sign of Gemini. So the pressure is building now and whatever is happening in your life, it's being enhanced. You can actually get more done, make more aha moments, thrive and get in touch, of course, with your heart, with love. And it's a really powerful total eclipse that's coming up. Uh, it's in Sagittarius. The moon is opposite the sun in Gemini. And as I said, Mercury is at this point slowing down in Gemini where the sun is. And the north and south node are, nodes are in those signs as well. So this, this is really going to be a big moment and it's building now. Plus the eclipse, speaking of Jupiter and Pisces, the eclipse is square to Jupiter in Pisces. And that will enlarge and magnify the energy. The square does that anyway, because the square is a call to action. And of course, Pisces is the water sign of unconditional love. It reaches everywhere. We are all one. And Jupiter is the planet of expansion. So everything will be enhanced. And so you want to keep a sense of calm and proportion in any situation, especially when you are with others and give them the benefit of the doubt, especially since this eclipse is happening during the beginning of a Mercury retrograde. So what would be good to do now is to finish things up, to clean things up that need completion, forgive others, let them off the hook. If you feel a little bit scattered, this Jupiter and Pisces energy is creating a sense of unpredictability as well because water just goes everywhere and the expansiveness is also a sense of change, of movement. The waves of shifts and changes are really flowing right now. Jupiter and Pisces is highly spiritual energy and so we're very likely going to feel even more tuned in and connected and in touch with our intuitive sense, our soul, our heart. And because Jupiter represents abundance as well, and Pisces rules over things like spirituality and religion, and they're very similar. As I said, Jupiter was the original ruler of Pisces. So there's a sense of being at one with source energy, with God. And so there's a lot of opportunities to reach deeper levels of awareness. And of course, being the last sign of the Zodiac, Pisces is also about completing things and understanding the whole of the what just transpired, right, through all the 12 signs, coming to a place of transcendental wisdom. So with Jupiter expanding the vision, we can unlock a deeper appreciation of our journey and see the bigger picture. And it's also very dreamy energy being in Pisces so that your creativity, your inner creator is yearning to explore. So use your imagination in any way you can. This can be a great opportunity to work on creative projects or projects that deal with alternate realities or mysticism, astrology, numerology. And there's also a sense of you just 
you just have this inner knowing. Your intuition just provides everything that you need. You don't have to use your mind to analyze so much right now. You know, Jupiter has moved out of the sign that is can be very analytical, Aquarius, the air sign, and into a water sign. So this is really about sensing and trusting what you're receiving. And overall, this Jupiter and Pisces energy really blesses us with this beautiful energy that helps strengthen our connection to source and our relationship with others. The the whole sense of when we are with others, we are learning about ourselves. So relationship with others teach us a great deal about ourselves, and that's how we become one. Now, the thing to guard against with this combination in Pisces is to have your head in the clouds and not to be more in a place of illusion. So it's a very idealistic sign, Pisces, and combined with Jupiter's abundance and positivities, your expectations could go like really like beyond reality, beyond common sense. And so in order not to do that and set yourself up for disappointment, you want to rein that in and always stay connected with that intuitive sense of does it feel right to expand at this, at, to this extent. So some of the things that could be manifested in general over this time is for everyone, a new spiritual understanding, understanding also other people unconsciously, their unconscious drivers, what is driving them to this point, what is what in their belief system has brought them to this point, and being compassionate about how you deal with that, uh, respond to it. Remember, Jupiter also governs beliefs, Sagittarius, and we've talked a lot about beliefs in the last few podcasts. So this is a time to really extend compassion towards any belief or people who believe something uh, because it is has been indoctrinated by an external force. And then they have to come to terms with how their beliefs are being, are showing up for them in terms of results, right? So there's a growing interest in spiritual understanding, in what religion means, spirituality in general, um, there's a fascinating fascination with mysticism, with anything to do with self-understanding through the stars, through the codes, through frequency, through healing. There can be new research into emotional, mental, spiritual health. There can be shakeups in the creative industries, music, entertainment. Uh, photography, film, there can be like a real sense of just realizing how important those industries are and how using them for everybody's highest good as opposed to using them to manipulate or take control is, is very important. So, so these things will come into the fore and there'll be a greater acceptance of alternative healing. Pisces is opposite Virgo. They're connected. The opposite signs are always connected. And Virgo is the sign of healing. And so we have this sense of this the, the watery, beautiful, like being near water, having water sounds, having a indoor fountain or going to waterfalls, going to the ocean, going to lakes, going to rivers, going to creeks. And 
just immersing yourself in that fountain of wisdom that comes through water. Also, innovations regarding marine life and the state of our oceans. And since Pisces is a water sign, Jupiter can bring expansion and abundance in a really, really big way because it just grows and grows and grows. So that can also mean increased rainfall, increased flooding, increased water-themed events, anything water-themed, and increased healing. So unconditional love is really the basis of the Pisces experience, and that would mean to really let go of wanting to change others when we are in relationships, and that's really where we learn and experience love and being loved and being loving. We the, the first thing we have to do is want to change the person who we're with. And so love is more important than any conditioned belief, any conditioned idea of how things should be. But if you take your conditioning more seriously than love, you lose love. So this is really a big key moment in general about how seriously do you take your beliefs and do the beliefs actually take precedence over love? Basically, the other person or people are going to withhold love from you because it's too painful for him or her to love you if they are only aligned with their beliefs. To align yourself with love, with spirit, with the divine, and experience love and the other qualities of joy, Jupiter, and peace, Pisces, all you have to do is notice when love is present. And when you notice love and you acknowledge love, you are in a sense choosing love over the ego's ideas and beliefs. And that choice automatically brings you into alignment with the divine. So pay attention to when you notice love. The the most minute moments here is what we're talking about. And, you know, the love that's expressed in nature. This divine essence lives for love. Everything within you that is natural lives for love. And it's not dissuaded by any judgments or any differences or any separation, any beliefs. Because source loves because it sees similarities, not differences. It sees how others are like yourself and are on their own journey. And so from the divine, you can experience this oneness, this compassion, this unity with everyone from the sacred place, which which is love. And then it becomes easy to love because love flows when we recognize our own divine self in other people, right? So it flows when we're able to see beyond the the mind or behind the egoic mask of the true self, which then becomes beautifully lovable and then evokes love when we can see beyond that, right? So all the qualities we love in others are qualities of the divine self. They are compassion. They are understanding, kindness, caring, patience, inner strength, courage. They're not qualities of the ego, which is self-centered and only is focused on its own needs. You can't be compassionate, wise, and loving when all your goals are focused on what's right for me, what's good for me, and and never consider what's good for the greater whole, what is for everyone's greater good. 
So notice when you're identified with the ego, you don't feel very lovable yourself. But the essence that flows from the divine, from that Piscean, we are all one, from this beautiful essence, even makes the ego lovable, right? So, so nothing is not lovable in that state because the ego doesn't know how to love, but the divine in us knows always how to love. And when this joyful divine quality in us acts and speaks in a kind, compassionate, sensitive way, we truly can connect at a level where everything that flows from us doesn't come from the ego. And that love then is the healing balm for everything. Instead of saying, what's in it for me, which always lingers in the background of every interaction that is egoic. And that's not love. It's manipulation disguised as love or kindness. And maybe it's better than undisguised manipulation, you know, in your face manipulation that's not hidden, but it's still not love in the purest sense. Pure love can only come from your true nature. It's that beautiful essence that is pure and it's unadulterated goodness and kindness. So this is the quality that loves because it feels good to love. And there's no other reason. There's no ulterior motive, right, which is manipulation. So why does it feel so good to be loving? Jupiter and Pisces wants us to immerse ourselves in the loving energy. So why does it feel so good? Because it is our natural design. It's the divine nature to love since it's God's nature to love. The ego is the part of ourselves that has difficulty loving because loving makes it feel vulnerable. And loving someone gives that other person that we're loving power. That's something to notice, right? The ego wants to be the one in control and power, so it's hard for the ego to love. If we love someone, that person presumably has the power to then at some point hurt us or disappoint us. And the ego doesn't want to relinquish that power. And yet the ego does have a need, an underlying need, because we naturally are made from love. The ego has an underlying need to be loved, so it is vulnerable. And this love sense, this stretching, this Jupiter expansion in Pisces, love stretches the ego. Without that need for love, the ego could just comfortably be separate. It would be comfortable. It wouldn't ever reach out to others or act differently than it does. But because the ego does need love underneath it all, it must learn to love. And that is ultimately what then leads to the ego's dissolving, right? So, and that's because ego and love cannot be in the same space. One must go. It's either one or the other. And since our nature is to be oneness, Pisces, we are one with everything that exists, but we have been programmed to feel separate rather than to feel our oneness. That original oneness with the divine was then differentiated into two and then into three and then into four and five and so on and so on until it filled the universe with diversity and with uniqueness, individuality, right? So, 
This oneness rejoices in that grand spread of diversity, Jupiter and Pisces, because it provides a means for exploring and interacting with itself in limitless ways, which were not possible when there was just oneness without the division. So, of course, that separation from oneness is painful because it is maintained by the egoic mind that doesn't love. So we're separate not only from experiencing oneness, but we're also separate from experiencing love, right, because of the division, except for, for those moments, those special moments when we do feel love, right? But the true love from our own nature is always there. It's always in the background. It trickles through this sense of separation and always is guiding us and always beckoning us back into our natural state. So here's the thing. Eventually, we all turn return to this oneness, this state that we came from. And we now come to this incredible return with an amazing gift. And Jupiter is the bringer of gifts, of fortune. And that gift is that we now have the awareness and appreciation of our individuality and uniqueness while being one with all. And that is really the return that is happening now. So we bring what we've learned through the experience of separation back to the oneness that we are. And that is the gift. That is the journey. So we return to oneness wiser for having been the creators of this reality and coming to an understanding of how it all, in the end, brings us back. So the adventure is complete. So love is what breaks that spell, that spell of the egoic separate state of consciousness. And love releases us from that prison of separation where we don't feel one with others for whatever belief or reason. It's love from others, from our relationships, that ultimately frees us because we then become one with them. We then become vulnerable and we have opportunities, uh, manifold opportunities to explore what it means to love or not to love. And Jupiter and Pisces then brings us home through the joyful expression of who we are. So we're coming home to love through joy. And feeling the joy while we experience life with others, always coming home to that joy, whether it is through humor or just pure allowing a joyful perspective to imbue whatever situation you're in, no matter what situation you're in, to be present with love and with caring and compassion and kindness. So this is really the message to come back home, return to oneness with that wisdom of having learned about the experience of separation and trusting in your true origins, that God is love. And another way to find out about your actual soul, your purpose for being here right now, is through your code. You have a star code as well, just like I talk about the star codes. 
We all have a personal star code. And to explore your own star code, I have a free masterclass for you at starcodeclass.com. So head on over there and you'll see how you can discover your life purpose, your destiny, look at the birth certificate name, what it means, your birthday, the degree numbers in your astrology chart, so much more. This is a wonderful opportunity to immerse yourself in the mystical, right? The truth of frequency. So enjoy that at starcodeclass.com and have a beautiful week and a beautiful movement into the Mercury retrograde Sagittarius total solar eclipse coming up on the 26th of May. And I will see you next week for our next Star Codes podcast. Lots of love. Pass the talking stick back to you, Richard. Okay, real quick. Yes. The first half of Gemini, the key word is discovery. All right? Mm -hmm. And closely connected with discovery is curiosity, Mm -hmm. and that's a Mercury sort of thing going on here. It's a Mercury component. Uh, closely related to the the nature of your curiosity and your uh, attitude towards discovery. The second half of Gemini is, the key word there is exteriorization. Exterior what, Richard? Ization. Making exterior, right? Exteriorization. Making exterior, yeah. So bring the bring your bring your inside out, you know. Oh, okay. Or share or share your discoveries. That sort of thing. So that's the general idea for um, for Gemini, and. We'll uh, we'll talk again soon, okay? Thank you. Yes, I'm so looking forward. Thank you, Richard. All right. Namaste, everyone. And, uh, of course, have have a great week. And uh, cyst authority, cynicism, healthy cynicism. I think goes along with Gemini, you know. When you think about what Dr. Greer said today, uh-huh. and uh, in that other early article with that that list of i i uh, list of approaches about the new world order. Yeah, that was a good one. That that's was a good. that's a good one to share around. Yes, I thank you. I All right, good night, everybody. Good night, okay. Commander, and uh, we will uh, be uh, taking our leave as well. We're going to go to our conference call. Rama, what's the numbers? 720-716-7301. And the PIN code? 353-863-POUND. 
All right, and we will be right back here at the top of the following hour at BBS Radio, Station 2, the best radio in the universe. It's only getting more intriguing, you might say. We've got our curiosity up, I'm sure. <laughs> All right. We'll see you on the conference and cuss and discuss this. And namaste, everyone. So much love. So tell people what we're going to do now. This is um, a new Greg Braden, as far as I know. And it's he's talking about a rejuvenation, regeneration, and longevity. <clears throat> Says how... I, Tell me how long it says it really is, because it says on the front here well, it's an I hour and a half. Started and see. Um, for the first time in our history, technology that mimics our biology and vir- okay, stop. Okay. Hour and thirty minutes. There you go. Okay, and virtual realities that mimic the most intimate relationships are now changing our story. The danger is clear. As we replace our natural biology and powerful emotions with artificial technology, our neurons, our cells, our unique abilities and coping mechanisms begin to atrophy. We lose the very qualities that we value and cherish as humans. Tune into this compelling presentation on the discoveries that catapult us beyond the conventional thinking as it comes to creating optional states of physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual states of health and healing. So this is an hour and a half, everybody. Here we go. I got a kitty uh, walking on my foot. Hello. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Gaia presents Gaia Sphere Event Center. Greg Braden, Pure Human. Hello and welcome to Gaia Sphere. I'm Charlie Hirsch, your host for this very special presentation. Gaia Sphere presents Pure Human with Greg Braden. I'd like to welcome all of our Gaia Live Access members joining us from around the world. Your dedication to your personal transformation is what makes this community so special. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome to Gaia Sphere, returning a five-time New York Times bestselling author and host of the critically acclaimed Gaia original series, Missing Links. Ladies and gentlemen, our personal favorite, none other than Greg Braden. Well, good morning. Are you as happy to be in this room as I am to be in this room right now? I've waited my whole life to be here with you. I want you to know. So, wow. This is, uh, I just want to tell you, it feels really, really good to be here. And this is my, uh, my first event of 2021. It's the first event that I've done since February of 20. It's the first time I've been out of my home state 
since uh, since February of 20. So I can't think of a better place for us to come. So I have to just tell you a secret. It came in late last night to do the tech check. And we came into this, this room. Isn't this an awesome room? It really is. And they said, well, you think this is a venue for a conference, but this is really the command deck of the vehicle <laughs> of for our conscious journey that is going to propel us into our collective future. We're on a spaceship together. <laughs> so, um, so hey, I want to welcome each of you. We're also streaming live today. I'm going to look right in the camera. My streaming live audience, I know that you are all over this beautiful planet that we live on. You're right here with us, though. We saved you seats right here. And um, I just want you to know that we're very aware that you're tuning in, and we thank you from wherever you are. You know, I, I think we're all discovering in this COVID experience, we've become very accustomed to look at computer screens. Would you agree? And Zoom meetings and WebEx <laughs> meetings and things like that. You all, you're all doing that, right? Yeah. But there is more going on in those screens than just photons dancing across the computer screen. I think we are discovering that there's a part of us that reaches beyond those screens and connects mm-hmm. on levels that we've always been aware of, but now we're really becoming sensitive to. I don't know about you, but I know that often when I'm on a Zoom meeting or if I'm watching a presentation and I start to feel something else happening in my body, I say, well, wait a minute, I'm not just watching this. It's touching me in some way. Mm-hmm. So for our streaming audience, uh, I hope that you have that experience as well. And I just want to thank you all for uh, for getting up in all the time zones that you're getting up to be with us. So I know I was not here when Charlie came out a while ago and he asked where you're from. And I, I would just like to know who is from beyond the greater Denver, Boulder, Colorado area beyond that. Who is from beyond the state of Colorado area? Wow. Is there anyone from beyond the borders of this big, beautiful country of the United States? Anybody from? Wow. Okay, I'm just going to ask right now because we're going to lay the foundation for us the program. Who is not from Earth? <laughs> okay, we just might as well get it out there. Just That's okay. It's okay. <laughs> All right. So I want uh, I want to begin this morning. There is an entire team working behind the scenes. Some of them you have seen, some of them you will not see, but I want you to know that they're there behind this wall back here. Those little doors, it looks like manned spacecraft control center in Houston with all of the monitors uh, that there are and all the controls. So I just want to give a shout out to everybody that's helping us, our AV team, the people behind the wall, all of our staff that came in early, early, early before the sun came up this morning to make this possible. Will you help me with them? Thank you. Thank you all. We love you guys so much. Um, This program, I'm really excited to share this program with you because It is more than just a conference. This is more than just a conference. And I think you'll, you'll sense that if you, if you have not already. But I need your permission before I begin these slides because I need us all on the same page. Are you okay if we go really, really deep with content that may actually go against mainstream narratives 
that we are being bombarded with in our everyday lives. Are you okay with that? Okay, I'm saying this because it may push some buttons. Are you okay with that? (laughs) Having a button pushed is not always bad. It is an opportunity to think differently about something that you have been led to believe in one way or another. I think uh, I think we're going to laugh a lot in here today and tomorrow. I think we'll probably have some tears today or tomorrow. And I think we're probably going to have some surprises. Because I'm going to share new discoveries with you that are so new, they are not being shared in the mainstream. You're not seeing this stuff in mainstream classrooms or textbooks. We've had medical students, we've had medical doctors in my audience right before COVID that were asking me the question, Greg, why don't we know about this? Why isn't this stuff being taught? And there's a reason that they're asking that question. Because the discoveries are changing the way that we have been led to think about ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask you one more question. Are you prepared to journey with me and to embark upon the most radical experience, the single most radical experience that a human is capable of? Are you okay if we do that together? Now, that doesn't sound very enthusiastic. Are you? Do you do you know what that what that single most radical experience is? Do you have any idea what that might be? I'm going to do this because I want to be closer to you. The most radical thing that you and I can do is to think differently about ourselves and our relationship to our own bodies and our relationship to the world. And if you have any doubt that that is a radical act, you need to look no further than the world around us because there's a battle that's unfolding in our world right now. We're going to explore that battle this morning. It's a battle for our thoughts. It's a battle for our beliefs, but it goes even deeper than that. And when you see what that battle is really all about, what you'll also see, very different way of thinking, is that all of the noise and the static out there is a diversion for the most fundamental, the most powerful battle that you could ever, ever imagine. It is a battle for our very humanness. Our species is on the line right now. Decisions are being made right now. It's not going to be five years, ten years. This is going to happen really quickly because technology is pushing the boundary. The boundary between biology and technology, the boundary between human life and artificial intelligence and machines. And it's happening in ways that you probably are not even aware of. And it is being accepted in some societies so fast. Mm. Nobody's talking about this. You're not seeing it in the mainstream. And I'll just tell you where we're going with this. And then I'm going to back up my words with the discoveries. I'm a high-tech guy. I think most of you know that. I worked in the corporations. Uh, Actually, right here. I I lived and worked in Denver, well, down there. I lived and worked in Denver, Colorado in the uh, late 1970s, 80s, early 90s. I worked in some of the highest technology industries that were available at that time. Um, I worked on the SDI, Star Wars Defense Initiative. I applied for a job to explore the universe with technology, and they hired me 
And then they said, well, you know, the Cold War is happening. We don't need you to explore the universe. We need you to do this other, to write software for the, the Star Wars program. And I, I went through a lot of emotional issues around that. That's a, there's a whole workshop we could do around that. But the reason I'm saying this is because I have experienced technology. I was the first tech ops manager at Cisco Systems. I know a lot of you know that. Uh, Palo Alto, California, the early internet. So I've seen the technology that's out there. What I want to say to you, and you're going to, you're going to see this, I have yet to see any technology ever built outside of the human body that does not mimic what you and I already do in the cells of our bodies, except we do it better. Mm-hmm. And when we begin to replace our natural biology, we begin to replace that with chips, computer chips, wires, chemicals in the blood, what happens is our biology begins to atrophy. We begin to lose those capabilities. In the one generation, maybe it's recreational technology. But the next generation, those capabilities begin to disappear, and we begin to lose our humanness. That is what's on the line right now. You get where I'm coming from? Can you feel that? This is very, very powerful, and it is happening under the guise of the diversions and the distractions that are inundating the news waves, that are inundating the textbooks and the classrooms. I was just with a group of young people. They don't have any idea that this battle is unfolding because they've never been taught to cherish the sacredness of the human body. There's a thinking, and unfortunately is a groundswell of thinking, that somehow, we are flawed because we are carbon-based life Mm. and that our technology will allow us to improve upon that. So I'm not anti-tech. Technology has its place. But we're now at a point where the technology is moving faster than the morals and then our values Mm. have been able to follow. And now we must choose what is it that we cherish and what do we value as humans what do we value about our species? And that's where we're going to go with this. So is that anybody in the wrong program? Anybody Anybody thought you came here for something else? So are you okay if we have this conversation? Now I'm going to ask you again. Can we go really deep? Are you all right with that? All right. Uh, I am going to share the discoveries to back up what I'm saying. We're going to begin that here in, in just a moment. We will have experiential processes. Because of COVID, there are, are times where I would have you in groups, and we're not going to do that to honor you. Um, so I may ask you to, to do some things inwardly, and we will go through uh, some guided techniques and processes. When we leave here tomorrow, you're going to think very, you will have the reason. I don't know that you will, but you will have the reason to think very differently about yourself. Your relationship to your body, your relationship to the world. Your relationship to the past, your relationship to the future, you have the reason to think differently about those. So what I want to say is this. We all have belief systems. You have your belief systems, I have mine. And our belief systems have served us. We have to say they have served us because we're here. Whatever we believe, it got us here right now. So they served us. So I'm going to invite you to do this in your mind and in your heart. 
whatever that belief system is that you have right now, put it in the little file folder in your mind. It's called my beliefs. And then open another file folder. Let's call it possibilities. Let's just do that in our mind and in our heart. Everything I'm going to share with you over these next two days, I'm going to invite you to take that information and put it in that file folder called possibilities because I would never attempt to convince or persuade you of anything. I love you, and I want you to know the deep truth of who you are and who we are. There's a reason that you and I are in this world right now. We've never seen a world like this before. And I'm going to invite you to think about this before we even go any further. Do you know? Do you know what a powerful being it takes to be in this world right now? Have you thought about that? Think about where you and I are, all of us. We're in a world where everything that we have known in the past and that we've mastered to whatever degree we mastered and that we've been comfortable with, that we've become accustomed to, they're disappearing. And they're disappearing really quickly. And there's a new world that is emerging, but it's not here yet. Do you know what a powerful being it takes to live in a world where everything that's familiar is going away, but the new world is yet to emerge. And at the same time, you're trying to make a living, you're trying to stay healthy, you're trying to have some semblance of a healthy, intimate human relationship with other humans, making a living, living your passion. We're trying to do all of that without getting lost in the fear of the world that is yet to come because we don't know what that world looks like. Do you know what a powerful being Guess what you think about? That's where you are right now. You know, why didn't you come to this world 80 years ago? It's a whole different world. You wouldn't have to make the choices and decisions that we're making. You ever thought about that? I think about that a lot. Why are we here right now? Our species is on the line. And we've never had to say that before. Because we have advanced so quickly in some areas and we're catching up in other areas. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to explore with you. Okay, so you all good if this is where we're going? All right, you ready for that? <laughs> Any questions before I begin? Okay, I will have the opportunity. We are going to do uh, some questions. We'll probably, I'm, I'm going to talk a lot about the technology before lunch, and I will open up uh, a Q&A. Just so that is clarified before lunch, because this is context. I could come in here without any of the context, and I could say, close your eyes, go into your heart, do these things. You'd say, okay, cool, and you'd write some notes, close my eyes, go into my heart, do these things. And, you know, it would be good. But the context, somebody asked me at the hotel, they said, are you going to have an experiential, an experiential element in this program? I said, from my perspective, the whole program is experiential. Now, we, we will have techniques that you would probably call meditations uh, and some techniques to harmonize the nervous system in very precise ways. But even if we didn't do those, the act of thinking differently is an experience. Mm-hmm. That is an experience. Mm-hmm. So, yes, this is a deeply experiential program because... It will probably challenge at least some of your belief systems. And for others of you, it's going to be right along the line. You'll say, yeah, you know, this is 
this is what I've always felt. This is what I believe. This is what uh, my, my intuition is telling me. This is what my guides are telling me, wherever it's coming from. So, um, so this is where we're going to go with this. Now, I'm, I'm going to begin. I'm going to begin. If I could go ahead and have our first slide up here, please. See how good these guys are? I asked for the slide and it just appears. What we're really talking about is our story. Now, when people hear the word story, a lot of times it sounds like kind of an abstract concept. It sounds like kind of a philosophical and academic idea. I want to share with you why our story is so powerful. Our story is the way we've been taught to think about ourselves. We all have a story. Our story, I'll just ask you, where does your story come from? Where did you learn to think about yourself the way you think about it? And you can just shout it out to me. Where, where did you learn to think about yourself? Parents, school, community, exactly, religion, TV, internet, uh, universities, science, textbooks, friends, culture, society. All of those influence the way that we've been led to think about ourselves. You say, okay, I got that. So what? What's the big deal? This is what I want to show you. This is the big deal. Our story matters because you and I live our lives based upon the way we've been taught to think about ourselves. Every mo- every nano moment of every day is based upon the way we've been taught to think about it ourselves. We solve all of our problems. We say, well, I don't, I don't have any big problems, even the little logistical problems. If you got to pick the kids up from soccer and there's a roadblock and you have to find another way to to pick up the kids. The way that you go about doing that is based upon the way you've been taught to think about yourself. Navigating COVID, the way that you are doing that, it's based upon your story. What you're doing for income, what you feel worthy of doing for income, how you help other people, how you honor the protocols. It's all based upon your story. We choose our relationships. Think about this. Every relationship that you've ever invited into your life, consciously or unconsciously, it's based upon your story. All of your friendships, all of your romance, everyone you've invited into your house, everyone you've ever invited into your bed. Now we get really intimate. It's based upon the way that you've been taught to think mm-hmm. about yourself, your self-esteem, your self-worth. Mm-hmm. We heal our bodies based upon our story. You go for a medical exam and the doctor says to you, there's something happening in your body that looks anomalous. The way you respond to that information, it's based upon the way you've been taught to think about yourself. Mm-hmm. It's not right, wrong, good, or bad. I just want you to see how fundamental your story really is. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> our politics are based upon our story, and we know that really well. Yeah. Here in the United States of America and a lot of other nations are going through very similar Experiences of elections and polarization. Have you noticed how polarized not just the nation is, but communities and families? Are you all seeing that? Mm-hmm. I've got friends who have children. They're young adults that cannot even have dinner at the same table because they believe the information that's being shared with them. And they believe what they are seeing in their algorithm on their computer is correct and what everybody else is saying is not correct while everybody else is having the same belief. How do you find unity in a family or community 
or a society or a nation or a planet when the artificial intelligence algorithms are driving the information, tailoring it to our beliefs so that we're reinforcing our own beliefs every time we log on to those computers. Mm. It's all based upon your story. Mm. You're beginning to see how powerful your story really is. Look at this. We build our society based upon the way we've been taught to think about ourselves. What values do we cherish in our society? And those values, the role that they play. So all of a sudden, you're beginning to see, can you see this, where our story is more than a philosophical conversation? Do you get that? You really see our story. Our story is front and center to everything that's happening. What could be more important than new discoveries that change the way that you and I have been taught to think about ourselves. This program, I'm excited to share this with you because these two days, this is a celebration. It's a celebration of our humanness. It is a celebration of moving from, from fear into freedom and mastery. And I'll just give you the bottom line. What we are, are learning is that you and I are the only species with the ability to self regulate our biology. Now think about that. We are the only form of life known to exist that can consciously in a moment in time sit down and say in this moment I choose to strengthen my immune system. (laughs) Who doesn't want that in a pandemic world? We're the only form of life that can sit down in a moment in time and say I consciously choose to awaken the longevity enzymes in every cell in my body. Who doesn't want that? We got the, we have actually two sections talking about longevity, regeneration, rejuvenation, and healing. Because ultimately, if, if you're talking about longevity, you're really talking about healing. You can only live long if, if you're healing along the way. We're the only form of life that can do that. We're the only form of life that can sit down a moment in time and say in this moment, I choose to access deep states of intuition on demand we're not, not spontaneously, like it happens for all of us on occasion, on demand, when we need it the most. No other form of life can do that. It's all based upon our story. But ultimately, what you and I are doing, this is a love story. So I want to thank you all for sharing a love story with me this weekend. It's a love story. It's our love story. And here's the question that we're all asking ourselves, consciously or subconsciously. Do we love ourselves enough to live our lives in a way that allows our bodies to be at their best and do what they're made to do? Do we love ourselves enough to live our lives and to nourish our bodies and to give our bodies what they need to be at their best? And most people that we ask that question, they don't know what that means. This is where the self-regulation comes in. So I wanted to share a love. Everybody likes a love story, right? Anybody want a love story? Love stories are good. So I want to set the stage and what we're going to do here. The old story. I went to school 1950s. (laughs) I was just sharing. I've got a 50-year high school class reunion coming up. Oh, my God. Anybody had one of those? I need advice. Should I go? (laughs) Should I? I? I lost... You know, it's interesting. We were just having this discussion in, in backstage in the green room. 
when I was a kid, I thought I left <clears throat> my home because I went to a new experience of going away to school. But all of my friends said, you left us behind. And so most of them have stayed local and, uh, and they've lived their lives and their dreams. And, um, and I'm kind of the out, the outcast because I went away mm-hmm. and, uh, I, I think I'd like to go back and maybe see everybody. Some people change more than others from, uh, I didn't have a beard in high school. My hair was way longer in high school. I have to tell you. And okay. It was a little darker, a little darker. <laughs> so the old story when I was in school, 1950s, 60s, early 70s, we were given a way of thinking about ourselves. And that story directly impacts the way that we think about ourselves in the world. I was told, and most of you probably were too, that we are the product of a universe that began with what's called the Big Bang. (laughs) Obviously, a male physicist coined that term, and it's true. It was a male because a female physicist would never call the beginning of the entire universe the Big Bang. She would call it something like the first breath of the new dawn, of the new beginning. Of, But we were taught that we come from a dead universe, an inert universe, that is the product of lucky physics. Just happened to occur. That's what we were taught. What we know now, the new discoveries, this isn't being taught in the schools, is the universe is not the product of this random process. The universe is alive. It's not dead. It's conscious and it's even intelligent. We now know that the universe has an innate intelligence that underlies all existence. And in a universe that is alive, you would expect to see life emerge, which is us. All right. The universe is not random. What we know is the universe actually is ordered. My dear friend, my, my spiritual brother, my colleague, Nassim, was just uh, in this room a few weeks ago talking about that order. Was anybody here? Anybody had the opportunity to? Thank you for supporting Nassim. And I know it was a smaller audience at, at that time, so I feel blessed to have a, a bigger audience. Nassim's work, the, the radical physics based upon his personal discoveries are based upon the ideas that the universe is ordered. His physics works because of the order that underlies all existence. We don't live in a random universe. Mm -hmm. And that means that life is not random as well. And when it comes to us, we're told that we're the product. I had such a hard time with this. We are the product of what's called lucky biology. That you and I, now this is important, that we are the product of essentially an accident, a series of accidents in biology, random mutations that just happen to occur over long periods of time. This is what you and I have been taught. And when you're taught to think of yourself in that way, it influences the way you deal with other people, the way you feel about the earth, the way you feel about your own body. The news story is telling us something very different. The news story is, and we're going to go through this, um, probably do it tomorrow. I want to share this with you. The new science that used to be science fiction, now that we can extract the DNA from the fossilized remains of the beings that we used to think were our ancestors and compare their DNA to ours, guess what? They're not our ancestors. We didn't (laughs) descend from them. That's a mind blower. 
in the world of academia, and it is blowing up the world of academia. There's a struggle. I have friends of mine who are college professors, 40-year careers, and they won't teach the new discoveries to their students. They said, we're going to wait until we retire and let the new young professors take that one on. We're going to continue to teach the old story. No. And I asked them, I said, I said, why not share with with your students? Why not share the, the new ideas, the new discoveries? And they said, do you have any idea how much money it would take to change all the, the textbooks? And I said, man, you're really a dinosaur. They're not using textbooks. It's all on the computer. You change it on the server. And they said, well, I would have to change all my class notes, you know, that I've developed over 40 years of my career. And I said, well, that's what you're getting paid for. And they said it would invalidate my 40-year career as a scientist. And I said, no. no. I said, it would actually validate the role of science because science is dynamic. It's meant to be updated as new discoveries emerge. Right. So you'd be teaching your students that science is, is a valid inquiry, a valid way of, of inquiry. It's not static. I said, just give them everything. Give them the old ideas, give them the new ideas, and let them make the decisions. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they don't want to do that. So... We now know that we are the product, and I will spend a little bit of time because I want you to see the mutations. We're the product of mysterious mutations that happened all at the same time 200,000 years ago. A scientist agree that we emerged. We are called anatomically modern humans. We emerged 200,000 years ago. No, no controversy there. How we emerged is the controversy. <laughs> Mysterious mutations, they didn't happen slowly, gradually, over a long period of time. Boom, they were there 200,000 years ago, and you and I haven't changed in 200,000 years genetically. I think we've evolved in consciousness. Mm-hmm. But this is this is the new story. The old story, now think about this. The old story, I was taught that the fundamental rule of nature is competition. How many of you were taught that? Survival of the strongest, dog eat dog. You ever told you were live you live in a, in a dog eat dog world? Anybody ever hear that? When you're a young kid and you hear that, it changes the way that you think of yourself with your friends, how you interact with other people. What would it mean if we had an entire generation of young people that we shared the new story, the new story that the fundamental rule of nature is actually cooperation. And if there's any doubt in your mind that cooperation is that fundamental rule, guess what? You carry the evidence in your body. Over 50 trillion cells in the average human body, and every one of those cells is based upon principles of cooperation. They weren't cooperating, you wouldn't be here in this chair. (laughs) You wouldn't be in this room. So we model this fundamental rule of nature Based on cooperation, how differently would you have lived your childhood life if you felt that the world around you was your friend rather than something that you had to defend yourself from or that you had to somehow master or find superiority over? It's a very, very different way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So these these are the stories. And, and nature, the nature in, in the big world, beyond our bodies – based upon cooperation, and we see it, we see it so much, we have become so accustomed to seeing it that sometimes we don't even recognize the levels of cooperation. Now, I want to be really clear, I'm, I'm a degree scientist, degree geologist, 
uh, I, I have seen in the fossil record the evidence that many people are pointing to. We're not saying that competition doesn't exist, but it's not the rule of nature. When you see competition, the more competition you see, that tells you how far that life has strayed from the fundamental rule of nature. You look at our world right now. Would you agree there's a lot of competition in the world right now? Mm. Yeah. And it's it's hard for us because we have strayed from this fundamental rule of, of nature. So I think you begin to see this is more than just academia that we're talking about. The story, our story, the way that we have been led to think about ourselves, it's got real consequences in the real world. Mm-hmm. So think about this. You and I, we were in school. We were taught that the fundamental rule of nature is competition. We grew up and we built the society. We filled in the pieces of the society that exists. Look at the world that we know right now. The economic system that is buckling and collapsing, it's based upon competition and struggle. The financial system that is collapsing is based upon struggle and competition. And the reason that they are collapsing is because they're not sustainable. We've seen the ultimate price of competition in our lives. I toured Japan and I went to this very this very site. I think you probably all recognize this. Uh, this is Hiroshima. It was a very interesting experience because it bothered me more than it bothered the people, the locals that I was with. They've become accustomed to it. Mm-hmm. And I agonized over it. And I still do that we would use technology in the way that it was used to hurt so many people in such in such a horrible way. So think I, I was thinking on the plane the other day about this. Look at where competition is right now. What would happen? Think the world is in such, such a delicate place right now. And the powers that can make the difference, they believe that competition is the way to make that difference. What would happen? If these superpowers work together, what would happen if Russia and China and the United States and Iran all worked together and got together and said, how can we pool our scientists, our technology, our engineers, Mm -hmm. our social workers to help the people of this world because we love our nations and we love this world? See how different that would be? Can you feel that? I could almost cry saying that. Can you? Mm-hmm. If I do, my voice changes, and it's a whole different different workshop. So that, that'll be tomorrow. <laughs> Think, this could happen. Mm-hmm. It's all possible, and it may. Mm-hmm. It may. Because there are pivotal events that are unfolding that don't fit the ideas of the past. Mm-hmm. Our story is changing. Yes. The fundamental story is you and me. And when we get to the core of who we are, what our potential is, everything else pales. All of a sudden, all the diversions and all those distractions take on new meaning. And you have the ability to transcend the great fears that are being perpetuated upon us because you know your true relationship to those things that we're being taught to fear. And I think you all know what I'm talking about here. So, the old story, the old story, and I see, unfortunately, I've seen this all over the world. Mm. The idea that human life 
is the product of just random mutations. If you think that, where's the specialness in that? We begin to lose the value of human life. And this is the reason so many young people, when you talk to them, why are they abusing the drugs? Why are they putting those chemicals into their bodies? Why are they destroying the delicate tissues in their brains? They've never been taught how sacred and precious a human life is because the story doesn't support that. doesn't support that. And when we see our communities collapsing, I live in the high desert of northern New Mexico, but I've traveled to Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Chicago, New York recently. Have you noticed the increased numbers of people that have no home to live in? Yeah. And the how we are becoming accustomed and almost callous to seeing that. I think you're all seeing that. And it's not it's not about any one leader, it's not about any one political party. It's a way of thinking because we have never been taught the story of who we are and how precious and sacred life really is, human life or animal life. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I could have put some other images up here and I didn't, but you know factory farming is just horrid. It's horrendous. Yes. And the way that we treat animals, the way that we treat the earth, the way that we treat the earth is based upon our story, the way we've been taught to think. If we're just random mutations in a world that just accidentally happened, where's the specialness in that? I remember, and some of you, I'm looking at ages. I don't know your ages because we're all ageless. But I would imagine some of you can relate. I remember growing up in the Midwest. I was uh, born and raised in a rural community in northern Missouri. Anybody from Missouri? (laughs) Not many people are. (laughs) They're all waiting for me in my 50-year class reunion. That's why. (laughs) I remember fast food was just coming into vogue. The idea of traveling on a highway and stopping at a restaurant uh, that you drive through and you would get a meal. And it was it was very, very popular in late 50s, early 60s. But here's the thing. You finish your meal and now you've got wrappers for the sandwiches and you've got cups for the drinks and you've got the bag that everything came on in. And, and when you're finished with that. Because of our story and the way we've been led to think about ourselves, our relationship to the earth, what would you imagine happened with those cups and those bags and those wrappers? Mm. How many of you remember seeing the median in the highways just covered in litter? You remember seeing that? Until there was a consciousness that said, let's clean this up. Let's change it. (laughs) But the thinking, and I love this term. You ask somebody what they did with the, the, the trash, they said, well, I threw it away. Where is away? <laughs> away means it's not in your sight. Mm-hmm. It's away from you. <laughs> it's still there. I remember seeing the litter. It was just piled so high you couldn't even see the ground mm-hmm. underneath. And that was a thinking. It's based upon our story. This all keeps coming back. To our story, the old story says that you and I are weak and vulnerable victims of an external world, Mm. that we are powerless when it comes to our world and that we need help. The old story says that we need technology to save us from that outside world, that we need technology to realize our greatest potential. This is the old story. So I'm... This is a place where I typically have you break into groups. I'm not, but I'm just going to ask you to consider. And just has your story influenced your life? Can you see where where that thinking has influenced your life? 
I'm just going to – this wasn't planned. We didn't have a plan for anything like this. But anybody want, want – how is, has it influenced the way that you think about yourself? How's your story influenced? Anybody want, want to say anything about that or no? Ultimately keeps us disempowered. You, know, you don't feel like you can really do what you want to do with your life or with all that early programming. I'm, I'm going to repeat that. Ultimately keeps us disempowered. You feel like you cannot do what you'd like to do with your life because of the early programming. Did I get that right? Sharp as attack, right? Good memory. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. But it goes it goes beyond that because your story influences your relationships. This is where it gets really, really personal. You think, okay, well, trash on the highway is one thing, but now we're talking about intimate human relationships. How's your story influenced your health, the way that you thought about your health? Do any of you think about your health differently now than you did when you were younger? Yeah. What, what is the difference? What do you think differently? You said yes out loud. What, what is the difference? You're getting younger. I, and I'm going to show you why you're getting younger. <laughs> we're going to talk about cyclic aging. Do any of you feel more empowered to take responsibility for your health more so now than when you were younger? Anybody feel that? Yeah. Let me see hands. Who, who feels that? What do you attribute that empowerment to? Awareness, waking up. It's changing your story. How's your story influence your jobs and your career? Have you ever found yourself feeling limited? You say, well, you know, I really... I really, okay, I'll just do it for myself. I'd really love to be a touring rock musician, <laughs> which I tried in the 60s. <laughs> and I oh, am about to try again. <laughs> I was a musician long before I was ever an author. And um, COVID has given me the opportunity to, how, how many of you have done things during COVID that you've been wanting to do for a long time? So I'm working on my, my album, my CD, uh, Singer Song. Songwriter, somebody asked me last night how I would characterize it. I, I guess I have to think of it. I would call it heavy industrial underground folk. <laughs> Punctuated with some shred, ripping, screaming guitar and power chords. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, the way we think about ourselves. We, when we go to apply for a job, how many of you have thought, man, I'd love to have that job, but oh, I'm not qualified for it. Or, you know, I don't have a degree, and that's not where my degree is in. What you're going to be discovering is, and, and I think we're finding this, education is important, but degrees are no longer the requirement for success. And this is changing the way our young people are thinking about themselves and their relationship to the story. So all of that to say, and I wanted to spend some time, I said to you, your, your story matters, and now I've given you the reasons, just in case you have any doubt in your mind about why your story matters. I want you to see that. So can you see, if you change your story, what would you imagine follows? What else changes? Change your story? Change your life. That's right. But what happens if we change our collective story? Change our story? What changes? Absolutely. You change the world. That is what's on the line right now. I want to tell you the stakes have never been higher. The stakes have never been higher. There is a planet up for grabs right now because the systems are buckling and collapsing. And 
the power that used to be able to hold those systems together is at a loss for why they can no longer hold those systems together. I think you're all seeing that. And for and I'm saying they're, they're good people or bad people. I'm not going that way. What I'm saying is I know people in positions of power. They don't know what you and I are about to explore. So they are responding to the world in the only way they know how by trying to go back to what worked in the past, which we would typically do if we didn't know better. The problem is you can't go back to what no longer exists. And the world that we used to know in here and out there no longer exists. We can only move forward. There's a new world that's emerging, but it's not here yet. And that is where the juicy stuff is. It's not here yet because you and I are creating it. We're creating it. So as we build the values for that new world, that is where we have the opportunity that we probably have never had in recorded human history. So I said to you, there's a battle for our story. There's a battle for our story. It's a battle for our thoughts. Have you all noticed this battle playing out in mainstream media? First of all, who who is even watching? Who stopped watching mainstream media? Probably the healthiest thing any of us can do. But a lot of our friends and family are still watching. Would you agree? Yeah. There's a battle playing out for our thoughts. And it's not on just one or two different networks. I have sampled many. And even those I used to trust and those that I used to believe were relatively objective, have lost that, unfortunately. So it's a battle for our thoughts that's playing out. There's a battle for our beliefs. What do you believe about climate change? Is it real or is it not? There's a battle playing out. As a geologist, I am right in the core of, of that battle. A longer program, we could talk more about that. You've seen, you're at Gaia. You can go and see entire Gaia programs that I've done based upon the new science. But there's a battle for what we think about Climate change. There's a battle for what we think about chemtrails. There's a battle for the information about the chemtrails. There's a battle for what we think about 5G. Or if you're in China, 6G is where they are. They have already passed 5G. They're now implementing oh, 6G. God. God. It's a battle for the way we think about that. There's a battle for what we think about what we see in the skies at night. And there's been a lot of activity in the skies at night. And there's a battle for what we think or who we think is behind what we see in the skies. Are they good or bad? Are they benevolent and helpful or are they mean? We don't want, there's a battle for how long that we believe we have had visitors from other worlds. We see the records of those visitations in thousands and thousands of year-old petroglyphs. It's been happening for a long time, but there's a battle for what we think about that. There's a battle for what we read, and you know, in the modern world, this this is amazing to think that this is even possible. Did you know, look at this, there are books that are banned in libraries, books that you're not allowed to read in university libraries and classrooms because they tell a different story. It's the most threatening thing you could ever imagine to read something that that inspires you to think objectively. It's being lost in our education system. I think you know that. I think you know you're seeing that happen. There's a battle for what we teach 
about who we are and where we come from. There's a battle for our bodies. There's a battle for the way we're taught to think about being healthy, how, how to get healthy. There's a battle for what we're taught about how to stay healthy. There's a battle for what we're taught to put into the bodies of our babies, our children. The hour that they emerge into this world, there's a battle for that. And now COVID has added to that battle. There are parents that don't want their newborns vaccinated with the COVID vaccine. There are very well-known celebrities that are taking their their bodies to other places, isolated, so that their babies can be born vaccine-free. Mm. It's happening right now. Some of them you probably know in, in, the, <clears throat> in popular press. A decision that everybody, everybody's going to have to make right now is what to do with the vaccines. And I'm not saying it's right, wrong, good, or bad. It's a very deep, very personal decision. But where's the information come from? Where do you get your information? But there's another battle. All those battles are happening. That's the static. All those battles are happening. Those are diversions. The ultimate battle is the battle that I began speaking about about 45 minutes ago. The ultimate battle that's playing out is a battle for our very humanness. Because once this is gone in the way that we've always known it, none of that other stuff makes any difference. There's a battle for our humanness. What do I mean by that? I'm going to share a series of discoveries. Uh, and the way I've done this, if you're, how many of you are taking notes? Anybody taking notes? Okay, people on the streaming, I want to see a show of hands streaming. Who's taking notes? Okay, I see people in Italy are taking notes. The Chinese are definitely taking notes. <laughs> okay, people in South America, they're just remembering everything. They don't need notes. Okay, cool, cool. So what I've done, we will have approximately 28 discoveries that we will share between now and tomorrow. So to help you to organize what I've done, each one is numbered. So you, if you wanted, you could do like one discovery. Per, you look like a very organized book that you have right there. Did you guys get Gaia books? Is that what the? Oh, you know, I thought this was such a hive mind. I thought we were so deeply connected that everybody just got the same book. I had no idea that Gaia gave you the book. <laughs> so what you could do is at the top of each page, you could have 28 pages. And then you could take notes for that discovery and... As we go further in the program and I reference back, you can go back and add to that discovery and be very organized. Just just a thought. I'm just saying. It's just possible, okay? <laughs> First discovery. I want to talk about technology. Now we, we've talked about it a little bit here. Technology is changing the way that life itself happens. In our species. Now, some of you may be aware of this and some maybe not. We now have the ability to go into the DNA of a fetus and rearrange the DNA to our desire, to our selection. Whoops. To create whatever we want that fetus uh -oh. to look like. Now, scientists have had that ability for a while. It's called gene editing. And some of you may not be familiar. This this is an example of text editing. You all have seen this, right? So text editor, you take the pages 
on a book or your manuscript and you can add and delete words, phrases, sentences, entire paragraphs, entire pages. You cut and paste where you want to go. So you're all good with that, right? Mm-hmm. That exact, exact idea is now what's happening with DNA. There's a technology, one of the, the first, that is called CRISPR. And this is a truly amazing technology. And I'm, I want to make a point here. The technology isn't good, bad, right, or wrong. It's how it's applied. You know, I've worked with the scientific community for a very long time. And there are two schools of thought among scientists. And they're always at odds with one another. One school of thought says if we were never meant to understand and develop these, we wouldn't have been given the ability to do it. So the act of developing the technology is the license to use it from that perspective. There's another school of science that say, oh, not so fast. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. And those two ways of thinking you're going to see playing out right here. So the ability to edit the genes in terms of terminal disease, cancers, uh, you know, it could be amazing. But look at this. Scientists knew about this in the lab. They never agreed to use it in real life. This is what uh, I just wanted to show you. This is actually how it works. This is an actual video clip of gene. Oh, I guess my pointer doesn't work on the screen. This is a video clip of, of gene editing. If you've never seen it happen, it's just like a, a word editor that you see. So they're taking little pieces. I have a video clip I want to share with you of the first edited gene in a DNA. Would you like to see that? Are you okay if I share it with you? Because once you see it, you can't unsee it. So here it is. This is the first real-time – I'm going to get out of the way here so you can all see it. The first real-time CRISPR image is what you're going to see. Where that little arrow is, I'm going to, I'm going to highlight it right there. See it? See it? And watch. Now it's gone. Uh, it'll loop again. Right there. It's there. It's there. It's there. It's there. And now it's gone. Did you see that? That was a gene being edited out of a strand of DNA. Or you can reverse that, and you can put a gene into the strand of DNA. Amazing technology. I mean, if I was in the lab, I would would be thrilled to be able to, to explore something like this. But it was never agreed upon to be used in real life until 2018, November 26th. This Chinese scientist made an announcement that stunned the world. He said he had gene edited the first human babies. Oh. And there was more than one. And those babies were, were born, and they have gene-selected characteristics. So the question, now the scientists came down on, on him like a ton of bricks. They said, wait a minute. Ooh. This is a technology that's possible, but we never agreed the morals of changing the DNA inside of a living fetus. We never agreed to that. And this is a battle that's playing out right now. It's playing out in the scientific community. It's still happening. It's unfolding. But here's the question. Engineering the qualities of life. Is that something we want to do? Because how do you know what qualities are desirable and what aren't? How do you determine what's desirable? We have a lot of diversity. Would you agree? We are a diverse species? Yeah. Is that a good thing? It is a good thing. So some of us 
like to use our minds, some of us like to use our bodies. You know, how do we know what is a desirable trait? Some of us come into this world with very, very special gifts and very, very clear hearts. Just amazing, amazing beings. Can you imagine living in a world where these special traits are edited away because someone chose to do that? Would you, would you want that to happen in the world? And, and who makes those decisions? Who decides? There are committees that are proposed to determine what traits are desirable and what traits are not. The diversity that keeps our species alive is now threatened because there are ideas that change over time. What is desirable today maybe won't be desirable two years from now or five years from now. So this is one of the places. Who decides what's, what's desirable? Diversity is actually our strength. Our diversity is being threatened right now. Our diversity is, is on the line. And I think this is something Do we want to engineer our diversity. Do you think, do we want to engineer our diversity away? Yes or no? What do you think? No? Or anybody think it's a good thing? I mean, I'm open to to ideas here. This is a very, very difficult conversation that, that scientists are having. I wanted you to see that gene engineering is changing the way that we even think about life. It's changing our biology. Discovery number two. The question, where do we end and machines begin? When I was a kid, I used to watch a lot of science fiction. And that stuff is no longer science fiction. Where does the human body end and where do the machines begin? And at what point do we cease to be human? So I'm, I'm just going to share a story with you. I live, as I mentioned, in a rural community in northern New Mexico. We have a little uh, community co-op where uh, I buy produce and groceries and things like that. Yeah. So I was in line with, and this was pre-COVID. This was before uh we were wearing masks and socially distanced. So I was in line mm-hmm. to pay at the checkout stand, and there was a man in front of me that had a, a lot of groceries, a lot of produce. I think he probably lived in an even more rural area. He'd come into town, you know, like once a month and get all his groceries and, and disappear. So he paid for all. I mean, he, they rang up all the groceries, and they put them in the basket. I was just kind of, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw something. And I, I wasn't sure. You know, when you see something that doesn't make sense, you have to kind of think, what did I just see? Mm-hmm. So what I saw was he pulled up his shirt sleeve <clears throat> and he ran his wrist over the scanner and walked out with the groceries. Uh-oh. And so oh, when no. I went to the, the checker, I said, what did I just see? <laughs> and it, he, he said to me, he goes, that was kind of weird, huh? He says, there's a couple of people that do that. And I said, what the hell was it? You know, what did I just see? He said, well, he has uh, an infrared tattoo in his wrist that's linked to his credit cards. Oh, and his bank account. All he did was scan his wrist and it was debited onto his accounts and he walked out the door. I said, you mean he doesn't have to sign for anything? He said, no, he, said, no, he didn't have to sign. Oh, no. Now, I'm not saying it's right, wrong, good or bad. But look at this is what these these little uh, infrared chips look like. And here, if, if you're a scientist, you want to see how these. By the way, I am okay 
Uh, if anybody, if there's a slide you're uh, really drawn to and you want to photograph that slide, one slide, you know, something like that, I'm okay with that. Not the whole program to be recorded, but but this shows you. I mean, here there, uh, it's showing you precisely how how these things work. Here's, whoops, I'm supposed to be over here. Hmm. Here's a wireless antenna that's here, and the uh, the communication oscillator. Here's the sensors, the ECG sensors, temperature sensors, the LED, the wireless powerless coil. It runs off of body electricity. We'll talk about in just a little while. So this stuff now is being developed. Here's MIT and Microsoft have developed something called Duo Skin, where this is an entire touchpad system that accesses the bioelectricity of the human body and does all kinds of things with it. So how, how far do we take something like that? Discovery number three, the technology is pushing the human machine boundary. I know you all know who this is, Elon Musk. Uh, and I'll be really clear, I'm not criticizing Elon Musk at all. I think he's he is innovative, he's young, he's powerful, he's wealthy, he's pushing the bounds mm. of technology. And I'm going to share an interview, an interview with him in just a moment about his perspective. Mm. He is pushing the bounds because that's what his company does on the one hand. And on the other hand, you will hear him plead for technology to be regulated because he's afraid of where it's leading. Mm-hmm. However, he says, I have to keep pushing or my company loses its market share. So we're going to push these boundaries. Mm-hmm. But please, not just my company, we need to reel this in. We need to regulate where artificial intelligence is leading. He'll talk about that specifically. Mm-hmm. But I want to give you an example. He now has a company that's called Neuralink. This is the first chip. It's a computer chip that's actually embedded into a human brain where the neurons actually hook up to ports on the chip. Mm. Why would you want to do that? The purpose of this chip is to allow the human brain to communicate with a computer without any wires or cables. It's almost like Bluetooth technology. Mm. to be able to download information from that computer. Now, when I say this to young people, I've been in audiences with young people. I don't have any kids of my own. I'll just tell you the language they use. You're probably more familiar with this than I am. They say, oh, sweet. They say, you mean I could do my gaming and never touch the keyboard? And the answer is, yep, you could pretty much do that. And they say, well, why wouldn't I want to do that? Because they've never been taught about how precious, how fragile, how powerful human neurons really are and what they're all about. Let me show you. One of the things that you're going to see, I'll elaborate on this a little bit more, and I I mentioned it earlier. All of the technology in the world around us, it mimics what we already do. You have neurons right now that do what those chips would do. The chips will download that information. You have what are called mirror neurons. They were only discovered in 19, or I'm sorry, 2004. We're going to explore these a little bit more, but I want you to see this is one of the examples. A mirror neuron, technically it's called a cubelli neuron. 
your mirror neurons don't know the difference between watching something happening and actually having the experience. Your brain doesn't know the difference. Think about what that means. If you witness a healing of another body, your brain doesn't know the difference between witnessing and having that experience. Your brain begins to send the signals creating the chemistry in your body to match what you've just seen. Maybe you've seen it in another person, but look at this. Maybe you've seen it in your own vision, in your own imagination. That's how powerful you are. And there are ways and techniques. We're going to talk about this tomorrow afternoon. Mirror neurons. They don't know the difference between witnessing and living the experience. They fire both when you have an experience and when you witness the experience. You can have super learning from mirror neurons. Visualizing it, young people can access this without those computer chips. Why would it be disadvantages to have that computer chip? It's what I said earlier to you this morning. When our unique biology is replaced by machines, guess what begins to happen? The abilities of that biology, you've all heard the term, use it or lose it. It's exactly what happens. The neural connections begin to dissipate when they're not used. Our ability to sense other realms, to sense other life forms, to communicate with other forms of life, communicate with dolphins and whales. Humans do that through these neural connections to communicate with other dimensions. And scientists now know there are many dimensions and there's life in those dimensions. It just isn't life like we're used to seeing it. Those abilities begin to atrophy. Now, I wanted to share this with you. This is a, a research paper. <clears throat> I'm just going to read this quote. There's compelling evidence to suggest that the physical heart is coupled to a field of information. So our heart is linked directly to this field. The field is not bound by the classical limits of time and space. Your heart is connected to a field that's not limited by physics as we know them today. And that is driven by neural connections. When we stop using those neural connections, they atrophy. We lose that ability. And maybe it happens in one generation because young people think it's cool. Pretty soon that next generation, the body says, we don't need to do this anymore. We become a very different species. You see where that's going? All right. So I wanted to, to share this. Well, I just want to show you a little bit about how this works. I'm going to show you two neurons. Some of you may have seen this before. I know some haven't. I want to show you these two neurons. Neurons are very social. They're, they love to hook up. Neurons are looking for a hookup. Okay. Young people love it when we talk about that as well. So they're always looking for other, and you've heard this, neurons that wire together, fire together. They're looking for somebody to, to wire and fire with. I want to show you a time lapse of how this happens with two neurons, but this is happening with many, many neurons. The reason I'm sharing this with you is I want you to see how long it takes. It takes three days or about 72 hours for these neurons to connect. So what that means, there's a field out there, and the scientists, you just saw that. The heart is linked to a field of information that's not bound by the laws of physics. 
Have you ever tried to learn a new language? Anybody ever tried to learn a new language? You ever had the experience like you begin learning that language and it's awkward at first. You go through the phonetics. You say things that seem funny and you've never really said before. And all of a sudden you wake up one morning and man, you're thinking in that language. You're thinking in French or Spanish. You ever had that experience? Or as a musician, when I want to learn how to play like another guitarist, Stephen Vai is uh, is my guitar hero. Anybody here know Stephen? Who Stephen Vai is? Let me see hands. Who knows Stephen Vai? Okay, he um, he's actually on a, a video that I had the honor of of interviewing with him on on another video. But when I I want to play what he's playing, and, and it's very awkward at first. After a while, all of a sudden, it's like you feel like you start thinking the way that Stephen Vai is thinking. Why does that happen? Why does it happen with the language? Here's what happens. It is the act, the very act of you striving to become something more in the next moment, to learn something new, to express something new than you did in the past. The act is the trigger for what you're going to see right here. The act of you striving to learn the language is the trigger for the antenna of the neurons to build the network to tune to the field where that language lives or where that music lives. Does that make sense if I say that? We could spend more time on it, but I think you probably get that that idea. But what I want you to see from this is if it doesn't happen immediately, Please don't be disappointed. It doesn't mean it's not working. It takes typically about 72 hours, and you'll see this. It begins on Wednesday right there, and it ends on Friday. So here's what happens. I'll just set this into motion. So here, here's me trying to learn Steve Vai. I'm saying, man, I'm trying to figure out how this works. In the neuron, it's looking for a connection down there. It's not happening, but it found a connection up there. Now it's on Thursday, and there's Friday. It's made that connection. It takes about 72 hours. So I'm saying this. So when you're learning something new, if your kids or your grandkids are frustrated, so many young people now want immediate gratification. And if it doesn't come easy, they give up. Please encourage them. This is how they expand. This is how they learn. All right. And when we begin to use computer chips to do this, our natural ability to do this dissipates. Yeah, maybe you can access a fixed amount of information on a computer drive, but how does that chip know how to ebb and flow and access the nuances and the subtleties of the energetic field? And the answer is right now, it doesn't. It doesn't. So I'm going to say something else here, and, and we could talk about – we'll uh, I'll do some Q&A after the next session because it could open up a, a whole different conversation. But you said you're okay with that. You said you're okay if we go deep, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I have uh, – I had a friend. She passed recently. A lot of friends have passed. Have you noticed that? A lot of people leaving this world. I had a friend that passed her vocation. She was a therapist, and she specialized in alien abductions um, for almost 40 years. And I was talking to her 
one day. And, and, you know, if you believe in the phenomenon of alien abductions, there are people that believe they have been taken consciously or subconsciously against their will uh, by life forms from another planet or another world or another dimension or from our future. And I asked her, I said, so you've, you've met with people 40 years and all over the world. It's not just in one location. And I said, they're all different, but is there a common theme that runs through all of those experiences? And she said, there are a couple of them. She said, the most predominant is this. Universally, everyone, when the people that are abducted, the abductees, when they ask, why me? And what is it that you want? What they are all told for 40 years, the same story, is they say, we come from a place. We come from a place in our time where you are now in your time. And we had to make a choice between technology and biology. And we chose technology and we want our biology back. Almost universally, that's what they're saying. The ones from the future are coming back saying, don't make this mistake. The ones from other worlds are saying, we want the intimacy. We want the emotion. We want the ability to feel. We want the ability to self-regulate our biology, and we lost it to the technology. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting. So there are a couple of different ways of, of looking at what we're doing. So pure human technology. Do we want to go with computer chips, neurons? We are literally wired. We are wired to self-regulate our connection to our own bodies and to other worlds. Technology. It's not right, wrong, or bad. It's how it's applied. And I want to be really clear. So I did an interview recently, and, and the guy thought I was like anti-tech, like I want to go live on a commune growing corn in an adobe hut somewhere. And I'm, I'm not saying that at all. But there's something that's happening here. The technology, it's not right, wrong, good, or bad. It's how it's applied. This technology is awesome. It is amazing. And there are places, can you imagine a man or a woman serving their country on a battlefield halfway around the world and losing arms and legs and coming home and having the technology of a chip in the brain speaking to a prosthetic that allows them to brush their own teeth or hold their baby in their arms or button their shirt in the morning or play an instrument that they've learned to play. What a beautiful, beautiful gift. It's not right, wrong, good or bad. It's how it's applied. When it is used recreationally, embraced by the masses, this is where the potential for a problem is. So I want you to see this. I promised I would share this. What are the implications? And I need a little audio support here. You might have to work with the sound. This is an Elon Musk interview. But I want you to hear, and, and uh, the sound isn't, isn't the best in the West, but I want you to hear his very real concern and how he's torn as a technologist running corporations with billions of dollars on the line and millions of jobs at stake, he's got to keep pushing forward. But listen how many times he asks for us to be cautious, for us to regulate. Listen to what he says. 
You know, I have exposure to the most cutting-edge AI, and I think people should be really concerned about it. I keep sounding the alarm bell, but you know, until people see like robots going down the street killing people, like they don't know how to react. You know, because it seems so ethereal. And I think we should be really concerned about AI. AI is a rare case where I think we need to be proactive in regulation instead of reactive. Because I think by the time we are reactive in AI regulation, it's too late. Normally, the way regulations are set up is that a whole bunch of bad things happen. There's a public outcry, and then after many years, a regulatory agency is set up to regulate that industry. And there's a bunch of opposition from companies who don't like being told what to do by regulators, and it takes forever. In the past, it has been bad, but not something which represented a fundamental risk to the existence of civilization. You know, in the car business, you know, we get regulated by Department of Transport, by EPA, and a bunch of others. And there's regulatory agencies in every country. In space, we get regulated by FAA. So there's a role for regulators. That's very important. And I'm against overregulation for sure. But I think we better get on that with AI. There'll certainly be a lot of job disruption because what's going to happen is robots will be able to do everything better than us. I mean, all of us. This is really like the scariest problem to me because you've got companies that are racing that they kind of have to race to build AI, or they're going to be made uncompetitive. Essentially, if your competitor is racing to build AI and you don't, they will crush you. I mean, there's like some of like that 12% of jobs are transport. Transport will be one of the first things to go fully autonomous. But when I say everything, like the robots will be able to do everything or nothing. So you're hearing it from Elon Musk and not just from me. And you can hear he's really concerned, particularly about the AI, specifically about technology in, in general. So here's what brings us together today. Technology is not right, wrong, good or bad. The question is, how much of ourselves do we give away to that technology? How much of our humanness do we compromise? Because once it's gone, it's gone forever. I don't want you to feel any pressure, but you are the generation that will make these decisions in your lifetime in the next couple of years. This is where it is right now. The pandemic is pushing this narrative even faster at lightning speed And the choices we make right now, some of those choices you're going to see, we can't reverse. Once it's gone, it's gone. How much of ourselves do we give away to the technology? Well, how can you even answer that question until you answer an even more fundamental question? And that question is what brings us together here today. Who are we? How do we know what to give away until we know who we are? We're only beginning. Look at the dates. The mirror neurons were only discovered in 2004. The heart neurons were only discovered recently. Scientists, the arrogance of the science is believed that we know everything there is to know about biology and the human body, and they keep making new discoveries. And I'm going to share a lot of those with you. But it tells us that we don't know. And it tells us that what we think we do know, we may not know in the way that we have thought. So this is where this this gets really interesting because there's a hierarchy of the way that we've been taught to think about our story. So there's a hierarchy of knowledge for our story. It starts at the very bottom, the origin of the universe. Where does this universe come from? And from that, we begin to think about the origin of life. And from that, everything else. Where did life come from? Where did human life come from? 
What is our relationship to nature? What's our relationship to our body? What's our relationship to the world beyond our body? This is our story. Well, this is where it gets really interesting because traditionally we've been told the origin of the universe is random, but we now know that it's not. It's ordered. We've been told that the origin of life is random, but we know it's not. It is ordered. We've been told that the origin of human life is random. It's not. It's ordered. All right? We know this now. We're not teaching it, but we know it. Scientists now know these things. This is no no longer controversy. It's just not being shared in the mainstream. Our relationship to nature, the best science of the 20th and now the 21st century, published in mainstream journals, telling us the fundamental rule of nature is cooperation, not competition. We know that. So the thing about this hierarchy is when something changes here, it means that from that point up, everything else has to change based on the new discovery. Make sense, right? So if the origin of life is ordered, then the origin of human life, we have to incorporate that into here. If if cooperation is the fundamental law of, of nature, then we have to incorporate that into our relationship with our body. Well, this is what has yet to happen. We're still being told that we are powerless, that we are vulnerable, and our relationship with the world is the same way. And where we are right now is is we are now trying to catch up with our body and with the world to incorporate what we now know about nature and our origin. And you're going to see those relationships through the rest of, of this program. Our story has changed. Our story has changed. We know the universe is alive. It's ordered. Life is ordered. It's not random. Human life is not random. Nature is based on cooperation. Now we've got to incorporate that here. But we're still trying to use technology to shield us and to fix whatever it is that we see happening. We have the ability to self-regulate. And that's where we're going with this this whole thing. So in this program, what you and I are going to do together I'm going to empower you with the knowledge. We started that. I'm going to empower you with the discoveries. I'm going to empower you with the techniques. I'm going to empower you with the reasons to think differently. And this is by far the most truly, the most powerful, the most radical act that you can embrace. Because once you and I finish here, you will think of yourself and your relationship to your body and the world differently. Then you leave here. And you go into a world and into families and into communities and into workplaces that may not think the same way. And this is where your real workshop begins. How do you live your truth in the presence of a community that may not support that truth? And we'll have the answers for that as well. So this is where we're going. This is where we're going with all of this. Does that make sense? Are you good with all that? Um, I want to say a couple of words, but we just covered a lot of ground. So let me just give you the opportunity. Are there questions about any of those, anything that I addressed since I walked on the stage this morning, uh, except my high school reunion? I don't want to take questions about that. Excuse me. Are any questions about any of those things? And yes, sir. Greg, when you talked about the 72 hours of the, the neuron hookup, 72 hours, the neuron hookup is what the question is about. 
And it was you using the example of you learning to play the guitar. Yes. How much study time did you have to get to that in order for it to happen? So the question is, with that relationship in mind, the 72 hours that it takes for those neurons typically to connect, and I don't think it's a hard and fast rule. I think sometimes it takes longer, maybe. Sometimes it happens quicker. Uh, and I think that is up to us. Um, so how long did it take me to incorporate that? What The answer to that question is, yeah, to study. The answer to that question is what we will be doing before we leave here this afternoon. Because there is a state of being that... Uh, supports those mirror neurons in a really clean, beautiful way. Now, I didn't know it consciously, but I actually incorporated that state. I used to go to school right up here at uh, CSU at Fort Collins. I'm home, <laughs> almost. Uh, I was paying out-of-state tuition, and I was I was beyond broke. I was broke and in, in very much in debt. Uh, so I had three three jobs that I worked, and I had a full-time, uh, I was carrying 16 credits at the time in, in my major, uh, geophysics and geology. And I didn't have much time to study. Fortunately, I don't need a lot of sleep, so that, that helped. But I learned, if you're a science major, you know there's a lot of memory. Mm-hmm. You have to memorize the classification of eons of time and crystallography and mineralogy and paleontology and invertebrate paleontology, invertebrate paleontology, and then all the chemistry and the math that goes with it. Uh, And I felt overwhelmed at first. And I learned a way, a state of being that I now understand because the biology tells me why I apparently did it intuitively and other people do as well. So there is a, a state of consciousness that lends itself to the mirror neurons and learning uh, rote memory very quickly. Uh, music. If you are watching someone else play the guitar, the piano, and then your guitarist or pianist, uh, language. Uh, very, very useful to do that. How many of you saw a movie of Matrix? Any Matrix fans in here? You remember when Neo sat in a chair and plugged himself into the hard drive to download a martial arts program? Our mirror neurons are essentially the biological equivalent of that. We're not plugging ourselves in. We are working with electrical impulses and uh, quantum impulses in the field of information and much, much more. And when we come back from our break, I think you'll see exactly where we're going. So when we come back, I made a statement to you, and I'm going to make the statement again, and we'll explore it when we come back. There is an emerging philosophy in science. I want, I'm going to say this now, and then we're going to say it when we come back. Why don't you think about it? That consciousness informs itself through the things that it makes. Think about that. There's an emerging view of reality, an emerging philosophy that consciousness informs itself through its creations. So you and I, we create. We write music. We write books. Art. Dance, innovation, fashion, finance, technology, all of these things. And we think maybe the books and the art are diversions, and they can be. A lot of people watching Netflix right now. (laughs) And Gaia TV 
and Amazon and all those other things. But is it possible? Is it possible? Because we are all part of a conscious field. Is it possible that we ask ourselves to remind ourselves of our potential by building in the world around us things that mirror what we are in the world within us? Mm-hmm. And if that is possible, what are the creations that we are building telling us? What are we asking ourselves to remember? Once you think about that, we are exactly at the uh, the time that I hoped we would be. So we will. Uh, wow, we did really good, didn't we? We were right on with the time. So uh, we'll take a thirty minute comfort break. Uh, I'm not supposed to call them bathroom breaks anymore. So I'll call it comfort break, and you do whatever you need to do to be comfortable. And you okay if we come back? I'll meet you back here in thirty minutes. What is consciousness? What are we asking ourselves to remember about ourselves? Let's see where we go with that. All right. Thank you for a good first session this morning. Appreciate it. Yep. <sighs> are we cooked yet? <laughs> Ram is ready to jump into our brother, Joseph Campbell. Uh, this is a good compliment to that. It's called Love and the Goddess. Uh, really interesting. Joseph Campbell talks about romantic love, beginning with the 12th century troubadours, and addresses questions about the image of women as goddess, virgin, and Mother Earth. And, of course, Bill Moyers is engaged with our brother. Here we go. Ready, Rama? Mm-hmm. Okay. Is the machine ready? <laughs> yeah. I guess the wind calmed down, everybody. Mm-hmm. What an interesting day. What an interesting day. Okay. So through the eyes, love attains the heart. For the eyes are the scouts of the heart. And the eyes go reconnoitering for what it would please the heart to possess. And when they are in full accord and firm, all three in one resolve, at that time perfect love is born from what the eyes have made welcome to the heart. For as all true loves know, love is perfect kindness. Which is born, there is no doubt, from the heart and the eyes. (laughs) 
if there were a giant map of the world's great mythologies, you could throw a dart, and anywhere it lands, you find a love story, tales woven to express the heart's deepest desire. For example, the ancient Babylonian myth of Pyramus and Thisbe, two young lovers doomed by a chance mistake and bad timing. Or Echo and Narcissus, a trail of seductions that ends with a dagger through a broken heart. Tristan and Isolde, take your pick. There are multitudes of choices. The study of the mythology of love was a favorite of Joseph Campbell's. One of his best and most famous essays celebrates this universal mystery. Ask him where he would like to start, as I did during our conversations on the power of myth a quarter of a century ago, and he invariably answered, in the Middle Ages, he relished in stories of love and courtship for the noble and gentle hearts that managed somehow to transcend royal lust. Because those stories helped to create a distinctive Western consciousness, in time they would encourage personal challenges to the dogma of church and state. So love, in other words, as Joe said, could lead to revolution, even against God. Our first conversations took place at George Lucas's Skywalker Ranch in California. Like a weaver of fine cloth, Campbell spun the tales and legends of love to a marvelous tapestry of the human psyche. Let's talk about love. Let's talk about love. Fine. But it's such a vast subject that if in mythology that if I had come to you and said, let's talk about love, but where should we begin? What would your answer have been? I think my answer would have been the troubadours in the 12th century. Let's begin there. Why the troubadours? Well, because they're the first ones in the West that really considered love in the sense that we think of it now as a person-to-person relationship. You're talking about romantic love? Yes. It, it's the seizure that comes in uh, recognizing as a as where your soul's counterpart in the other person. And that's what the um, troubadours stood for. And that has become the ideal in our lives today. What had it been before that? Well, the idea of love as Eros, the god who excites you to sexual desire, this is not the the person-to-person thing of falling in love in the way that the troubadours understood it. I have a definition for Eros, uh, the erotic biological urge as the zeal of the organs for each other (laughs) and uh, the personal factor doesn't matter. Where did Eros come from? Well, Eros is Cupid. And in India, the god of love is Kama. And he's no Cupid. He's a big, vigorous youth with a uh, bow and a quiver of arrows. And the names of the arrows are such things as death-bringing agony and open up. And uh, really, he just drives this thing into you so that it's it's a... total physiological, psychological explosion that takes place. Uh, Then the other love, uh, the Christian love of agape, spiritual love, love thy neighbor as thyself, again, it doesn't matter who the person is. I mean, it's your neighbor. You must have that kind of love. But the kind of seizure uh, that comes from the meeting of the eyes, as they say in the Troubadour tradition, and uh, the purely personal person-to-person thing 
far as I know, it originates as a um, as an ideal to be lived for with the troubadours. You've said that what happened in the 12th and 13th centuries was one of the most important mutations of human feeling and spiritual consciousness, that a new way of experiencing love came to expression. Yes. And it was in opposition to that ecclesiastical despotism of the heart. Yes. Which required people, particularly young girls, barely out of adolescence, to marry whomever the church or their parents wanted them to marry. That's right. And what had this done to the passion of the heart? Well, the, to say a word for the other before I do this, the usual marriage in traditional cultures is uh, arranged for by the families. It's not um, a person-to-person decision at all. And this is true to this day in uh, many parts of the world. This is not to say that in uh, arranged marriages of this kind there is no love. There is a lot of love. There's family love and uh, a rich love life on that uh, level. So in the Middle Ages, of course, that was the kind of marriage that was sanctified by the church. And so the idea of, uh, of a real person-to-person marriage was very dangerous. Dangerous because it was heresy. It was not only heresy, it was adultery. And that was punishable by death. For instance, in the, in the Tristan romance, that, that's the crucial romance, uh, Tristan and Isolde? Yes. Isolde was engaged to marry King Mark. They had never seen each other. And, uh, Tristan is sent over to fetch Isolde to Mark. And, uh, Isolde's mother, prepares a love potion so that uh, the two who are to be married will have real love for each other. And these two youngsters, they think the love potion is wine, and they drink it, and then they're overtaken with this love. But Brangaine, the nurse of Isolde, realized what had happened. She went to Tristan and said, you have drunk your death. And Tristan said, if by my death you mean this agony of love, that is my life. If by my death you mean the punishment that we are to suffer, if discovered, which is namely execution, I accept that. But if by my death you mean eternal punishment in the fires of hell, in which these people believed, I accept that too. That was uh, quite a big stuff for a medieval Catholic because they believed in a literal hell. Well, these people did. Yes. So what's the significance of what he was saying? What he was saying is that this love is bigger even than death, than pain, than anything. This is the affirmation of the pain of life in a, in a big way. And I would choose this pain for love now, even though it might mean everlasting pain and damnation in hell. That's right. And that was a marked change in how people... Well, that is a... Uh, any life career that you choose in following your bliss should be chosen with that sense. Nobody can frighten me off from this thing. This is sort of the beginning of uh, the romantic idea of the Western individual taking matters into his or her own hands. Well, absolutely. I mean, you can see there are examples in Oriental... Uh, stories of this kind of thing but it did not become a 
a social system it has now become the the ideal at any rate of, of love in the western world love from one's own experience you're right it's a very mysterious thing uh, that electric thing that happens and then the the agony can, that can follow which is that which uh, the troubadours celebrate you know the agony of the love the sickness that the doctors cannot cure the wound that can be healed only by the weapon that delivered the wound meaning well the wound is the wound of my passion and agony and love for this creature and the only one who can heal me is the one who delivered the bow you know so we often hurt most of the person we love and heal the hurt by the love that hurt. <laughs> That's something like that. That's the paradox of the job. What did you mean, Joe, when you said that the triumph of Tristan's view of love and vision of love, this beginning of romantic love in the West, was libido over credo? Well, the credo, I believe... And I believe not only in the laws, but I believe that these laws were instituted by God. And uh, there's no arguing with God. I mean, these laws are just a heavy weight on me. And uh, disobeying those is sin. And uh, it has to do with my eternal character. And the libido? Libido is the impulse to life. Comes from where? Comes from the, the heart. And the heart is what? The heart is the organ of opening up to somebody else. That's the human quality as opposed to the animal qualities, which have to do with uh, primarily with self-interest. Opening up to that which is other is uh, the opening of the heart. And that's as the troubadours saw it. It is the opening of the heart. I can certainly understand, though, why the church was threatened by this, because how can you have a church if everyone's libido is is her own God? Why not? Why can't the church handle, handle that? If you can, if you can uh, uh, sanctify a marriage that has been arranged, why can't you sanctify a marriage where two people have joined each other? So the courage to love became the courage to affirm against tradition whatever knowledge stands confirmed in one's own experience. Yeah. Why was that important in the evolution of the West? Well, it was important in that it gives the West uh, this accent, as I've been saying, on the individual. That he should have faith in his experience and not simply mouth terms that have come to him from other mouths. I think that's the great thing in the West. The validity of the individual's uh, experience of what humanity is, what life is, what values are, against the monolithic system. Was there some of this uh, in the legend of the Holy Grail? Yes. Wolfram has a very interesting statement about the origin of the Grail. He says, the Grail was brought from heaven by the neutral angels. There was a war in heaven between God and Lucifer and the angelic hosts that sided one group with Lucifer and the other with God. Pair of opposites, good and evil, God and Satan. The grail was brought down through the middle, the way of the middle, 
by the neutral angels. What is the grail representing then? Well, the grail becomes the, what can we call it, that which is attained and realized by people who have lived their own lives. So the story, very briefly, is of this, uh, and I'm giving it now as Wolfram gives it, but this is just one version. Uh, the Grail King was a lovely young man, but he had not earned that position. And uh, the Grail represents the fulfillment of the highest spiritual uh, potentialities of the of the human consciousness. And uh, he was a, a, a lovely young man, and he rode forth from his castle uh, with the war cry Amor. And uh, as he's riding forth, uh, a uh, Muslim, a uh, pagan warrior, the Mohammedan warrior, comes out of the woods at night. And they both level their lances at each other. They drive at each other. And the lance of the Grail King kills the Mohammedan, but the Mohammedan's lance castrates the Grail King. Mm. What that means is that the Christian separation of matter and spirit, of, uh, of the dynamism of life and the spiritual, natural grace and supernatural grace has really castrated nature. Mm. And the, the European mind, the European life has been, as it were, uh, emasculated by this true spirituality which would have come from this has been killed mm. and then what did the pagan represent he was a person from the suburbs of Eden he was regarded as a nature man and on the head of his lance was written the word grail mm. that is to say nature intends the grail spiritual life is the bouquet of natural life not a supernatural thing imposed upon it. And so the impulses of nature are what give authenticity to life, not obeying rules come from a supernatural authority. That's the sense of the grail. And the grail that these romantic legends were searching for is the union, once again, of what had been divided? The peace that comes from joining? The, the grail becomes symbolic of an authentic life that has lived in terms of its own uh, volition, in terms of its own impulse system, which carries it between the pairs of opposites of good and evil, light and dark. Wolfram starts his epic with a short poem saying, every act has both good and evil results. Every act in life yields pairs of opposites in its results. The best we can do is lean toward the light as they intend the light. And what the light is, is that of the harmonious relationships that come from compassion with suffering, understanding of the other person. This is what the grail is about. When we say... God is love. Does that have anything to do with romantic love? Does mythology ever link romantic love and God? Well, that's what it did do. Uh, love was a divine visitation, and that's why it was superior to marriage. That was the troubadour idea. If God is love, well, then love is God. Okay. 
there's a wonderful passage in Corinthians about Paul where he says, Love beareth all things, endureth all things. Well, that's the same business. Love knows no pain. And yet, one of my favorite stories in mythology is out of Persia, where there's the idea that Lucifer was condemned to hell because he loved God so much. Yeah, that's a basic Muslim idea uh, about uh, Iblis, that's the Muslim name for Satan, uh, being God's greatest lover. Why was Satan thrown into hell? Well, the standard story is that when God created the angels, he told them to bow to none but himself. Then he created man, whom he regarded as a higher form than the angels, and he asked the angels then to serve man. And Satan would not bow to man. Now, this is interpreted in the Christian tradition, as I recall from my boyhood instruction, as being the uh, egotism of Satan. He would not bow to man. Mm -hmm. But in this view, he could not bow to man because of his love for God. He could bow only to God. And then God says, get out of my sight. Now, the worst of the pains of hell, insofar as uh, hell has been described, is the absence of the beloved, which is God. So how does Iblis sustain the situation in hell? By the memory of the echo of God's voice when God said, go to hell. And uh, I think that's a great sign of love, Susie. Well, it's certainly true in life that uh, the greatest hell one can know is to be separated from the one you love. Yeah. That's why I've liked the, the Persian myth for so long. Satan is God's lover. Yeah. And he is separated from God and that's the real pain of Satan. You once took the saying of Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. Where he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You once took that to be the highest, the noblest, the boldest of the Christian teachings. Do you still feel that way? Well, I, I think the main teaching of Christianity is love your enemies. Hard to do. Mm-hmm. I know. Well, that's it. When, when Peter <laughs> drew his sword and cut off the, uh, the servant's ear there in the Gethsemane affair, And uh, Jesus says, put up your sword, Peter, and put the ear back on. Peter has been drawing his sword ever since. And uh, one can speak about Petrine or Christian Christianity in that sense. And uh, I would say that the the main doctrine of Christianity is the doctrine of agape, of of a true love for he who is your him who is your enemy. How does one love one's enemy? without condoning what the enemy does, accepting his aggression. Well, I'll tell you how to do that. Do not pluck the moat from your enemy's eye, but pluck the beam from your own, you know? (laughs) Now, I have a friend whom I met by chance, a young Buddhist monk from Tibet. You know, in 1959, the communists crashed down and bombed the uh, palace of the Dalai Lama, 
bombarded Blasser and people murdered and all that kind of thing. And he escaped. He escaped at the time of the Dalai Lama. And uh, those monasteries, I mean, there were monasteries with 5,000 monks, 6,000 monks, all wiped out, tortured and everything else. I haven't heard one word of incrimination of the Chinese from that young man. There is absolutely no condemnation of the Chinese here. And you hear this from the Dalai Lama himself. Uh, you will not hear a word of condemnation. This recognition of the way of life through which that vitality of the spirit is moving in its own way. I mean, these men are sufferers of terrific violence and um, no animosity. I learned religion from that. Do most of the stories of mythology from whatever culture say that suffering is intrinsically a part of life and that there's no way around it? I think I'd be willing to say that they uh, they do. I, I can't think of anything now that says uh, if you're going to live, uh, you won't suffer. It'll tell you how to understand and bear and interpret suffering. That will do. And when the Buddha says there is escape from suffering, the escape from sorrow is nirvana. Nirvana is a psychological position where you are untouched by desire and fear. But is that realistic? Does that happen? Yes, certainly. And your life becomes what? Harmonious, well-centered, and affirmative of, of life. Even with suffering. Exactly. There's a passage in Paul's uh, epistle to the Philippians, isn't there? Be as Christ, for Christ did not think Godhood something to be hung on to, to be clung to, but let go and came down and took life in the form of a servant, a servant even unto death. Let's say, come in and accept the suffering and, and, and uh, affirm it. So you would agree with Abelard in the 12th century who, who said that Jesus' death on the cross was not as ransom paid, as a penalty applied, but it was an act of at-one-ment, atonement, at-one with the race. That's the, the race. most sophisticated interpretation of why Christ had to be crucified. Abelard's idea was that this, oh, this is connected with the Grail King and everything else, that the coming and of Christ to be crucified and illustrating thus the suffering of life removes man's mind from commitment to the things of this world in compassion. It's in compassion with Christ that we turn to Christ. And so the injured one becomes the savior. It is the suffering that evokes the humanity of the, of the human heart. So you would agree with Havilard that mankind yearning for God and God yearning for mankind in compassion met. Hello everybody. Greetings. We got our, our wind pickup. <laughs> is that ready, Rama? Mm-mm. No. No. Oh, my. 
So what do you want to talk about, everybody? <laughs> uh, I think we're really in the twilight zone now. Everything is up in the air. Literally, we're watching a panda bear hang upside down from a tree. <laughs> Oh, what can we say? Mm. Is it pretty much ready now, honey? No. No? It's going to take a little bit. It's going to take a wee, wee little bit. Oh, you well, you know what we can do? Is I think we could read our sister Caroline. Yeah. I think we could do that right now. Anytime is a good time to read, Caroline. All right, let's do this. Greetings, friends. We are very pleased to have this moment to speak with you today. I got kitties sitting on my paws. <laughs> yeah, right there. Mm. Right there. Oh. <laughs> okay, so. <coughs> this, this week's guidance from the Ascended Masters, the Galactics, the Earth Elementals, uh, Fairy Elders, Angelic Legions, and Archangels, known as the Collective. Greetings, friends. We are very pleased to have this moment to speak with you today. Today our writer asks a question which we are happy to answer. So Caroline is saying, My friends, many light bringers in these times are feeling that the higher forces of light are not hearing our requests for intervention. As we look, look out onto the world now, we see more density, more violence, more illness, a seemingly greater amount of authoritarian control, not less. Some are feeling that we have been perhaps not entirely abandoned to an increasingly bad situation on the planet, yet that the wheels of change are turning so slowly that there are increasingly fewer choices for those desire, those who desire humanity to free itself. We have spoken to this before now, yet I bring it up again in case in case you, the collective, have anything else to add to those other messages. And your energy work is greatly appreciated at this time, the collective. And we are more than honored to assist, dear ones. For one, the disappointment and increasing sense that we have been abandoned to our fate, as they say, is not only due to the outer circumstances we see around us now, rather, certainly know that the wind is functioning tonight. <laughs> mm. Let's see. Uh, to us now, it is part of an ongoing form of withdrawal from the drug of illusion 
Humankind is also awakening to the sleight of hand tricks. Long employed to entrain parts of our brain activity and much of our spirit. So as to keep us all small, passive, and ready to serve interests that were never our own, though appeared to be. So that, yes, we will many days feel as though there is no safety yet net beneath us, and that we are battling the elements of Earth's current crisis on our own. Yet we would ask, was there ever a safety net? All of those centuries in which people had had to battle the elements, capture or grow their own food or screw or scrounge for it, all those thousands of years in which women had little to no control over their lives in most cultures, all of the centuries in which to deny local authorities Whatever they required from the masses was to risk severe punishment or even death. Were we safe and secure in those times? The collective speaks here. We would say there was no safety net beneath us then. No one to catch us should there be a plague, a terrible storm, a drought, crops ruined, battles raging, ships sinking, Enslavement, too many children to feed, too many illnesses that seem to have no cure. There were, of course, times on the earth as certain advanced cultures flourished without the intrusion of a dark agenda. And there were many centuries in which indigenous ways provided for people including natural cures for illnesses, ingenious forms of food production, solid housing, joyful creative expression, and matriarchal governance, amongst other provisions. Humanity was not lost in those times, and yet they did not last. After the fall of the great civilizations such as Atlantis and Lemuria, the long arm of Sauron, managed to spread its shadow across all lands, exterminating the indigenous and outlawing their traditions and teachings and cutting humanity off from its cosmic origins so as to disempower humanity on as many levels as possible. Of course, since the annihilation and assimilation of the indigenous in most parts of the world, New solutions and systems have been introduced, supposedly to support the masses. Yet clearly, these have mainly succeeded in supporting the elite who created them and their descendants while exploiting humanity and Earth's natural elements. And so now we are in an era in which those supports are badly failing. And no longer can we bear to hear this disingenuous speech-making and false reassurances from the old crowd that this solution or that will, will rectify matters, or that those parts of the world that seem to be perpetually locked into war are destined to suffer as people are told. There is no easy solution. Our growing discomfort now is only partly due to what we see happening outwardly. The rest of the discomfort, as we say, has to do with our emerging from the 
anesthetized state of not quite knowing why we are here or where we have come from. Turn the page. Um, now there's all these monkeys marching through the TV. We were doing Joseph Campbell. Yeah. Yeah, it should be right a little, little maybe, is it still there or is it at the beginning? Yeah, there it is. It's right where we left off. Okay. Okay, well, let me just finish reading this time. Just take about five more minutes. It will indeed feel to be a cold and insecure place to be. That sort of awakening. Not for the faint at heart. And not anything we would desire to journey through were our ego mind and personality to have their choice. Yet our lives do not consist now of what our ego mind would prefer. It mainly now consists of the soul growth direction that leads us to the realizations of why we incarnated at this time. And it consists of an increasing awareness that Earth's people have not been free and independent in mind, spirit, or body for thousands of years, though somehow that is what they are reaching for now. And so we are among the first to hear the very faint yet definite strains of music of those spheres that dance around us in space and are increasing in vibratory rates and in voice, we might say, so as to enliven and awaken us to the capabilities we know. We have long had, yet forgot long ago. This is not based on outer earth realities as we see them now on the nightly news reports, nor are they based on our desire to end those situations and the pain they cause. This awareness is born from a vibration that flows well above earth life, yet is now powerfully moving into our planet and human consciousness. To the the degree that now no part of earth life can remain untouched by it. Already, we are not the people we were even one week ago. Having come forward in one week or one month to a level of evolvement that is past centuries. In past centuries would have taken many, many years. Yet no, now, yet how is that? acceleration going to help us now that everything feels to be so out of control we may ask and understandably so it helps by assisting us by lifting us into excuse me here just into into realizing that while we may pray for deliverance from the pains, losses, pressures, and shocks of current earth life, we will find now that increasingly, though we pray to the heavens, we are the ones we have been waiting for. It is so that the old Hopi elder prophecy is not a mere poetic turn of phrase. This is that time that, as many have noted, the ancestors pointed to as the time of reckoning. The time is those who have held stolen power 
over others and worshipped service to self must face an accounting of their deeds and a loss of that power for all time. Yet do not assume that it is that moment that grants us our freedom, for we did not design this particular co-creation to work that way. It is our own grasp of our co-creative powers, our own palpable inner experience of that which outlives and outstretches human endeavor and human circumstance that pulls us out of the mire now and always. We are greater than this. The winds will whisper to us now as we release the effects of the old power structure's last frantic grab for control. One more page. (laughs) And as the strains of the music of the higher realms reaches our own high heart, we will recognize aspects of ourselves. We, We, though never to meet a calm and inner quiet, a lack of resistance that makes all fighting irrelevant and all judgment unnecessary. Again, we will recognize aspects of ourselves, we though never to meet, a calm and inner quiet, a lack of resistance that makes all fighting irrelevant and all judgment unnecessary. We cannot overestimate the power of this moment. This too is an action taken. Though the world may judge inner growth, realization, and vibrational shifts as too etheric to be enough. Yet here all of us, standing in our strength, reclaiming that sovereignty from within that we had thought we had to wait for, be assigned by someone else. That factory is closed. Our high heart and our higher mind is and are freed. Rejoice in our regathered strength and inner knowing. Or as we cannot rejoice, give thanks in whatever quiet way we can. For this we came. Namaste, dear ones. All is well. Listen within and we will realize once again we are never alone. Caroline Oceana Ryan. Okay. Now, back to Joseph Campbell and Bill Moyers. See what that does for the next half hour here. Here we go. Paid as a penalty applied, but it was an act of at-one-ment, atonement, at-one with the race. That's the most sophisticated interpretation of why Christ had to be crucified. Abelard's idea was that this, oh, this is connected with the Grail King and everything else, that the coming and of Christ to be crucified and illustrating thus the suffering of life removes man's mind from commitment to the things of this world in compassion. It's in compassion with Christ that we turn to Christ. And so the injured one becomes the savior. It is the suffering that evokes the humanity of the of the human heart. So you would agree with Havilard that Mankind yearning for God and God yearning for mankind in compassion met at that cross. Yes, and by contemplating the cross, you are contemplating the the true mystery of, of life. And that love for this experience, no matter how horrific the experience, <laughs> the, the love for it. 
for this joy and pain in love. Yeah, there is. Love, you might say, is the burning point of life. And since all life is powerful, so is love. Uh, and and the, the stronger the love, the the, the more the, the pain that love bears all things. Love itself is a pain, you might say, that uh, is the pain of being truly alive. Once upon a time, so long ago it no longer matters how long ago, the feminine figure of the goddess ruled mythology as the equal of the male. The Greeks even gave her top billing. From chaos, they said, from nothing, came Mother Earth, known as Gaia, and Sky, Uranus. They bedded, and from their coupling came six twins known as the Titans, and three giants known as Cyclopes, each with 50 heads and 100 arms. Uranus was disgusted and forced them to return to their mother's womb, whereupon an indignant Gaia set out to make him pay for the insult. When Uranus came to their bedroom for his usual favors, she recruited one of their sons to make a sickle, and together they took from Uranus what he was most unwilling to give up and dropped the bloody thing in the sea. The lesson was not lost on the Greeks. It isn't nice to fool with Mother Nature. (laughs) Joseph Campbell liked that story and told it to me when we were talking one day about how patriarchal authority finally drove the goddess from the pantheon of imagination. Mm. Somehow, the old guys figured that if they wanted to control the world, they had to change the metaphors, and the goddess had to go. She remained the symbol of fertility, crucial to humanity's survival, Mm. but no equal, except rarely in the exercise of power. The repercussions have played out down the centuries and are still with us. We return now to our conversation. The Lord's Prayer begins... Our Father, which art in heaven. Could it have begun our mother? This is a metaphorical image. This is a symbolic image. And to make the point that it's not your father, your physical father, we have our Father who art in heaven. But heaven again is a symbolic idea. Where it would heaven be? It is no place. All of the references of uh, religious and mythological images are to planes of consciousness or fields of experience potentially in the human spirit. And these are to evoke uh, attitudes and experiences that are appropriate to a meditation on the mystery of the source of your own being, I would say. So there have been systems of religion where the mother is the prime parent, the source, and she's really a more um, immediate parent than the father because one is born from the mother, and then the first experience of any infant is the mother, so that the image of woman is the image of the world. You might say that mythology is simply a translation of the world into a mother image. We talk of Mother Earth and so forth. But what happened along the way, Joe, to this reverence that in primitive societies was directed toward the goddess figure, the great goddess, the Mother Earth? What happened to that? That comes in primarily with agriculture and the agricultural societies. Fertility and all of that? It has to do with the Earth, the the human 
woman does give birth as the earth gives birth to the, uh, the plants. She gives nourishment as the plants do. So woman magic and earth magic are the same. They are related. And uh, the personification then of this energy which gives birth to forms and nourishes forms is properly female. And so it is in the agricultural world of ancient uh, Mesopotamia, the Egyptian Nile, but also in the earlier planting culture systems that the, uh, the goddess is the mythic form that is dominant. Because of this obvious perception of creation issue. That's right. And when you have a goddess as the creator, it's her own very body that is the universe. She mm. is identical with the universe. And in Egypt, uh, you have the, the mother heavens, Newt, the goddess Newt, who represents the whole heavenly sphere. I was really taken when we went to Egypt upon first seeing the figure of Newt in the ceiling of one of those temples. Yes, I know the temple. It's overwhelming. Yes. There's one scene of her swallowing the sun. The idea is that uh, she swallows the sun in the west and gives birth to the sun in the east and it passes through her body at night. And, uh, and so she is the heaven. So it would be natural for people trying to explain the wonders of the universe to look to the female figure as the explanation for what they saw in their own lives. Not only that, but then when you move to a philosophical point of view, the female represents what uh, in the Kantian terminology we call the forms of sensibility. The female represents time and space itself. She is time and space. And the mystery beyond her is beyond pairs of opposites. So it isn't male and it isn't female. It neither is nor isn't. But everything is within her. So that the gods are her children. Everything you can think of, everything you can see, is the uh, production of the goddess. Oh, this is a wonderful story. The Vedic gods are together and they see a strange sort of amorphous thing down the way, like a kind of smoky fog. And they say, what's that? I don't know what it is. And uh, Agni, the god of fire, says, uh, I'll go find out who that is. So he goes up to this smoky thing and he says, who are you? Hmm. And from the smoky thing, the voice says, who are you? <laughs> and he says, I'm Agni. I'm the Lord of Fire. I can burn anything. And out of the fog there comes a piece of straw. It falls on the ground. It says, let's see you burn that. He can't burn it. He goes back. He says, this is strange. Well, Vayu, the Lord of Wind, says, I'll try. So he goes. And the same thing. I can blow anything around. Throws it down. Let's see you blow that. Well, he can't. He goes back. Then a woman arrives. A beautiful mysterious, mystic woman. And she instructs the gods and tells them who that is. 
That is the ultimate mystery of being from which you, boys, have received your strength. And he can turn it on or off for you, you know. And there she comes as the one who illuminates the gods themselves concerning the ultimate ground of their own being. It's the female wisdom. It's the female as the giver of forms. She is the one who gave the forms and she knows where they came from. I wonder what it would have meant to us if somewhere along the way we had begun the prayer, our mother, instead of our father. What psychological difference would it have made? Well, it makes a psychological difference in the in the character of the cultures. You have the basic birth of civilization in the Near East with the great river valleys then as the, the main source areas, the Nile, the Tigris-Euphrates, and then over in India, the Indus Valley, and later the Ganges. This is the world of the goddess. All these rivers have goddess names, finally. Then there come the invasions. Uh, these fighting people are herding people. The Semites are herders of goats and sheep, and the Indo-Europeans of cattle. They were formerly the hunters. They translate a hunting mythology into a herding mythology, but it's animal-oriented. And when you have hunters, you have killers. Uh, and when you have herders, you have killers, because they're always in movement, nomadic, coming into conflict with other people, and they have to conquer the area they move into. This comes into the Near East, and this brings in the warrior gods, like Zeus, like Yahweh. The sword and death instead of fertility. Right. Particularly the Hebrews. They really wipe out the goddess. Uh, the term for the goddess, the Canaanite goddess that's used in the uh, Old Testament is the abomination. And uh, so many of the Hebrew kings are condemned in the uh, Old Testament for having worshipped on the mountaintops. That's the goddess. And uh, there was a very strong accent against the goddess in the Hebrew, which you do not find in the Indo-European. There you have Zeus marrying the goddess, yeah. and, and then the two play together. I think it's an extreme case that we have in the Bible. And our own Western uh, subjugation of the female is really, I think, a function of, of biblical thinking. Because when you substitute the, the male for the female, you get a different psychology, a different cultural bias. Particularly if you cut the female out and, and don't have any, I mean, if, if the male is on top like this, uh, and the female is the subordinate all the way, you have a totally different system from that when the two are facing each other. And it's permissible in your culture to do what your gods do, so you just... Well, that's exactly it. So I would see uh, three uh, situations here. One, the early one of the sheer goddess, when the male is hardly a significant uh, divinity. You see, she is the total thing. And then this other one of the Hebrew, of the goddess, the male, the total thing. In fact, he takes over her role. Uh, and, and finally then, the, the classical one where the two are in interaction. 
There are women today who say that the spirit of the goddess has been in exile for 5,000 years. Since the, if well, it's not, that, you can't put it that far back, 5,000 years. Uh, she was a very potent figure in Hellenistic times in the Mediterranean. And uh, she came back uh, with the Virgin in the Roman Catholic tradition. I mean, you don't have a tradition with the goddess celebrated anymore beautifully and marvelously than in the 12th and 13th century French cathedrals, every one of which is called Notre Dame. What about the virgin birth? Suddenly the goddess reappears in the form of the chaste and pure vessel chosen for God's action. Well, in the history of Western religions, this is an extremely interesting development. The virgin birth comes in by way of the Greek tradition. When you read your four Gospels, the only one with the virgin birth in it is the Gospel according to Luke. And Luke was a Greek. And there was in the Greek tradition uh, images, legends, myths of virgin birth? All of them. I mean, the Lita and the Swan and Persephone and the Serpent and this one and that one and the other one, the virgin birth. Is, uh, is represented throughout. This was not a new idea then in Bethlehem. In no, it, uh, what is the meaning of the virgin birth? In India, there's this uh, the system of the Kundalini, as it's called, the idea of the, uh, the centers, psychological centers up the spine. And they represent the psychological planes of concern and consciousness and action. First is at the rectum, and this is that of alimentation. The serpent represents this, you know, a traveling esophagus going along, just eating, 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 eating. And all of us, are probably, we wouldn't be here if we weren't eating. And then the second, the second center is at the sex organ center, and that's the urge to procreation. The third center is, called, is at the navel. Uh, and uh, this is where you eat and want to consume. And uh, it's not the alimentary eating, it's the mastering and smashing and uh, trashing of others. You see, this is the aggressive mode. Now, the first is uh, uh, an animal instinct. The second is an animal instinct, the third is an animal instinct, and these three centers are located in the in the pelvic basin, you see. Mm -hmm. The next one is at the level of the heart, and this is the opening of compassion, and there you move out of the field of animal action into a field that is properly human and spiritual. Now, in each of these centers, there is a symbolic form. At the base, the first one, there is the form of the lingam and yoni, the male and female organs in conjunction. At the heart chakra, there is again the male and female organs in conjunction, but in gold. This is the virgin birth. It's the birth of spiritual man out of the animal man. Do you understand that? And it happens when you are awakened at the level of the heart, to compassion and suffering with the other person. That's the beginning of humanity. And the meditations of religion 
properly or on that level, the heart level. You say it's the beginning of humanity, but in in these stories, that's the moment when gods are born, the virgin birth. It's a god who emerges from that yeah. chemistry. And you know who that god is? It's you. All of these symbols in mythology refer to you. And you can get stuck out there and think it's all out there. And so you're thinking of Jesus and, and uh, all the sentiments about how he suffered and all. What that suffering is, is what ought to be going on in you. Have you been reborn? Have you died to your animal nature and come to life as a, as a human uh, incarnation? Why is it significant that this is of a virgin? Well, it is that the, the begetter is the spirit. It is a spiritual birth. The virgin conceived of the word, but through the ear. The word came like a shaft of yes. light. And now the Buddha was born from his mother's side at the level of the heart chakra. That's a symbolic birth. He wasn't born uh, from his mother's side, but symbolically he was. But the Christ came the way you and I come. Yes, but of a virgin. Which is a power greater than... And then according to Roman Catholic doctrine, her virginity was restored. So... Nothing happened physically, you might say. It's not a physical birth. It's symbolic of a spiritual transformation. That's what the virgin birth is about. And so deities are born that way who represent beings who act in terms of compassion and not in terms of the lower three centers. If you go back into antiquity, do you find images of the Madonna as the mother of the Savior child? Well, what you have as the model for the Madonna, actually, is Isis with the, the, her child Horus at her breast. This was the actual model for the Madonna symbol. Isis? Tell me that story. This is a, a prime myth in, the, uh, in, the, in this um, period of the goddess as the Redeemer the one who goes in quest of the lost spouse or lover and uh, through her loyalty and uh, descent into the realm of death recovers him. Isis and her husband Osiris were twins who were born of the goddess Nuuk. And uh, their younger uh, relatives were Set and Nephthys, who were also twins born from Nuuk. Set planned to kill his brother Osiris. And he took Osiris's measurements secretly and had a wonderful sarcophagus built that would exactly fit Osiris. So there was a hilarious party in progress one time among the gods and Set trots in this sarcophagus and he says anyone whom this perfectly fits uh, can have it as his sarcophagus and everybody at the party tried and when Osiris got in of course he perfectly fit just at that time 72 accomplices come rushing out and they clap the lid on and strap it together and throw it in the Nile now this is the death of the god Whenever you have a death of an incarnation and God like this, you're going to have a resurrection. You can wait for that. 
So he goes floating down the Nile and um, is washed ashore in Syria. And a beautiful tree grows up and incorporates the sarcophagus in its own trunk. So this is this wonderful tree with glorious aroma. And the uh, local king has just had a son born to him. And he is also at the same time going to build a palace. The aroma of this tree is so wonderful. He cuts it down and brings it in to be a central pillar in the main room of the palace. Poor little Isis, whose husband has been thrown into the Nile, starts this wonderful quest for Osiris. So she comes to the place where the palace is and uh, learns of the uh, wonderful aroma. And she suspects this is Osiris. And uh, she gets a job as nurse to the just-born little child. Well, she lets the child nurse from her finger. And she loves the little child, and she decides to give it immortality. So she does this by placing him in the um, fireplace, in the fire, to burn away gradually his uh, mortal body. But that being a goddess, she could keep that from killing him, you understand. And when that would happen, she would convert herself into a swallow and fly mournfully around the pillar where her husband is. Well, one evening, the child's mother came into this room while this scene was in progress. So her child in the fireplace let out a scream, and uh, that broke the spell, and they had to rescue the child uh, from incineration. Meanwhile, the swallow had turned into this gorgeous nurse, Isis. And the uh, nurse gave an explanation of the situation, and she said, um, by the way, uh, my husband is in that, that pillar there, and I'd be grateful if you could uh, just let me take it home. So the king came in, and he said, certainly. So he removes the pillar, uh, gives it to Isis, and is put on a barge. So on the way back to the Nile, she removes the lid, the cover of the sarcophagus, and lies on top of her dead spouse and conceives of her dead spouse. This is an image that occurs in Egyptian art all the time. Out of death comes life and all of this kind of business. And when they land, she, in the papyrus swamp, gives birth to her child Horus with the dead Osiris beside her. This is the motif for the, the Madonna, actually. It becomes the Madonna. In Egyptian uh, symbology, Isis represents the throne. The pharaoh sits on the throne of Isis as the child sits on the mother lap. And when you look in the Cathedral of Shard in the West Portal, you will see the Madonna as the throne with the little child Jesus as the world emperor on her lap. That is the same image that's come over. And you say the Christian fathers took this image? Definitely, and they really say so. Uh, you read the second letter of Peter, and he says, those forms which were merely mythological forms in the past are now incarnate and actual in our Savior. They, they were, it was a mythology of the Savior, the dead and resurrected God. 
and it's associated with the moon, which dies and is resurrected every every month. And you have the three nights dark, and you have Christ three nights in the tomb, and three days in the tomb, and all this kind of thing. It's an intentional uh, saying, that which was merely talked about is now fact. And no one knows what the date of Christmas ought to be, but it's put on the date of the summer, of the winter solstice, when the nights begin to be shorter and the days longer, the birth of light. And so there is a idea of uh, death to the past and birth to the future in our lives and in our thinking all the time. Death to the animal nature, birth to the spiritual, and these symbols are talking about it one way or another. So when the the goddess is the one who brings it about, the second birth is through the second mother. Notre Dame de Paris, Notre Dame de Chartres, our mother church. We are reborn by entering and leaving a church. It doesn't mean physically, it means spiritually. That there's a power that's unique to the feminine principle. It can be put that way. You can, it's not necessarily unique to her. You can have a rebirth through the, through the male also. But using this system of symbols, uh, the woman becomes the regenerator. There's that wonderful saying, uh, in the New Testament of Jesus, in Jesus there is no male or female. In, in the ultimate sense of things, there is neither. That's, it would have to be. I mean, if Jesus represents the, the, uh, source of our being we are all as it were thoughts in the mind of Jesus he is the word that has become flesh in us too you and I would possess characteristics that are both male and female well actually the body does but sometime in the fetal period it becomes apparent that this is going to be male and this is going to be female meanwhile it's a kind of neutral body with the potentialities for either inflection. So all through life we are honoring or suppressing one or the other. And in that yin-yang figure from uh, China, you know, in the dark fish or whatever you want to call it, there's a light spot. And in the light one, there's a dark spot. That's how they can relate. You couldn't relate at all to something that, uh, of which you did not participate, into which you did not participate at all. That's why the idea of God as the absolute other is a, a, a ridiculous idea. There could be no relationship to that which is absolute other. But the question arises, discussing the male-female principle, the virgin birth, the spiritual power that gives us the second birth. The wise people of all time have said that we can live the good life if we learn, in fact, to live spiritually. But how does one learn to live spiritually when one is of the flesh? Remember Paul said the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. How do we learn to live spiritually? Well... That was the, in ancient times and in primitive times, uh, the business of the teacher. He was to give you the clues to a spiritual life. That was what the priest was for. Also, that was what the ritual was for. A ritual can be defined as an enactment of a myth. By participating in a, in a good sound ritual, 
you are actually experiencing a mythological uh, life. And uh, it's out of that that one can learn to live spiritually. These stories of mythology actually point the way to the spiritual life. Yes, you've got to have a clue. Uh, you've got to have a road map of some kind. And these are all around us. They're, they're, they're here. And the road map to which the goddess stories are, are pointing is the map of of elevating the spiritual to an equality with the physical so that you live in union with those two. Yes, there you, you come to the real sanctity of the earth itself because that is the body of the goddess. When Yahweh creates, he creates of the earth and breathes his life into it. He's not there. She's there. Your body is her body. And there's that kind of identity. Well, that's why I'm not so sure that the future of the race and the salvation of the journey is in space. I think it is well right here on Earth, in the body, in the womb of all of our being. Well, it certainly is. I mean, when you go out into space, what you're carrying is your body. And if that hasn't been transformed, space won't transform it for you. Mm -hmm. But thinking about space may help you to realize something. You certainly thought about space in this wonderful passage. You're describing a page out of the National Geographic Atlas of the World, but you oh, read yeah. this and something happened to you. What these pages opened to me was the vision of a universe of unimaginable magnitude and inconceivable violence. Billions upon billions, literally, of roaring thermonuclear furnaces scattering from each other each thermonuclear furnace being a star, and our sun among them, many of them actually blowing themselves to pieces, littering the outermost reaches of space with dust and gas, out of which new stars with circling planets are being born right now. And then from still more remote distances beyond all these, there come murmurs, microwaves, which are echoes of the greatest cataclysmic explosion of all, namely the Big Bang of Creation which according to recent reckonings must have occurred some 18 billion years ago. That's where we are, kiddo. And uh, to realize that, you realize how really important you are. You know, one little micro bit in this great magnitude. And then out of that must come the experience that you and that are in some sense one and uh, you partake of all of that. And it begins here. It begins here.
begins right here, everybody. And he had his hand on his heart. And just to say, um, the Council of, uh, Arcturian Council of Nine Dimension here, Daniel Scranton. Are we prepared for the shift events? We are the Arcturian Council. Greetings. We are pleased to connect with all of you. We have finished our evaluation of the human collective consciousness and its ability to handle higher frequency energies. Here is what we have discovered. Not everyone responds in the same way to higher frequency energy. Those who are unprepared for it completely have quit, have quite a few ascension symptoms, excuse me, and can sometimes even experience a sort of mental breakdown or even a seizure. Those who are awake yet have not been preparing themselves for the higher frequency energies might experience some bodily sensations, some weird dreams, some physical dehydration. Those of us who are awake and do expect the higher frequencies as they come in have have come in in as they come in have beautiful experiences where we tap into new abilities, where we know ourselves as our higher selves for periods of time. And we also have many other positive outcomes. We might be wondering at this point how it is possible to know when the higher frequency energies are coming so that we can be prepared. At this point, it is a good idea to be prepared all the time. Don't just wait for a full moon or a solstice. Make sure that we are always hydrated, always rested. Make sure that we are constantly grounding, feeling our emotions, connecting with nature and opening ourselves up to receive. The experience of a heightened energy download can be one of the greatest experiences of our lives. Can also give, it can also be one of the worst. It really does depend on the environment those energies are stepping into. As a person has a lot of un, unresolved, unfelt feelings, higher frequency energies can bring them all to the surface. As a person is not taking care of themselves physically, the energies can intensely intensify excuse me, their experiences of the illness or pain. And as we have said, we might as well stay prepared because we are getting closer and closer to ascension every single day. Ascension will be the ultimate download of higher frequency energies, preparing ourselves for that major, for that major, event that is coming in our lifetime and is a very sound spiritual practice. Yet all of the things that we have given here uh, as a way of taking care of ourselves and preparing higher frequency energies are also just good sound practices for happy living, healthy, fulfilled lives. And so in many ways, those who are completely unaware that a shifting is occurring, can be preparing themselves subconsciously. 
certain individuals know that something is happening without putting it into words. And so we we see it really does not matter what we believe. It does, however, matter whether we listen to our inner guidance. And our inner guidance is always feeling us the same, telling us the same things that we are. So we recommend that we listen and that we feel for these energies every single day. The first thing we can do as we wake up and to is to prepare ourselves to take the temperature of the energies that we can feel and see what the universe has in store for us. As we are prepared for anything, we have a much easier time of being these during these very tumultuous and shifty times of ascension. We are the Ecturian Council, and we have enjoyed connecting with everyone. And so, I pass this talking stick with Arcturian Council good advice and angels, fairies, feathers, and rainbows and crystals <coughs> to my sister, Rainbird. Here it comes, Rainbird. Oh boy, I got it. There <laughs> you go. Good yeah. deal. Wow. Yeah, yeah, wow. Wow. What what an amazing day. <laughs> It just serendipity never ends. I know, I know. It keeps on going, and here we are on Pentecost Sunday with five, five, five. And well, wow. I don't know. Yes, I'm sure where you are it's Sunday too. So, <laughs> yeah, and we've begun that Saturn retrograde. Oi, 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 oi! And Mercury retrograde is going to jump right in there. Yeah, and a couple of more right after that. Three or two or three more of them, their planets. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a splendid day, and it was real fun listening to um, the, the story of Isis. <laughs> uh-huh. And I was reminded that um, I, I did learn a lot about Newt with from Master Dang because it's who we talked about with Newt. And, um, and Cash talks about, um, Mithra, who was a creator goddess, uh, 1400 years ago is what I'm thinking because their calendar is based on her. And, uh, yeah. So it's, it's fun to, um, really embrace that goddess energy for sure. So expect miracles. That's my words of wisdom as I pass this talking stick to you, Rama. Here it comes. Okay. What you got for us, honey? This is Breakthrough, Helen Watts. All right. Nobody seems to want to be in charge of themselves because they feel they can't do it. Because trying to improve yourself is like trying to lift yourself up into the air by tugging at your own bootstraps. Well, what is all this religious stuff about then? Why don't we just forget it? (laughs) And try. By all means, just go away. Don't go to gurus. Don't go to church. Don't enter philosophical discussions. Forget it. But... Supposing instead of that, 
seeing that there isn't really anything we can do to improve ourselves or to improve the world, if we realize that that is so, it gives us a breather in the course of which we may simply watch what is going on. Watch what happens. Nobody ever does this. Therefore, it sounds terribly simple. It sounds so simple that it almost looks as if it isn't worth doing. But ever just watch. Watch what's happening. And watch what you are doing by way of reaction to it. Just watch it happen. And don't be in a hurry to think you know what it is. In other words, people look at the, say, oh, that's the external world. Oh, how do you know? This real world is not spiritual. It is not material. The real world is simply So, could we look at things in that way? Without, as it were, fixing labels and names and gradations and judgments on everything. But watch what happens. When you are in this way freed from busybodies and being out to improve it, that your own nature will begin to take care of itself. Because you're not getting in the way of yourself all the time. You will begin to find out that the great things that you do are really happenings. No great genius can explain how he does it. The fellow does something we can't understand. He surprises us. But you see, just in the same way, we cannot understand our own brains. Neurology knows relatively little about the brain, which is only to say that the brain is a lot smarter than neurology. And all growth, you see, is fundamentally something that happens. But for it to happen, Two things are important. And the first is, as I said, you must have the technical ability to express what happens. Secondly, you must get out of your own way. But right at the bottom of the whole problem of control is how am I to get out of my own way? And if I showed you a system Let's all practice getting out of our own way. When you see, in other words, that doing something about your situation is not going to help you. When you see equally that trying not to do anything about it is not going to help you. Where are you? Where do you stand? You're nonplussed. And you are simply reduced to watching
just before we have the song, um, Sister Cheryl's number for tomorrow and Monday mm-hmm. is 425-436-6260. And the PIN code is 946-7441-POUND. See you there. It's about quarter of nine Eastern, a quarter of six Pacific, and we'll see you there and continue our journey. And I know Rama's got a good song for us. Here we go. See you in your dreams, everyone. Aloha. I know the energies are something, something we haven't quite experienced before, but we're ready. Aren't we ready? Yeah. Are we ready? Inshallah and Satnam. Satnam Ji. Ahomi Takuyasan. Thirteen thank yous. Honey in the heart. No evil. And live long and prosper. See you in your dreams and on that bridge, everyone. Namaste.